Monday, July the 11th, 7 Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. We've got some Tuesday Louisiana Downs racing for you. We're also going to dive into the NFL. We will go team by team over the next eh, probably month or so and preview all of the divisions. We start with the AFC East. Eric joins me. We talk Buffalo. We talk Miami. We talk New England and we talk the J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. Then I will dive into Miss Marvel Episode 5. So Episode 6 is coming up. Tim Kelly joins me to dive into Episode 5. We finish it up with the old wrestling rewatch. We head to WWF Over the Edge 1998. Andrew Champagne, Darren Zocali join. We talk about one of my all-time favorite matches, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Dude Love in... This wildly overbooked match that Vince referees. You've got Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe, the Stooges. They keep getting involved. Undertaker gets in the mix. It's crazy, but it's a ton of fun. We talk about all of that. So you get some racing. You get some NFL, some Miss Marvel, and some wrestling on this episode. That's what G said. That is presented by BetterThan.Vegas at BTV Bets. Go give them a follow right now. If it's something happening in the world of sports... They're going to be previewing the major events. Baseball. Basketball, we just finished up. We had previews of every basketball game in the playoffs. Football, we'll be previewing any every NFL game over there at Better Than Vegas. Soccer, football. Every Saturday morning, there's pitches and pints that gets you updated. Everything going on in the world of soccer. UFC previews. NASCAR and Formula One previews. Golf, tennis, big tournament previews. Everything in the world of sports, we've got covered for you. Horse racing, big days, stakes weekends, standard bread previews every Monday and Friday for Woodbine, for Mohawk, so much over at betterthan.vegas. Let's jump right into the horse racing portion of this episode. We've got Tuesday Louisiana Downs for you. Remember, Louisiana has a seven-race card every day that they're racing, and they have low takeout in the win, place, and show wagers. 17%. In the pick four and pick five, just 15%. And on every Monday and Tuesday, we actually give you away two free $20 win wagers on any of your best bets in races four through seven. You just have to come over to Twitter, check for the, the Money Monday and two for Tuesday post. I always make a Twitter post with big sirens on top. And just respond to that post with your best bet. Make sure to give me a follow. Make sure to follow Louisiana Downs. We pick two of you every Monday, every Tuesday. We bet $20 to win on whichever horse that you gave us as your best bet. If it wins, you keep the cash. Let's talk racing right now on That's What She Said. Listen in as Gino and friends give you all the specifics on who to bet and how to make some money. Horse racing fans, many of us have been using the DRF, the daily racing form, for years. Studying the races, keeping up to date on news with all the articles. I remember looking for a copy at the local liquor store or picking one up at the local racetrack, wherever I was going. Now it's even... Easier and cheaper than ever to use DRF with DRF.com and the newly optimized DRF mobile. You can get all the tracks that you want to bet and handicap. 
past performances that are mobile optimized for on-the-go handicapping on your phone. So you go to drf.com from your mobile device, no additional cost. Tap the calendar icon on the top left. It opens all of the options for past performances and for the tools that are available. One click to bet now and DRF bets. Get real-time odds and scratches on race day. You can tap on any horse and you get those same DRF past performances that you're familiar with with a larger font for your mobile display. One click to formulator for charts, for replays if you get the formulator version. And even on the classic past performances, you get the home screen with horses, with odds, with buyers. You get a lifetime buyer speed figure graph. You can rotate your phone for the best view. And any horse that you click on, you'll see the running lines. You can easily move from horse to horse. The same data as those traditional classic DRF past performances. You get an interactive format, which is... Very similar to the DRF Classic version that you're used to on the desktop. Every card includes live data updated instantly with those scratches. And so you get the accessibility from desktop to phone. Cross-device functionality. You can take your notes and save them from one device to the next. And then access your account on any of your devices. On-the-go handicapping and wagering multiple formats to view you got the overview page with recent speed figures current days odds easy access to expert selections and analysis you got the buyer speed figure graph with lifetime buyer speed figures and chart notes for every horse and you got those traditional drf pass performances that are just newly optimized for your mobile phones they are constantly upgrading improving and making everything easier for you to get your handicapping done at drf.com better you want to spread your pony knowledge Download the Stable Duel app and play today. Get those entries in and play, race, win. Stable Duel will have big games going on at Colonial early in the week. They uh, have huge action at Assiniboia Downs. And make sure to join us every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time for this weekend in Stable Duel, our free live stream. Matt DeSantis, Barry Spears, and myself, we go over best bets for Friday and for Saturday. We talk all about the Stable Duel schedule for the weekend, all of the different contests and games, and it's the no chalk zone. We don't give out any horses that are under 5-1 to one mainly. Every now and then you'll get like a 4-1 to one shot in there, but nothing less than that. We're all about prices. We want to make you a bunch of money. We want to lead you to some winners. Stable Duel. Let's talk some Louisiana Downs racing for Tuesday, looking at July the 12th. Looking at race number one, $5,000 beaten claimers. We have Phillies and Mares three-year-olds and up, which have never won four or never won a race or not have won won a race since March the 12th. I like the two. New Year's party was away slowly, took a bit to get going, but then ran right up into some traffic, had to tap on the brakes, back up a length or so, lost a little bit of momentum, but did come on again nicely up the inside. The seven-year-old mare 
does have a win three starts back on March the 5th, so she perfectly fits the conditions of this race, being a five-time winner, and she has not won since March the 12th. She's only raced twice since then, both of them nice third-place finishes, and one of them was buying a horse named Hurricane Tisway, who just came back to win again. The one, Fiona Hills, if she can find some inside positioning, she likes it at Louisiana. Before half glamorous on the big drop. If she repeats anything close to that March 27th race, she'll win this thing. Stacked them 2-1-4 in the opener at Louisiana Downs. Moving along to race number two. We have three-year-olds and up, which have never won four or not won a race since February the 12th. I'm looking at the five in here. Kasseloff was sitting fourth about four lengths off last time we saw him. And he made a move up to second on the outside within two. Got a little bit tired, as would be expected, because it was his first start off of a nine-month layoff. He's a four-time winner here at Louisiana and a multiple winner going six furlongs. He should take a big step forward. Second start off the bench. Jose Guerrero had a three-win day on, uh, what do you have, three-win day on Sunday. Came back uh, with another couple victories on Monday, so... Really riding well over the last few days. The Four Horse Club Soda is a nine-time winner who qualifies nicely based on the timing of this race. Has not raced since January the 15th, so falls in this as a non-winner of a race since February the 12th. But he's a nine-time winner overall. Fits very well in here. The three, Red Vivis, he's lightly raced with some upside. He can sit off or show some speed. You have lots of layoff lines for him throughout his career, and now he's been able to put a few starts together. He likes it at Louisiana Downs, a winner last time out. I'll use the three in some under spots. 5-4-3. Moving along to race number three. We'll go five furlongs on the turf course. Non-winners of two here. The three scampering Gracie had a slow start, moved up about four wide, made a nice bid all the way up to third, was within two lengths, uh, but the top two had separated a bit there. And one of those top two, Eve's Delight, came right back in a tougher spot on most recently over the weekend and was a very good third-place finisher in a tough spot. So she ran into a nice horse that day. Scampering Gracie likes it at Louisiana. I'll use the three-horse on top. The four, my sister Annette, was actually right in front of Scampering Gracie last time out. She was right behind Eve's Delight. So I'll include her in all exotics along with the five, Lily Dell. Second off, the long layoff. I'm just going to treat like it, treat her like she really needed that last race. If she can get back to some of her form before the layoff, that would really, really be competitive against this group. The seven, My Baby's Gone, should have plenty of pace to chase in here. She showed up at Sam Houston back in January with a big win at 57-1. to 1. I remember scratching my head going, where did this sort of come from? My Baby's Gone, since then, is come from off the pace a little bit more, so I think she'll get a nice sitting trip in here. I ended up going 3-4-5-7 in the third. Moving to race number four, maiden special weights there. Five and a half furlongs the distance for three-year-olds and up. I like the two, he's a sexy zong, who moved right up into contention to challenge the one-to-five favorite, took a big shot, and then faded. I love when horses move into contention like that instead of maybe being ridden for a, a minor award. He's a sexy zong, slight turn back. Maybe that'll give him a little bit more punch when he looms up this time. The four is Justin Spate. He is 
coming off of a, a third-place finish last time out against Maiden Specials on the turf. His races against lower Maidens, Maiden Claimers at Oaklawn, would stack up pretty well with this group. 2-4-6 Classic Intention is a first-time starter for Shane Wilson. Very capable first time out. This barn was a two-time winner. Steady tab for top-notch connections. The three, Son Carlos, capable of showing some good speed. Was really, really nice in a second-place finish on May the 9th behind next-out winning My Harbor's Dream. But then he came back on June the 4th. Had a tough time there. Was just sort of chasing and a little disappointing off of that impressive May 9th race. Let's see if he can bounce back and uh, and give a performance similar to the May 9th one. We move to race number five. So in the fourth, I went two four six three. Moving to the ninth, immortal brother Hulk Hogan. He he's been a bit unlucky in his recent trips. Weather, tough trips. Horse race came off the grass last time out. It was in the slop. Two starts back. He was acting up a little bit in the paddock. He made an early move to the lead and tired a little. Then on March the 18th, he had some traffic trouble that day. Back to February, another race that was taken off the grass and that was in the slop. Now all of a sudden, you're going four or five races back where you can make legitimate excuses for each of them. And all of that, all that should do is perhaps build a better price for him in here. We use the six Wednesday tea time third start off the long layoff. He's in a really nice form right now. He's done nothing wrong in in his career on the turf. Two wins in four seconds and six turf starts. He always shows up with a good effort. He's just more of a deep closer, so he needs a little bit of help up front in order to run them all down. The nine anti clued got floated really wide going into the turn, then got caught in between horses in his last start. I'm willing to give him a mulligan there and uh, give him another shot at this level on May the 9th, he was in a little too tough against First Level Allowance Company. He dropped down in a spot that would have been a lot better for him had he not had that trouble. 2-6-9 in the 5th. Moving to race number 6. Louisiana Breads. This is an allowance race. 6 furlongs the distance. I thought a really difficult race where you can make a case for many in here. I'll look towards the outside with the 7 Sammy Dancer Jr. who moves from the inside to the outside. Third start off the bench, was chasing from the back in a small field in the slop last time out. Should have a better opportunity under more fair circumstances just to come from off the pace and pick a few up. I'll include the six half again, who faced better and was facing open company last time out, a race that's come back live already on May the 21st. The five Mike J has won three in a row, and the last four races that he finished, he's won. Proven right here at Louisiana. He'll be tough again on the front end. I just feel like he's going to have some company up front. I haven't really... He sat a little bit. I just don't know if he's really one that wants to come from behind. And you could have maybe X-Clown showing some speed from the rail. Double Star. Adios Carlos. All flashing speed. Maybe half again. Along with Mike J. So there could be a lot of combinations of speed horses up front. I went 7 6 Five, the three Audios Carlos back in with Louisiana Breads might be able to sit off cutting back. And then the one X Clown, kind of a wild card. I just don't know if the rail is going to be easy. Moving to the seventh and final mile on the turf course. $12,500 claimers here. I like the five. I'd be rich. The dam was a three time winner on the turf with stakes placed. 
She has produced two turf-winning siblings. Both of them are multiple winners. One of them, a stakes winner. This filly is going to drop. Second start off the long layoff. Could be set for a big one moving to the turf where she's bred to have some ability on the green. The three Satin Rose takes a big drop down in class from Maiden Special Weights. Got the nine as a, another player in here. Beyond the hype. Wild card comes into the Henry B. Johnson barn. Last raced at Presque Isle, Oaklawn Park prior to that. The six and the eight I thought were possibilities. Born into bad news off the back-to-back runner-up efforts. At the level, it just feels like this race is a little tougher than some of the ones that she's been in. And the, the eight CC's cowgirl was only beaten a length, was just behind Born into Bad News last time out. So to close it out in race number seven, I went five, three, nine. You want to go a little deeper, the six and the eight. That's Tuesday over at Louisiana Downs. We head on over from Tuesday Racing at Louisiana to start talking some NFL. Eric joins me. We recorded this uh, well, Thursday, so just a few days ago, and we got into each team in the AFC East, so Buffalo, Miami, New England, <clears throat> and the Jets. We got into their win totals, their prices to future odds to win the Super Bowl. We talked about the new moves that they made, player movement, coaching. Uh, we, we dived into the schedule, positive points of the schedule, hard, difficult stretches in the schedule. About an hour-long conversation talking about the four teams in the AFC East. Eric joins me to talk NFL it begins. It is time to talk some NFL. That's what G- it's kind of funny as uh, I w- would have Eric uh, join me every week. We we talked basketball every week through the basketball season. We talked football every week through the football season and weeks leading up. And the way the schedule has been the last couple of years because of the pandemic, basketball season was pushed back a little bit. So we went from like basketball into football, then right back into basketball, and right back into football without a whole lot of like dead time with the stuff that we talked about. In previewing every basketball game through the playoffs with you on BTV, it felt so weird the last few weeks not to talk with you that much. It was like, man, I haven't talked with Eric very much after having talked with you so often. And, and we had a little bit of a lull. Now we'll be previewing uh, NFL each and every week, I was like, did I do something to Eric? And then I kept thinking, I was like, no, we're just not, we don't have anything scheduled for the next few weeks. I didn't like piss him off or anything, right? It, it's so funny when you talk with someone so often, I was like, man, how you doing? I miss you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's crazy, dude. I mean, like you and I have been talking pretty much every week for a while. And um, multiple times a week and during the basketball season every yeah. day, yeah. you know. Um, I do have a question for you. I did say on my, log, my live stream show, if anyone doesn't like me doing all this live streaming stuff to blame you because you were the one that got me into it. Did anyone, <laughs> did anyone I got a few people that said, what the hell? Nah, nah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's great. That's great. But we, uh, we have a couple months now, almost two months. Exactly. I think it's September 8th. That's the first NFL game. You and I are recording on July the 7th and we, um, we are going to preview every team. And what we'll do is we'll make it easy We'll just go division by division. That way, over the next couple months, we'll tackle each division. We can go through each team, spend a few minutes on their changes. We'll look at their schedule. We'll talk about you know any coaching changes, player personnel, and uh, and how we're looking at possibly betting their team, any news, anything at all. 
and we are going to start this week with the AFC East. We're going to start, I guess we uh, we start with the AFC East, Eric. We start with the team that's favored to win it all, the Buffalo Bills. They're your Super Bowl favorite right now as we sit a couple months out. They have a win total that's around 11 and a half. I believe they're in the 6 to 7 to 1 range, plus 650-ish, plus 700 to win the Super Bowl, depending on where you're looking. And they are no doubt favored to win their division uh, amongst New England, Miami, and the Jets. So the Buffalo Bills, who were not far away last year, they had that incredible game uh, against the Chiefs where it was back and forth and back and forth late. They ended up going to OT and they lose that game. But they bring a lot back, Eric, and they've added some some positives. Uh, they bring in, you know, Von Miller as a major plus and uh, Jamison Crowder. And one one guy that I know you talked a little bit about, James Cook. So what do you think? Uh, let's talk about some of the additions and let's dive into the Buffalo Bills. Well, first, let's give credit where credit is due. Josh Allen, historic fantasy football year, two years in a row. He was the first quarterback since Drew Brees back when Brees was having that run with the Saints. So what is that, 10 years ago? I think it was even finish, more than, yeah, yeah, like the late, like 2008, seven, something. Yeah. yeah. To finish with the back-to-back highest scoring quarterback. That hasn't happened since Brees did it. So props to Allen. You got to give, you got to give credit where credit is due. He's been insane. But the main thing is this. There's no Brian DeBull. DeBull, you got to give credit where credit was due. Yep. He changed the offense where it was centered around Allen, where he always had the run, the pass option. And once Allen got more comfortable dropping back, he started passing the ball more. But he still, he accounted for a 35% run share. And we saw what happened with Cam Newton. If you're a quarterback and you're running that much and taking that many hits, over time, that just wears on you. With what the Bills did, hiring, like, moving Dorsey over from quarterback coach to offensive coordinator, they hired Joe Brady, who was the he was the maker of the LSU offense. He mm-hmm. went to Carolina, kind of bunted heads with Matt Rule. So I think this is going to be more of a running-type offense this year. And we saw the last five games when they were struggling, they did start the ball, run the ball more with Devin Singletary. However, they hired... Aaron Comer, who is a phenomenal offensive line coach. But Comer, he has a zone running game. Singletary's not a zone runner. He's more of a power runner. So with that being said, and them drafting James Cook at such a high pick in the second round, you're not going to use a pick on a running back in the second round unless you're going to roll with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I found him at 12-1 to 1 for rookie of the year. Now, just listen to these fantasy points. I went back to 2015. He was the um, offensive line coach for the Bills in charge of their zone running scheme. LaShawn McCoy, 178.7 fantasy points, 14.9 fantasy points per season, only playing 12 games. If he would have played a full season, he would have finished as running back four. 2016, LaShawn McCoy, 299 fantasy points, averaging 12 fantasy points per game, finished as running back four. 2017, Ty Gurley, 383.3 fantasy points, averaging 25.6 per game, finishes RB1. 2018, Gurley had 372.1 fantasy points, averaging 26.6 fantasy points, playing only 14 games, finished his RP3. If he would have played a full 16, 
clear-cut RB1. 2019, this is when Gurley had his knee issues. Still scored 219 points, averaging 14.6 fantasy points, finishing as RB14. 2020, Malcolm Brown was a lead back, had a buck 60. But if you add, because that's when the Rams did that 300, 300 monster of Cam Akers, Malcolm Brown, and Daryl Henderson, you add all three of those productions together, that's 331.2 fantasy points. Finishing is RB4. Factor all that stuff in. And then they sign David Quisenberry who from the Titans, who PFF graded as the fifth best run blocking guard. And then my boy, Roger Scaffold, yep. former Los Angeles Ram, then went to the Titans. He was graded as the 13th best running guard per PFF. I absolutely love James Cook. I think he's going to be RB1. You can get him Bates is going to take a step forward. Their guard, he's good over there too. Their offensive yeah. line is pretty solid. Yeah. I mean, like, I Cook right now, ADP of 112. You can get him in, that's the ninth round. He's an absolute steal. He could easily be this year's James Conner, the running back you get that late that leads you to a title. And at 12 to 1 for a team that's looking to run and the only zone runner, absolutely love him. Um, still staying on the offensive end. You mentioned Crowder. I really, you know, I really love that Crowder signing just because when he stays healthy, he is a phenomenal, like he's just a great, great ball catcher. You know what I mean? He's just someone reliable underneath as someone that you have to kind of respect just because if you don't and you double digs, Crowder's going to eat underneath. Um, and I'm really intrigued by this O.J. Howard signing. Um, you know, Howard's just, he had an, a grade three ankle sprain in 2017, Padella foot sprain in 18, Padella ankle sprain in 18, thigh hamstring grade strain in 19, and he had a Patella Achilles tear in 2020. This guy was supposed to be the next coming of Tony Gonzalez. Yep. He just can't stay healthy. Maybe now changing sceneries pressures off to, a little bit yeah, right pressures yeah. off new time you know new city maybe he can get a little something like going that would be the one that that's kind of an interesting thing to me they also made some sneaky signings in the um on the defensive end you mentioned von miller yeah but not to be overlooked i mean they added daquan jones and tim settle i know those aren't household names but those are good, reliable interior defensive linemen that are good against the run. And, uh, you know, they're going to be able to stop some stuff. So I really like, you know, what what they did. And then they also drafted the kid from four, Florida, Elam. So that's going to initially help the DB. So, yeah, I'm kind of um, – I, I kind of – I kind of like what I'm seeing from them. Me, me too. And, like, Settle got really good PFF pass rushing grades. They, they feel like they sort of – Knew what some of their weaknesses were They tried to add a little bit In the back um, On the back front of the defense Their defensive The secondary is excellent And they're, they'll be very good there again And offensively He said the running backs room Has been sort of an issue for them But I think it'll be better now With Cook uh, Their wide receivers They brought in Jamison Crowder, who if he stays healthy, he's a very good possession receiver. He should fit very nicely for them, just getting wide open, little dump-offs from Josh Allen. Um, For me, it's just, I don't know if they have the easiest schedule in the world 
Eric, when we kind of dive into their schedule game by game, you know, they actually have four of their first six games on the road. And in their first seven games, I think six of those teams were playoff teams from last year. In the first yeah, six man. weeks, they have games at the Rams, at Miami on a short week. Or no, excuse me. Uh, the Miami game, yeah, is on a short week because they play Monday night at tennis versus Tennessee. Then they travel to Miami for Sunday, early Sunday. Then they play at Baltimore. And then in week six, they play at Kansas City. So four of their first six games are against pretty tough opponents and they're on the road. So it may not be just the, the fastest, most overwhelming start for them. But if this team is pretty healthy towards the back end of the season, like they can stack up a lot of wins after the bye. They can, they can. And can I just add one more fancy note that I forgot to add? Please do. Um, one guy I'm seeing get a lot of cred is um, Dawson Knox. My worried about Dawson Knox is he had only he had only had 49 receptions, and he had nine touchdowns. That is an 18 percent touchdown rate. Which, as you know, that's something that is very hard to maintain, having like that high of touchdowns with that little of receptions. Also, another guy, Gabriel Davis. Gabriel Davis had six touchdowns off 35 receptions. I mean, that's 17%. You know, it's usually around like 10%, 9% for a wide receiver. These guys getting so many touchdown passes with so many limited receptions, I'm kind of a little bit, you know what I mean, a little bit, down on those guys compared to everybody else mm-hmm. um in terms of their schedule i mean you just look at it they play the rams i love the bills off defensive line your rams i mean i'm a little worried what losing your big left tackle what that's going to kind of do to everybody because he was kind of your calming factor uh and you really don't know what you're going to get from acres you know what i mean there's the letdown of raising the banner so I'm really like not worried about that game. The Tennessee game, they lost two starting offensive linemen. You don't know what you're going to get from um, Derrick Henry this year. Uh, I'm just a little, I'm a little down on the Titans compared to other people. But and then you play Miami. Miami, we'll talk about a little bit. You really, Miami is the team. If I told you Miami won 11 games, you wouldn't be surprised. But if I told you they only won six, you wouldn't be surprised. I really think they have a big margin of error completely agree completely Um, agree and new england kind of too i think for them like do they take another step and build off of some good momentum last year or do we find out and i know you said that their number when we talked their day we'll talk about new england a little bit you kind of like how their like projections are based off of last year or do they maybe take a step backwards because it looked like in some of those games, they might've overachieved and caught teams in in good weeks and in like really good spots. I honestly don't know with either Miami or new England. Yeah. I mean, they have major, um, that's where I'm variances of how it can play out. Absolutely. I do think, I do think, however, though, that the game at Baltimore, I think that's an L I have that one as a big L I think going into Baltimore is going to be really tough this year. Uh, I'm really interested to watch that game, that ultimate revenge spot at Kansas City on October 16th. But I do have them winning that game. After the bye, I have those as four winnable games. Um, I'm really a little bit lower on Green Bay compared to others. Jets are really low on the Jets. Minnesota is completely revamping everything they're doing. So God only knows what they're going to look like. And Cleveland, you don't know if it's, is it going to be 
Jacoby Brissett? Is it going to be Deshaun Watson? We don't know what's going on there. So I'm really not worried about there. I think the Thanksgiving game at Detroit, Detroit's much improved this year. Don't mean to sound like a homer, but this is not the Lions team we've seen the last couple of years. They are much improved uh, at New England. And then they have three winnable games with the Jets, Miami Bears. Yep. Uh, you know, that Monday night game at Cincinnati, that could be a playoff. That You know what I mean? That could be like for home field in the playoff mm-hmm. and then end the season at New England. But, yeah, I mean, like I think on paper the, the before the bye is tough. But, I mean, Pittsburgh. After the bye, they could, I mean, they could yeah. honestly win every game after the bye. They, they could go on an insane run. Like they an could. absolutely insane run. Yeah. Um, it's just, I think in terms of, and, and my personal power rankings, I have them number one. I think they're the best team in I agree. the NFL right now. In the, in, and like we said, if, if it's this team intact that shows up come playoffs, they're going to be really, really good. And I will have a, and you know, we'll see what happens, but they're, they're going to have a big say in it. Along the way, they could have some hiccups here and there. They're not perfect. But they are, I think, as well-rounded as any team in football. And, and when they have the hiccups, that's when it's better is we have to look. For value. To bounce of them. Exactly. That's if you want to play them, you know, that's when you, when you ride in it. When they've lost, maybe they do lose to the Rams right off the bat, right? They come back, they beat Tennessee, and then Miami sneaks up on them, and then they lose to Baltimore. And now they're one and three. You know, that's when you jump in on them because they could go on a real stretch after the bye. It's just tough. They play some early in the season. They play some pretty tough opponents on the road. That's just not easy, even for very good football teams. But if if they get through the first part of the season, like they beat the Rams, they beat Miami, they're 3-0 and after week three, and then they win the game at Baltimore, like this team might win, might lose one or two games this year. Yeah, but if they start three and zero, that game, that spread against Baltimore is going to be awful. Spot. It's going to be a perfect. Sp- yeah, no, you're right. It's going to be a perfect spot, and I mean, I have that game absolutely positively circled to go ahead and to bounce on it. Let's, uh, yeah, let's shift on over. You have anything else you want to mention about the Bills before we uh, we move to the Dolphins? Losing to the Lions on Thanksgiving Day. Mark it down. Losing okay. To the Lions on Thanksgiving Day. It's a short week. You've just played a couple home games. You're kind of looking ahead because you've got division games. Your your next round of divisional games. You got at New England, Jets, Miami coming up after playing at the Lions. So you're. I agree. It's an early game, nine thirty, even a little bit Sandwich earlier than you normally start. Yeah, and I mean, that's, yeah, and like I agree. I said, I'm telling you, Detroit, it's a good spot. Is phenomenal, like vastly improved compared to where they were last year. It's a good spot. Let's move along from the Bills to the Dolphins. Dolphins and Patriots are pretty close when you look at their odds for uh, winning the division, and a lot of their numbers. Win totals are both like eight and a half, right? Is that what you're seeing in the in that range? Yeah, I have eight point over eight and a half juice minus one thirty five to the over. Yep. So Miami is another team that may have a tough first four games. And I think you hit it right on. They are one of the teams that has the biggest variance, I think, in the league this year. In if you told me they were a playoff team, it really wouldn't surprise me. If you told me they won five or six games and that Tua is not even the starter anymore at the end of the year, 
it wouldn't surprise me. And that Tyreek Hill got a little bit mad because he wasn't getting the ball as much and he didn't realize that Tua, you know, wasn't quite this good and can't get him the ball down the field. And but maybe Tua, maybe a guy like Tyreek Hill takes a little pressure off of Tua to where he's so fast and so good. Tua doesn't have to be quite as as accurate with the deep ball. He can kind of put the ball into some of the playmakers' hands. They do have some really, really good playmakers with Tyreek Hill and Waddle. There's nothing wrong with Cedric Wilson either. You add Jacecki there. Their running back room is bizarre, though. It's really weird. Their running back room is absolutely stacked, and it really doesn't make sense to me <laughs> why they have all those guys. I know. Kind of like, you remember a couple of years ago when it was like Jeff Wilson, Mozart, you really didn't know who was going to be the guy for the, to get the carries. And I think that's how it's going to be. Like, I really want nothing to do with this backfield at all. And it's that, like, Michelle, Sony Michelle had the third most red zone carries last year, which is absolutely bizarre to Easy. me that he was that high when you consider he really wasn't getting that much run for the Rams. Uh, they're going to do the outside zone running system. We need to remember Shannon has taken McDonald everywhere since him since he was at Cleveland. And he was a real big pivotal part of what the 49ers were doing this year, last year. Now, the big question is, can he create that and can he transfer over to Miami? Adding Armstead, who, when healthy, is a phenomenal tackle, but is yep. he going to be able to stay healthy? You know, and they brought in Carter Williams from Dallas. To their offensive line should be yeah. at, at their best if healthy. It should be much, much better than it was last year. But, but you're right. It's healthy. Even at and much better. It's still not good. In the bottom half, yep. which is tough for Tua. Um, this is mind-boggling. Jaden Waddle was wide receiver. We'll just, just guess it. He was wide receiver what in average depth of target last year? Oof, that's a good one. Can you guess the number that what, what he was? Where What he was ranked? Yeah. Not low. 30, 40? He was wide receiver 133. <laughs> oh average God. depth of target last Oh, my year. gosh. That's wow. Absolutely insane. And that just proves what is Hill. Is Hill going to be able to adjust to that? It's probably going to be a lot of short, dink stuff, try to get stuff. You know, Hill in space, kind of what the um, 49ers did with Debo. And I'll be honest, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they lined up Tyreek Hill on the backfield. Just to try to like, yeah, do what get they him the ball. Yes, yeah, swing passes, runs. But with that being said, like, Hill's got a lot of soft tissue injury history. So God only knows how that's going to play out. The one player that I am kind of interested in, in terms of fantasy, is Mike Isecki. Uh He's going to have the Kittle, he could have a Kittle type season. They like to run a lot of those tight end drags. And with Waddle and with Hill, that's going to open up a lot of stuff. But I'll be honest, like you, you were talking about their schedule and you just look at the way Teddy B plays and the way Tua plays. Teddy B is a better fit for this offense for what he can do. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me. Like, honestly, like when I played out their schedule, I had them winning at New England to start the season. At oh, they home. start it's home. Yeah, they start. They start at home. I have them winning. I am going to Baltimore and losing. I am yeah. losing at home against the Bills. I have them going to. Cincinnati and losing me too. So they're one and three to start one and three. And then I have them rattling off the next three. Uh, Yeah. I think they can win the next and they have, I'll be, I'll be honest though. If 
they lose that game on the ninth at New York, which it's really hard to win with your second game when you have back-to-back at home. Road games in three and four weeks. Yeah. If they lose that game and they're They're in some trouble. One and four. They're in some serious trouble. Surprise me if it pulls the trigger to Teddy B. And the thing is, is their win totals at eight and a half. And you look at this starting at week 13. They may not win a game from 13 to 17. They need to be at six or seven. Yeah. To, to be, you know what I mean? They need to be at six, six or seven games on week 13 for you to have any chance to hit this over. And even if they're at six, you could lose it. They may even win one more game. It's a brutal schedule at San Fran, at the chargers, at Buffalo, three games in a row on the road against three teams that are projected to be very good this year. Then you come home and you play Green Bay on Christmas Day. Then you go at New England and you close the year with the Jets. That when is I was one- doing my projection, I had them beating the Jets and beating Green Bay and beating Houston after the bye. So I had them at three, I had them at three and four. Um, if they do win three games, it's so hard to win four in the NFL, especially when you're one of those middle tier yeah. teams. So if they do win three in a row, because I always kind of look for pockets of three, so they could easily win Jets, Vikings, and Steelers, and then go on the 30th to play Detroit. I would love Detroit in that spot. Absolutely love Detroit in that spot, because that's going to be a Detroit minus three, Detroit minus two and a half. Or if Detroit's kind of struggling, this could be a low point spread with Miami actually land points. So I kind of like that spot. Um, yeah, you know, it's just their schedule is absolutely tough. Another thing to remember, and you and I have kind of talked about it with this defense and turnovers. Uh, they were first in turnovers two years ago. Last year, they're eighth in turnovers. Um, and Byron Jones and Xavier Howard, Jones is turning 30. Xavier a Howard is 29. That's the that's when you know stuff starts to deteriorate a little bit. Um, I started incorporating the Pythagorean win total. That's basically you just look at um, what is it points allowed and then points um, points allowed and points scored. And generally speaking, like when you do it and you look at what they did last year, if it's less than one, you know you're kind of like okay, you know this not about not a bunch score. of variants. Yeah, but when you score over one, that means the team kind of overachieved. They, their Pythagorean win total, they overachieved it by more than one. Like, so, you know, generally speaking, when that happens, yeah, the next this... year, the team does come back to the norm and kind of underachieves from their win total. So with that being, I mean, I had them at eight. Me too. Which is like right there. So, I mean, I wouldn't have bet this. Just because it's just, you know, it's just it's one too of those close. Things. It's yeah, it's right on the number. Yeah. It's right on the number. And yeah, the, the if they can come out of the first four weeks at two and two, they would feel fantastic about themselves. And then you got a soft stretch from weeks five to ten where you have six winnable games where you could easily go four and two. Mm-hmm. Super, super winnable stretch. And then all of a sudden, now you're you know, you're six and four, just like we said, you're a couple games over 500. You can get, have Houston out of the bye. Maybe you get to seven wins there. And now you've got your tough stretch of five games where you only have to maybe win one of those, you know, one and a half of them to get yourself in playoff contention. That That's where they have to be. Yeah. Because if, 
if they're chasing, they're not going to be able to make up games at the end of the year like they did last year. Remember, it was the flip side for them last year. They, they, you know, they spit out a few games early in the year that they shouldn't have lost, but then they had a really easy schedule and they stacked. Did they win seven games in a row last year? They lost seven and won seven last year. Yeah. Yeah. So incredible. Remarkable. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. Like, I love this kid, McDowell, but is he really ready yet? I mean, that's my one thing. Is he, like, really ready yet to be the guy? I'm always a little apprehensive. And don't get me wrong. Everything I've read about the guy and seen him interviewing, I love him. But I'm always a little apprehensive that, you know what I mean? Like, you haven't even called plays yet because Shanahan was the guy calling the plays in um, San Francisco. And you're taking over everything and you're calling plays. You know, I mean, I, you guys can say LaFleur, but dude, LaFleur, before he got the job in Green Bay, he had a whole year in Tennessee when he was calling plays and everything. So he had that before he took the Green Bay job. Historically speaking, coaches that just go into it with no play calling experience tend to struggle that first year. Eric, uh, anything else to mention about the Dolphins before we move along? Uh Tua time is over. Yeah. We've never been all that high on Tua. This is this is a big pressure time now. You've got the pieces, Tua. You've got the weapons offensively. You've got a solid enough defense to where you have got to win this year. You've got to get your team into the playoffs. And if you don't, I don't know if, if Tua, like you said, is even the guy starting at the end of the year because this roster – Certainly seems like they'd be capable to be around a 500 roster with just average quarterback play with just a quarterback that's not hurting them. Yeah, I mean, look what Teddy did when Teddy was with the Saints and he took over for what's his face, uh, Drew Brees when yep. Brees went down. Well, even what Very he was doing with the Broncos last year, right? They yeah. they weren't fantastic, but they would win the games they were supposed to win. They won't yep. really jump up and maybe beat like the greatest teams, but there's a good floor that you have. Yeah, good floor, serviceable. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if Tua can stay the season for the uh, for the Finns. Let's move to the Patriots. A lot of their numbers are similar to Miami, so they're like the co-second choice uh, right around there to win the division. Their win totals are same thing, right? Like eight and a half. You're seeing for them. See, this is the thing. I'm seeing them at eight and a half, but I mentioned the Pythagorean win total. So which likes them? Which loves them? I mean, last year. They're 10 and seven. The last year's Pythagorean win total was 12. So that means last year, this team underachieved. So based on that, there is value in betting this over. I look at my issue with them is this, who's calling the plays. They don't have an offensive coordinator. They never, they haven't named an offensive coordinator. No, we don't know a lot of their staff. Maybe, maybe name, maybe running, calling the plays. Plus the main thing that sticks out to me is there's no QB coach. I've always said that, look, if the quarterback from year one to year two doesn't make a jump, what do I mean by that? Is he still making the same mistakes he was making in year one? If that happens, they're not it. The quarterback needs to be able to sit down in the film room, see those mistakes, take that information, and go on the field and avoid those mistakes the following year. If that doesn't happen, then you have an issue. Jones isn't, I don't, like, who's giving him this coaching? You know what I mean? Like, who's in the QB room with Jones sitting down saying, look, dude, this is what's going on. Oh, you should have done this read. See what the safety is doing. So that's my big worry with this Patriots team right now and Matt Jones. 
Uh, looking at it, I know they brought in Devontae Parker. I really don't think it's going to do anything. I want nothing to do with Hunter Henry, nothing to do with Devontae Parker, nothing to do with, um, who is his name, Jacoby Myers. I want everything to do with Damian Harris. They were eighth in rushing yep. attempts last year, eighth in rushing yards. That's, I found if Damian this team is competitive, it's because they have a fantastic running game this year, right? It's because they exactly. pound the rock. They don't want to have a bunch of possessions in every game. They don't want high-scoring games. Their defense won't be quite as dominant, but their offensive line should be one of the major strengths for them. Yeah, well, but with their offensive line, Shaq Mason is gone. He was the fourth-highest PFF-graded guard last season. They drafted the kid Cole Strange, who's coming in, who's slotted to start. If Strange has a hard time adjusting... That's a hole. That, that's and, a big hole. And, and one hole is, on your line is key, right? You're only as strong as your weakest link. The best offensive lines are the ones where they may not be, they may not have the two best offensive linemen in all of football, but there's no weakness. There's no hole. There's nowhere that you can attack. Yeah, there's, yeah. If you have a hole and you have to run double, double blockage to that hole, that opens up a lot of stuff. And that's really going to hurt this running game. I love, like I said, Eighth in rushing attempts, eight in rushing yards. Historically, when a player is entering his final season, his contract, and this is going to sound awful, Belichick just runs the effing crap out of him. Yeah, and that's what Damian Harris is doing. I found Harris at twenty-five to one for most rushing yards. I think that has, if he can stay healthy, absolute insane value. Just because that's what they're going to do. They're going to look to run the ball, and. He's going to be the guy, and he's not coming back next year. So Belichick doesn't care. He's just going to keep on effing pounding him. Uh, the defensive side, the thing that just kills them is they lost J.C. Jackson. Yeah. Historically, you mentioned it when we did the BTV, um, the, the BTV preview. They always historically have that cornerback that you can just rely on, have it be Gilmore. Back in the day, they had Revis Island. Um, what it? God, who is the game? I'm spacing the guy who used to play for the Broncos. Talib, they had him. They had J.C. Jackson. J.C. Jackson left. Now he's with um, the Chargers. So it's going to be interesting to see kind of like how this defense is able to do everything. They're going to be relying heavily on scheme because they've got really strong, really, really strong safeties and then a bunch of unproven cornerbacks. Their cornerbacks are either – like unproven or past their prime in there. So they're going to probably have to play like a lot of zone and it just kind of what we're talking about. I don't. So it's weird because I don't feel that great about this team. If one or two things goes wrong, right? They don't feel like they're very deep or they're like, they're versatile. If they need to do things and win in different ways, I don't know if they can do that. I think if they're healthy and things go well for them, that they'll have enough. They're always going to be really well coached and they could maybe build on last year. Like you mentioned, your, uh, the Pythagorean wins has them to, you know, actually win more than they did last year. But if, like you said, if there's a hole in the offensive line and the, the rookie is not ready to go right now, they don't have the wide receivers and the playmakers to take all the pressure off the running game. So that, May be hard Mac Jones He's not necessarily someone who we know What he's really capable of Yet he was good last year When things were always going his way When things got a little bit difficult When the script got flipped 
he was nothing fantastic. And, you know, this second year is a big year for him. This is another one of those teams where I could see them being really consistent, being like above, slightly above 500 team, or, you know, early on, look at their schedule at Miami. What do you, do you think Miami wins that game to start? I think Miami wins that game, yeah. Yeah, and it and it'll be, like we said, it's not like it's easy, but for New England, it's Belichick against a rookie coach for Miami, a, a rookie head coach for the first time. Then you've got at Pittsburgh for the Patri- uh, for the Patriots. I think they probably win that game, but Eric, it's not as if Pittsburgh is an easy place to play, and that defense from Pittsburgh is, st- is still going to be pretty decent. Yeah, but... I'll be honest. If Pittsburgh starting the kid Kenny Pickett behind the they're, offensive yeah, line, that's, they're D, yeah, they're DOA. Well, Trubisky with his feet at least gives you a shot. Um, so yeah, like well, I have yeah, more team. so. I'm meaning just I don't know if we if let's say this if they start zero and two, they're in some serious trouble because yeah, then they come. They, yeah. yeah, they got Baltimore and then at Green Bay in their next two. So you got to they got to split. It's not like you you were saying it. It's not an easy start when you go back-to-back road games and you go road games in three of your four, and those games are, I completely agree in that, I don't think Pittsburgh's going to be that good. But Pittsburgh and Green Bay are not easy places to play. Not easy places at all. Um, I actually have them starting the season one and three. Then I have them beating Detroit, beating Cleveland, um, Beating Chicago, so I have them at the three-game winning streak. Going at the Jets, I actually have them losing that game. Yeah, I, I can see that. Just this, it's a short week. Yeah. After they play Monday Night Football against the Bears, then a short week you go travel and you play at the Jets. Yep. So I I have that. Then, but then I have them beating the Colts because we got you know Matt Ryan going outside. Matt Ryan historically struggles outside. Um, then I have them beating the Jets on the 20th, right after the bye. I actually have them losing the next week on the short week at Minnesota on the 24th. Uh, then I have them actually beating Buffalo. This is when their schedule gets a little funky because they go yeah. Thursday. They have a Thanksgiving Day game, a week off, another Thanksgiving Day game, extended rest at the Cardinals, and then short week at the Raiders but here's here's the thing like we need to remember with all this stuff the NFL they adopted like they can flex games out a lot earlier they can actually flex games out of Monday Night Football now as crazy as it sounds so if the the Raiders like bomb out some of these games may not be at their scheduled time so hypothetically let's say the Raiders a good game point. gets flexed out, or the Cardinals game gets flexed out. This could change travel a little bit. But, I mean, I have them losing at the Cardinals, but then I have them beating the Raiders, losing at the Bengals, winning the last two. I actually have them at 10-7 again. Patriots have, yeah, a couple of those either-or games, right? I at, uh, at Minnesota, at Vegas, at Arizona. If you told me they won all three of those games, they lost all three of those games, or they won any of them, I wouldn't be shocked. And then yeah. home games like home versus Baltimore, home versus Indy. If you told me they won or lost both of those games, it wouldn't be shocking. So they're they're an interesting team this year. I probably don't play anything for them overall. I'll probably play them more week to week and in spots. Yeah. And uh, like you the said, that only, one. Said the only future I love with them is I just love the Harris future. I mean, 
Yeah. When you just kind of sit down and play it out, how do, they like to run the ball. They should have a good offensive line. And Belichick's history of backs on their last year, their contract just running them into the ground. It just makes all the sense in the world. New England Patriots, the third of the four teams in the AFC East that we are going to discuss. We head on over and talk Jets next. So the Jets are the long shot in the division. What do we got them at? Five and a half, six wins? They're at over under just sit at the six. Sitting at, yeah, right around there. So the Jets, I don't think they're quite ready to compete yet. And, and you know, compete for a playoff spot or anything like that But I really do like a lot of the moves that they're making, Eric They should be a lot more of just a real NFL football team that they're throwing out there uh, They're wide receivers um, Elijah Moore had a really good end of the year last year You've got Corey Davis, who's a nice veteran And he had good connection with Wilson last year You've got Garrett Wilson, someone they drafted and they're very high on They're running backs with uh, with Brees Hall, they should have a little bit more playmaking ability there. So they have a little bit with. I, I there, there are positives. I like what they're doing. It seems like their coach Robert Sala has been able to stack some nice defensive pieces. They had a really good draft. A lot of folks are very high on what they did this year in the draft. I I don't. I think it feels like a nice step year for them. Or maybe they could win one or two games where you're not expecting them to win. Maybe they could have a big upset. But for them, it'll really all come down to Zach Wilson, I think. What kind of consistency can we get from him? The offensive line should be much improved. A lot, lot better. That that could help him quite a bit. So let's talk a little bit about the Jets and, uh, and their prospects heading into the year. So let me ask you this. What is their coach, Robert Salou, as I see his name? Sala. 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 What is he known for? Defense. Guess who allowed the most points and the most yards last year in the all Jets. of the NFL? Yeah. Yep. I mean, like, and I get it, dude. Like, like talent-wise, it really wasn't there. But come on, you're supposed to be this defensive guru. You should be able allowing... to scheme a little bit better than that. Yeah. Yes. You you don't have to be dead last, right? And so, I agree. Especially you have two games against the uh, two games against the um, Miami. Uh, Against Miami you know what I mean it's not like It's not like it's that Hard of a schedule they played Um you did hit the Nail on the head though with this offensive line This off the big question is They have this guy um That helped back them they grafted a couple Years ago out of Louisville there's these Stories coming out like he like he didn't Really like to work out his eating habits Uh he got hurt the first Play of the year last year then just didn't play the rest Of the year uh, coaching staff is saying now they don't even know if he's going to play. He's got to earn a spot. If he can come in and he can be locked in, that is huge. They got Vera Tucker, plus they added Tomlinson to free agency. And I'm telling you, this kid they drafted, Matt Mitchell out of Louisiana, who comes from the zone blocking system, Louisiana basically runs the same zone running system that the Jets and the, um, oh my God, the 49ers and the Dolphins all run. So having him there and understanding what to do and where to be, he's going to be picking this up. That is a great pick. Uh, Jets were 13th in rushing yards per attempt, which begs the question why they didn't run the ball more because they're toward the end of of the NFL in rushing the ball. I don't know how you feel about this. Like if I'm losing, if I'm losing 14-0 to you. You can still run the ball. Yeah, that's what like Harbaugh. And Belichick, you have to be able to do that. Bel- yeah, 
and Tomlin, that's what makes those three coaches great coaches and why they've been around so long. Those three would just sit back and smoke the cigarettes down 14. They don't care. These other coaches, they panic, they panic, and they start rushing, forcing, passing the ball. And you now and you start able. turning it over, and then you blow the whole game up because you become really predictable, really one-dimensional, really easy to defend. Exactly. You, you, they have to stay committed to the run game. PFF graded, graded them out 13th in run blocking this year. It just doesn't make sense why they abandoned the run, which begs the question. Is it a coaching thing? They have. Right is he the right coaches. guy? Is he a, yes. is he a head coach? That that's a they have the right coaches in place, and that's the thing you have to really contemplate with this team. Also, we don't really know what we're getting from Zach Wilson. Uh, I'm really not a Zach Wilson guy. I don't I don't think he. I really wasn't that high in him when he came into the league. Um, you know, his size kind of scares me the most. I'm really worried about his size. Uh, you look at the wide receiver room. It's loaded. I mean, Wilson, I had Wilson great as the best route runner in the, all the wide receivers in this draft. Elijah Moore, not many wide receivers can say they finished as a wide receiver one in fantasy football. Elijah Moore has that. Elijah Moore was a wide receiver one this year, one week in fantasy football. But you have Corey Davis. Davis, when he played, had a 21% target share from Wilson. So that kind of makes me think that Davis is going to be the lead wide receiver in the room. Where is he right now in fantasy, like, drafts? Where is he going, or, like, where is he kind of ranked or stacked up? Because he feels like someone who may have a nice year, because when you look at the Jets, a lot of people may want to go to Elijah Moore, like we said, who had good weeks last last year. Some weeks where he was literally the best wide receiver, and um, others may want to go to the sexy rookie, Garrett Wilson, but Davis might be, like, old steady, who, who may be the guy at like where you draft him could give you the best bang for your buck. I'm pulling up fantasy pros right now. Yeah. So wide uh, receiver. Yeah. Um, I am all they also, the way down. They also bring in CJ Zoma and Tyler Conklin or like solid serviceable tight ends who can catch passes, who Uzoma had some good games last year too. He was a big part well, of, of success for the Bengals. I think he can be a help for them. But Davis, he's he's kind of sneaky, man. This is someone who's always been projected to be a number one guy, but I think he slots better as like a number two. Like he's a really nice like number two or a very, very like high level number three. He just can't necessarily be your one that you have to focus everything around. He was a nice compliment in Tennessee there, and he could be set up for a sneaky year. He could be. I am trying my hardest to find his ADP, but I cannot find it right now on Fantasy Pro. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll, 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 we'll tweet it out or t- and, and post it. But he just he just does not feel like someone who's going to be getting drafted or getting ta- get talked about as high as the others. Here we go. PPR, two, Jesus, PPR 206, wide receiver 69. Wow. I That's, mean, you know? that is absolutely insane. Um, and just to put it in perspective, you look at wide receivers that are going around his thing, wide receiver 69. Jeez, that puts um, Marvin Jones, Joshua Palmer, Alex Pierce, Sammy Watkins, wide receivers that are going before him, running rookie Dotson from Washington, 
DJ Shark coming off a serious leg injury, Jamison Williams yeah. leg injury, Devonte Parker in New England, Kenny Galladay who's done nothing since he's gone to the Giants, Garrett Wilson is going forty eight, who's the who's um, you know the rookie they have there, Elijah Moore. Oh my God, he's got it. Elijah Moore is going as wide receiver thirty three, Gabriel Davis thirty one. See, this um, is this is what I mean. He's someone that I would absolutely target and try to get some shares of here. In particular, we know he's already got success. And then for whatever reason, if one of the the younger guys, if some if if one of the other two guys were to get hurt, or maybe Garrett Wilson just for whatever reason doesn't have a great um connection with Wilson, I he's someone who we've seen and has been a proven fantasy productive wide receiver. Yeah, and it's shown. I mean, honestly, like, it showed last year. Yep. Anytime a wide receiver and a quarterback have a connection, that's who he's going to throw it to. And if there's this connection there, that's what's, that's who he's going to throw it to. Because at the end of the day, Wilson is the guy who decides who gets the ball. And you know what? When we talk about the Carolina Panthers, we're going to seriously talk about that with Robbie Anderson. Because Robbie Anderson says some stuff about Baker, and now Baker's the quarterback there. Yeah, you're right. And uh, let's look at the Jets' schedule a little before we finish up and get out of here. So they open up home versus Baltimore. Then they go at Cleveland, and then they're home versus Cincinnati. So three games to start. Actually, their first four games is all against the AFC North. They go Baltimore at Cleveland, Cincinnati at Pittsburgh. What do you think they do playing that division, two on the road, two at home? Where do you think they come out of those first four I mean, games? That's a brutal stretch, right? Um, that's not easy, you know, because the brutal, two teams that you might think were more beatable, you have on the road. So mm-hmm. that those games are harder. Like if you told me the games were flip flopped and they played at Baltimore, then home for Cleveland in Week Two, we don't know who's going to be playing quarterback for Cleveland. Yeah, we have no you idea know? what's going on with Watson or, or if it's going to be Brissett. And um, then in Pittsburgh, too, I, like if they had Pittsburgh at home. Like you're saying, we don't know what Pittsburgh's going to have early on in the season from a quarterback standpoint. Their offense may not be great. So if they were flip-flopped, I think the Jets have a shot. But what makes it tougher is the better of those teams, Baltimore and Cincinnati, you probably will have a a hard time even playing them at your home stadium. Then you got to go on the road. Any road game for this Jets team is going to be tough. Any road team is going to be tough. I mean, you look at it, like you said, at after Cincinnati at Pittsburgh, home against Miami, at Green Bay, at Denver, New England, then Buffalo. That's a brutal, absolute brutal start to the season. But I'll yeah. tell you what, I think with how some of the schedules like play out, I think it's possible they could win three games. And if they win three games in that stretch, you gotta consider that an L a win. A major win. If they can so if you if they go to the bye with three wins. That would be is what we're saying. I agree. Absolutely huge. I mean, I think so too. I mean, they get they get Cincinnati, Cincinnati right after they play Dallas. Um, Miami coming in on a short week. They go at the at the Jets. That's two back to back home games. And like we said, Green Bay and Denver, those aren't easy places to play. I think both you and I are going to be lower on 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 both of those teams this year than others will be. Like I'm not going to be as high on Denver. Really or Green Bay I'm not saying the Jets are going to go in there And win both of those games on the road But I don't know if they're quite as overwhelming As they may seem Right oh, It's 
it's and not it's a easy. great it's a great spot to fade Denver in there. I already have that spot circled. I'm definitely gonna be um looking to back them there. They catch New England at a good spot and they catch the Bengals at the good spot. And they beat the Bengals last year at home. We need to remember that. Um so yeah, I think it's easable. I think the ceiling's three. I think winning three is the best case scenario. But if we said they didn't win one going into the bye and I know. they were 0 and nine, we could easily see that feasible. Uh yeah. You mentioned you mentioned the draft. I don't know. Like my worrisome thing about the draft is this is they drafted Sauce Gardner, who was high on everyone's board, but he did when Gardner was throwing throwing to him he did get a lot of pi calls going against him because he does play very handsy and we all know it's an offensive league and if they start calling those that's going to be really hard um they got the kid from florida state the pass rusher who fell down but there is a reason he fell down anyone that watched uh what's that show on netflix where they go to the junior college um all american or a last chance you yeah 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 last chance you you saw this kid isn't a hard worker. You saw he doesn't put the time in. So I just, for as much credit as their draft class has said, when we look back at it in three years and Sauce doesn't pan out and Johnson doesn't pan out, I wouldn't be that surprised. Yeah. Um, the interesting one was, um, uh, yeah, it's just going to be interesting. Like Bryce Hall, like kind of intrigued there. Zone runner you know, in the zone running game, but they have Michael Carter there and Carter was phenomenal last year. I really don't Mm -hmm. understand why you're drafting. They've drafted two running backs now in the second round and back to back years. And what the, what the flip is that? For a team that needs a lot, right? They need a lot of help. That's a, that's high draft capital to be, to be, I don't want to say wasting, but you got to make sure that you're hitting there because you could use some help on the defense or you could always use some extra help on the offensive line. And I'm like, I'm, It'll it'll really come down to Zach Wilson. You know, if he I'm not that high on him either, but he does seem like the type of guy who can have big performances but not string together a whole lot of consistency. Yeah. I, he's someone you know, I, that can chuck the ball around, but you don't know what we're gonna get. Week to week. And that's what's hard for a young team. You sort of want a nice, consistent quarterback back there. You know what you're gonna get from them. This is a really young team, and this is a team that could absolutely have a tough time winning games early. But then after the bye, you know, they go to New England, they come home, they play Chicago, they go at Minnesota, at Buffalo, but they've got Detroit and Jacksonville at home, and then at Seattle, at Miami. So things do soften up for them at the end of the year. They could win multiple games in that stretch. They could end up in that five to six range. I I can't get... Past six though with them, Eric. I just yeah, I, don't think I, I got him to, six to, to I have him six and eleven. Six and eleven. Too. That's the best case scenario for them. I think so too. I had him winning. Uh, yeah, like we said, I had him, exactly like you said. I had him winning three games before the bye, after the bye, possible wins against Chicago, uh, Detroit, Jacksonville. I just sort of said they'd win two of the three games between Detroit, Jacksonville, Seattle, and then who knows with Miami at the end of the year. What what things are like then But they They're a better roster than they were a year ago They're improved yeah. They have a better offensive line They should be able to be more competitive On that side of the ball But this is the year now Eric And you've been hitting on this point We may not If, if their defense 
is really, really bad again this year with improved defensive talent, then we may have to look at the head coach and say, Robert Sala might have been someone who was a very good defensive coordinator. As a head coach, he may have too much going on. He may be focused on too many other things, and he hasn't been able to get that defense rolling. Or maybe we look and say it was some of the players around or different, you know, different staff that helped him. But this is a big year, I think, for him. He doesn't have they don't have to go out and win 10 games, but they can win six games and have the defense just be much, much improved. And they they need to take a step. Then what happens? Free agents going into next year go, oh, you know what? This Jets team is a little bit better than than we thought. Robert Sala is not bad. They got some young pieces. Yeah, I'll go sign with the Jets. Yeah, like that's what they need to do. They need to be ending the season, going in the right direction. And if they do that, they can get some veteran talent. And that's kind of what the what the room needs right now, some veteran mm-hmm. talent to show them how to teach them, excuse me, how to win. Yeah, they need to take a small step forward and then maybe next year could be the year where you bring a couple in and now you're talking about, okay, maybe we could battle for one of those bottom playoff spots, a wild card spot. You know, you you want to take uh, steps and then like the Sixers, trust the process. Uh, we'll see if that'll work for the Jets. Eric, we'll, uh, we'll dive into every team. We'll go division by division. It makes it easier this way. So each and every week now for the next couple months, We'll uh we'll jump into another one. What did I tell you we're gonna do next week? Um, next week I believe we're gonna talk about the um oh my god I'm speed the division AFC North the AFC, AFC North North AFC yeah. North. So we'll go east. We'll go. We hit AFC East. We'll go north, south, west in the AFC. Then we'll go to the NFC and we'll hit them in the same order. We'll go NFC East, North, South, West. And Eric and I will also be doing previews in that same order. If you're someone who wants to let us to watch video and you want to get a little bit other uh, a bit additional information, we'll be doing those every week at Better Than Vegas at BTV Bets. I believe we're going to record them and then uh, probably a day early and we'll stream them every Thursday at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern time. So if you want a little more football content, give us a follow over there at BTV Bets. Eric, man, you've got a new show that just uh, debuted this past week on Tuesday. You got a lot of different stuff coming up. You are always doing something for BTV. You're always uh, recording another stream or video. Tell us what uh, what we have coming up in the next few days. Um, we have my. I have a lovely week coming up. Uh, Tuesday. <laughs> I mean, just when you just think about it. Uh, Tuesday, Jim and I are F. Um, AAC college football preview comes out one team in there. I absolutely love think they could actually be this year's Cincinnati. Um, and then also on Tuesday night's a big night for me. Also on Tuesday night, uh, my girls, Elena, Brittany and Misty, I go on their live scene stream yeah. from sports talk South for about 10 minutes at the end, BS with them for sports a little bit, give out a sports betting pick and then 10 PM Eastern. My new live stream comes out. Uh, I'll be telling you there's a wide receiver that's going pretty early that I'm not a fan of. I'll be telling you guys not to draft him. Mike, um, football guru, um, he's going to come on. We're going to break down the AFC West. Gino's going to have a horse racing bet for you. Wednesday, Spring Fever comes out. Jim and I talk CFL. And then I'm on with your podcast. It comes out Thursday night, Friday morning. And then my podcast comes out. Friday morning, Thursday night. So that's kind of that's kind of the cycle of the week for me. Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Not not, not much not, in the uh, in the works there. Not, not, Man, not uh, a whole lot at all. 
keep working hard, buddy. You've uh, you've done a fantastic job over the last couple years, growing your brand. You know, creating uh, shows out of nowhere, and um, I've been so lucky. We've all been so lucky to have you be a part of that's what G said and and better than Vegas. So thank you so much. And uh, now, if you if you missed me, don't worry. You're going to be annoyed by me again because we'll be talking uh, each and every week a couple different times as we're now diving into football. I I think my lady friend is going to go back to being a little jealous of you. I was going to say she's going to go back to being like probably the person you talk to second most. Uh, as, yeah, uh, she, as, uh, she's going to she's going to be you know a little jealous of you. So well, sorry, I'm sorry. One one day we'll all have to get together and uh, and we'll uh, we'll go out and have some drinks with with all, both of the lady friends. But that'll be a a day and a night in the future. For now. Eric and I will uh, will help you out each and every week, getting you all set up for the NFL season. We'll try to do just like we did. Each team, anything, you know, if there have been coaching changes, we'll look into their schedule. If, if there's a fantasy player or two that's worth um, keeping an eye on as, you know, we start to head towards fantasy drafts, we'll try to mention everything for you along the way. Thanks so much, buddy. Looking forward to uh, getting through all these uh, NFL teams with you in the next couple weeks. I'm looking forward to it too, man. I love this time of year. And uh, we will have a lot more coming up for you on That's What G Said. Do not go anywhere, folks. Make sure to give Eric a follow and check out all of his great content. Next week, we'll talk some AFC North. Big thanks to Eric for helping us out. So we will go division by division each week. We'll tackle another four teams and get you all set up for the NFL season. Less than two months, I think, before the, uh, the first game. Two months away exactly from the opening Sunday. We're going to start talking Miss Marvel episode five with Tim Kelly. Before we do, we have to remind you about one of the longtime sponsors of That's What G Said podcast, Cindy Carava, full service realtor, Cindy Carava. That means she can help you out in many different ways with buying, with selling, with leasing. She can help connect you to a lender if you need help getting pre-approved for a loan. Maybe you're looking at home improvement. She can help connect you to the right type of vendors like gardeners, landscapers, painters, a lot of folks that she's worked with and has experience working with in her own homes because that's what Cindy wants to do. She wants to make things easier for you. She wants to make life easier for you by connecting you with uh, lots of the folks that she's worked with. CindyCarava.com is the website. C-I-N-D-Y-C-A-R-A-V-A.com. She is always up to date as what's going on in the market, the way things are trending. She's going to be honest with you. She's going to be genuine. And she's going to tell you exactly what you need to hear. Cindy Carava, check out the website. You can find all of her listings. Former uh, clients that she's worked with have given her all sorts of reviews on Yelp and Zillow. One of the nicest and most genuine people you'll ever meet. Let's head on into the deep dive. Episode 5, scene by scene. Tim Kelly joins us. Just one more episode of Miss Marvel for season 1. So we discuss everything in episode 5 and preview, make some predictions for the finale. TK on the deep dive. Episode 5, Miss Marvel is in the books. So you know we've got the deep dive coming up for you. Our recap and review with Tim Kelly. TK, coming off of episode 4, we were a little bit disappointed maybe or just feeling a little different after... Uh, episodes one through three I feel better after episode five and I think mm-hmm. th- lots of lots of things I like about this episode and and in just yeah. formulating my thoughts I I have more I think of an issue with just some of the format maybe of these six episode 
shows mm-hmm. than the actual content that we're getting. Most of the content yeah. that we're getting, I like, I enjoy. I just think sometimes I'm not sure if this if if these shows should be either movies or maybe they should be a little longer than six episodes. Because I just feel like where we are right now, we could we could use maybe two more episodes, or we could have maybe yeah. used one more to tell a little bit of what was going on here. A couple things sort of felt like they were um like the button was pressed and they were like simulation through till the end and then sort of tell us right. what happened. Um yeah. but I, I do like a lot. I just some of these I don't don't know if every single thing can be fit into like a six episode arc. Yeah, it just seems a little uneven and it feels like it's it's kind of shoehorned, kind of crammed yes. into to fit this mold that they've they've uh, you know yes. preset for themselves. And uh, I don't know if that necessarily serves the stories that they want to tell uh, in, in this series and perhaps even some of the other series, I think, have suffered from it as well. Yeah, uh, I, agree. I, I agree with you that this was a more enjoyable episode than the last one. I, from the jump, l- liked it better. I still have a lot of complaints, just less than last week. Mm-hmm. Last week, I was honestly, I was I was on the edge of saying, you know what, maybe we don't watch Ms. Marvel. Maybe, maybe we skip to the next Marvel program. <laughs> I, 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 might, I might get to that someday. Who knows? They, they're putting out so much and yeah uh, i'm i'm seeing thor love and thunder is getting very mixed reviews and and quite honestly anything i've seen from it looks weird like yeah, i was so gonna say because that... we could i agree with you it's sort of um what i've heard about thor is i haven't seen it yet we're recording this that the day after it came out um it's sort of the one thing i've heard about it and not knowing it doesn't mm-hmm. really feel like it has much of a purpose um, you know, like it's just sort of like a oh, let's have another Thor movie and we'll do some cool stuff there. I don't really know what it's trying to do. We'll obviously yeah. find out when we watch it. But I agree with you. I, I I've heard some some sort of mixed. And this this series was funny because this series has been very mixed too. But I think it's been yeah just a little bit uneven. And mm-hmm. I. I do enjoy a lot of what we get here, though. I just, it's, I think, like mm-hmm. we're saying, it's it's hard not to start doing the math again in your head, where you're like, okay, yeah. so we have one more episode left, and we have to tie this up and this up and this up. Are we going to be able to get all this stuff done? No, the answer is no. There's going to be <laughs> yes. a second season, almost for sure, with, with, with yeah. the way that they're uh, they're building this up, and it, it's it's kind of strange to me. I feel like the the clandestine arc kind of came to maybe a screeching halt in in a way i I don't feel like it really resolved so i think that that's going to be a loose end that that carries on into a second season because i just can't see them resolving that in the last in the the last episode way too clean we had najma go from being super evil to like she had her full arc her come to jesus moment all in like really quick I, i don't and in, in looking and in reading through a few others and watching some other recaps she may not have been doing things with the greatest motivations. You know, there right. there may be reasoning why she she felt like she could, you know, use her power through Cameron. What we see, mm. um, that that's kind of an interesting interpretation. And what makes it a little tricky, at least on a first watch, I think when you watch this episode back a second and third time, and maybe even just listen to other people talk about it, it makes it a little bit easier to comprehend because we start getting into this tricky time travel stuff again um where you're kind of like hmm kamala time traveled like what happened here didn't we just get introduced to like 
timelines and the TVA and incursions and how come if she's back in time, some there's not a branch that's off. So we have to right. sort of um, take things tongue in cheek. But we're we're starting to learn that the Marvel universe is kind of a predestined timeline. Basically, mm-hmm. like no matter what points in a timeline will intersect. These are things that we're kind of finding from Loki with right. Endgame, He Who Remains. Um, so d- does this violate established time travel rules? <laughs> yes. You yes, know? it does. Yes. And I, I I saw all the recap shows kind of pointed this out as well. Uh, but uh, to be fair, we always, we always uh, quote Eric from uh, New Rockstars on this, and he pointed out, they broke that very rule in Endgame, the the the, the movie that established that time travel rule. Uh, you know, basically, when you go back into a back in time in your reality, you're not going back into your own past. You're basically creating a new branch reality, uh, yeah. and then living through that that secondary branch reality from from that point on. Uh, that's the rules that they set, or at least Tony Stark stated at one point in uh, Endgame. And by the end of Endgame, you've got Captain America. Uh, coming back from seemingly a branch timeline to the main timeline with no explanation. Uh, and then you have the writers of the movie saying that that is the same cap that he was in. The, he never left the timeline. He was in that timeline all along, which breaks their own logic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got the director saying that he somehow traversed, uh, you know, dimensions to get back to the original timeline to deliver that shield <laughs> in the end. So who knows? They're, they're, I think they're flying by the seat of their pants. Uh, and that's very apparent now. Um, I would love to see a little bit more architecture to the whole thing. Yeah. I think they're just doing so much that that's impossible. They have to yeah. let writers and teams do their own stories, and then they're going to contradict each other. They're going to break canon. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's, that, that kind of sucks, to be honest. It does. Because that, no, it does. That's the whole idea of the MCU is this unified thing that they're, it's all going together. And anytime it breaks the rules of that thing. It just takes you out of it. It makes the whole thing kind of feel for nothing. I don't know. Would, uh, yeah. would you and me and guys like Eric from new rock stars are having a tough time doing <laughs> like figuring it out in our head. Do you, you know, you wonder what some of the, the less hardcore fans will think or yeah. how, how they'll be able to sort of understand and comprehend what's going on. And they're like, Universes, realms, timelines, you know, it starts getting right. a little bit tricky because now we all they're they're similar but different. And mm-hmm. that that's an issue. It's we're watching these movies and shows, so we're okay with yada yada yadaing through a little bit, but it does right. it does yeah. feel like there are it, it's impossible not to mention some of these things. That that's yeah. all, right? We we look at some of these things and it's like wow, they I really did feel like somebody pressed the button and we've just fast forwarded through like an extra few <laughs> few minutes of like yeah. of like a scene that may have been cut or or something there. Then on the flip side, I can kind of understand why because we were saying last week that some of those scenes got a little like exposition heavy. Yeah. You know, yeah. where they were getting like a little preachy like we're in the classroom. So mm-hmm. I, if they're watching this and and they're having all this new these new terms and and this new information to give us, I can understand why maybe they were feeling like, hey, we gave up a bunch last week. We can't just continue to just reveal right. all this new information. It might be overwhelming. Maybe we can give them a little bit more next Story week beats. or yeah, yeah a little beats right, right, like right. we're saying in a season two or in another movie, we can kind of go back and tell a little bit more about what was actually happening, which I can understand. And 
I I enjoyed going back to nineteen the nineteen forties here. We we learned mm-hmm. seeing just the the parts of the partition that I never learned about in school. Uh, like we didn't yeah. learn like the, the depths of of what this was like and the chaos of of these families being basically pitted against each other. Yeah, people on their own trying to survive, having to walk miles and miles through deserts and um, get on like to to overcrowded trains and just all sorts of uh, theft and all sorts of um, chaos, fighting, bedlam, right? Pure bedlam. Getting to see it from like a firsthand experience, I thought was really, really like eye opening. Yeah, I thought that was really well done. Uh, I always love, not always, but I do enjoy generally when they do historical fiction and weave that into the into the story. And this was such a, a huge event; it's monumental for the history of that continent. Uh, uh, and it's 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 just. Um, I don't know. It's something we haven't seen a whole lot of, too. So that just shining a light on a, a little bit of that part of history and, uh, you know, uh, illuminating that uh, aspect of ourselves uh, is is pretty it's pretty groundbreaking, I think. And it's, it's important that uh, shows like this, you know, explore stuff like that, that has ramifications till today. I mean, a lot of people I don't think realize that, you know, India used to be one big uh, country there with pa- Pakistan included and that, you know, that even like Bangladesh was part of Pakistan, I think until like the seventies and then became its own country. And like the, the, the history of these things has a profound effect on peoples and culture and to just uproot a, a huge segment of your population, divide them by, you know, religious boundaries. Uh, that's going to have ramifications for, for generations. And we've seen that play out in, in a number of different ways, you know, post World War Two, you know, we're, we're seeing it uh, with Israel in, in another way uh, till this day. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just something that plays out over the course of human history. And uh, it's a it's it's a cool thing to explore that in something like a Marvel show. Yeah. And they whenever they attempt to go into something that's real and that actually happened, you can tell they put a lot of respect into it, and they're yeah. they're trying to be very meticulous about the details. You know, they don't want to they don't want to screw with something yeah. like that up. So they do. Well, I will, I will say that accuracy isn't necessarily one hundred percent here. One thing I I noticed, I really loved that they started with the the newsreel at the beginning. I thought that yeah. was cool. It gave you a, a nice yeah. backstory. But also, like that was a totally inaccurate newsreel. That wasn't a newsreel. That was like, it was almost from like a woke kind of perspective, which would not yeah. have been the case at the no, time. No, it would have like been British more newsreel. propaganda. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it would have been more on the sides of the colonialist. But yeah, it was no. very much like from our perspective now. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it's more of like um from this from the side that they're trying to tell, they show the respect, right? In this case, right. they're showing the respect to the Muslim cultures. In Shang-Chi, they were showing more respect to, you know, uh, to, to Sean's side and to sh- the story mm-hmm. that he's being – that he's telling. So we're getting to see just sort of like a different perspective. Just like you were saying, when they open it, they're actually giving us more of a, a sympathetic look versus yeah. the story that we may have heard and a story that may have been whitewashed, you know? Right. So that, that's – Well, in a, way, in a way, this does kind of whitewash it in, yeah. in a sense because yeah. it absolves the – the British from their 
responsibility in a way right. it makes them seem like they were all, like all for pulling out of in India and, and that they were, um, you know, against this, this horrible partition, you know, the, the, the general people of, of Britain were against the partition. Whereas I think, you know, the propaganda of the times would have swayed people to be more, uh, jingoistic about, you know, mm -hmm. England and, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And I think that they probably wouldn't have been as, uh, as supportive of the Indian people at that time. There was one comment at the very end, and we'll get into our deep dive in just a second that, uh, made me chuckle a little bit because we we were thinking that Cameron was just kind of being an asshole to Bruno about not knowing yeah, his name and, and then he really didn't know his he really thought his name was Brian which is yeah. kind of a funny inside joke because how often do like white people say something like that like very like tongue in cheek to Someone from a different nationality, right? Like, oh, I just thought yeah. your name was, or like they screw up your name, right? Or we don't even take the the time to like pronounce someone's name right or really learn it. And I think it was kind of funny to see it on the flip side because you know it it it's just something that I I, I really it made me laugh too quite a bit at, at here because yeah. we kept saying like, oh, he he's definitely he knows it's it's Bruno. He did it. He did it. He really did it. So right. I thought yeah. I thought that was funny. And, uh, and in retrospect, it was it was believable too because like it's ve they're very close names and yes, once, if you if you thought it was that all along and you weren't corrected, it, you just wouldn't think twice about it. No. <laughs> so like I, I like the way the actor played it there too. Um, at the end, uh, he, it seemed very believable, and then Bruno like let him off the hook. It was a nice moment. Okay, cool. Let's uh get into our deep dive. Probably a few things we haven't hit, but we'll hit them along the way, no doubt about it. As we start. With the previously on, and it shows us everything from the first four episodes. And then episode five begins with the opening music from a Bollywood movie with a Hindi love song. This was a Bollywood movie that was based on the movie Wuthering Heights. So mm. it sort of sets the scene right away with this Hindi love song. We get the black and white title card of the Marvel Studios. And it's like we're watching a 1940s broadcast. Right off the bat with footage of events, major political figures, the narrator begins at the stroke of mid the midnight hour when the world sleeps, India will awake to light and freedom. With those words, on the eve of August the 15th, 1947, newly appointed Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru signed the beginning a signal the beginning of a new India. After almost 200 years of oppressive British rule, India is free. The dominion of Pakistan has been demarcated for Muslims, while India is a secular state with a Hindu majority. An unprecedented mass migration has begun. Millions of people make their way across borders, a consequence of a century-long British strategy of divide and rule. Riots and violent outbreaks have erupted across the country. People are fleeing for their lives. Bloody trains arrive to their destinations as homes are torched across the country to understand how this all began. We must go back to a pivotal moment in the Indian struggle for independence back in 1942. And we we get a lot of information there right off the bat. Yeah, and I, I like the way it was presented. It, like this newsreel format, um, they did the, like the sepia tone. They had even had it kind of skipping a little bit, like uh, out of sync with the frames. Um, I, I, the effect was really cool. And it, you know, harkened back to stuff they had done previously, like with WandaVision, they did like a black and white version, four by Miss, three. Miss Minutes almost a little bit in Loki. Yeah. Oh, great you know. point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's, uh, I love, and we've talked about this before, but when they're able to, 
deliver that exposition uh, and that backstory in a in a in a packaged way that feels uh, it's contextually like appropriate, right? But it's a it's packaged almost like separately from the context of the show uh, yeah, that we're watching. It's different than if know? it was just like Muniba saying this, right? Mm-hmm, right, or, exactly. Or, or Yusuf saying it. Like we've we've had cool scenes and moments with them reliving their past, but this. It's just different, right? You want to just, if every bit of information that you have, you want to maybe try to get it across differently and not have it be the same exact way over and over. So we kind of get bored and roll our eyes. This felt a little right. different. You were, you were like listening right off the bat. Spoonful of sugar. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> As uh, we then open up with a soldier chasing Aisha through the forest. Aisha is Kamala's grandmother, uh, Kamala's great grandmother, who. We know is the one that had the bangles And mm-hmm. Aisha actually stops as she's being chased Turns around and throws a knife at the soldier So we see yeah. that she's a badass right off the bat yeah. And we get the Miss Marvel title cards And now we're getting these title cards And they're in a bunch of the different languages To kind of represent the partition All of these different yeah. like sects We've got Urdu, Punjabi, Hindi, and it's kind of showing how the partition has impacted all of these different uh, groupings of people. And we are uh, then in, we are then pick up with uh, the marketplace. We see a man speaking what looks like a market. He's crowd listening to him. He's a very good speaker, very passionate. And he says, if the Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs of India want to end British rule, it's only because we want freedom peacefully without riots. However, don't consider our peaceful attitude as being weak. Gandhi has said that the time has come for us to do something. If we have to fight, we will fight, even if it means we give our life for the cause. This land is ours. We have given our blood to this land for thousands of years. We will take it back freedom. And as he's talking... And giving what looks like a little bit of a sermon Aisha is walking around the marketplace She notices this man She's she's hiding out from the soldiers who have been chasing her She's trying to kind of lay low And we actually see a bunch of these British soldiers walk into the village And interrupt what's going on here They try to send everyone back into their homes So we get a good sense right off the bat At what things are like for people living in this village they're not really getting to live their lives. They're not getting to to gather, to worship, and they are basically being they're being forced out of their homes because they're not getting to live and they're not getting to have freedoms in these particular areas. Right, right, and uh, again, you can just see the, like the the history there unfolding and how it uh, affects you know our you know our characters, the characters we've been following and their history and how that like. That has brought them to this point, like how eventually, you know, their family came to America from from there, Uh, because probably where they ended up from being pushed out of this situation uh, where they probably ended up in in Pakistan wasn't the best place either uh, for them. And and things needed to, you know, constantly evolve. So it was uh, definitely you could see the strife immediately. You could see the the soldiers, you know, causing the the pain on them. And you've got the the trampling of the roses as well, which is a a great symbolism for that. I keep coming back to the the some of the lines that Sana had in episode four, where she was explaining to Kamala what things have been like for her, where she talked about, you know, part of me is here 
part of me's here. Then there's this border that's like blood and tears along the border. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can you can actually see it here because you think about like where do you feel like you're really at home? Yeah. Generational yeah. trauma. This is the, their generational trauma is that they've been uprooted and that that's going to reverberate for generations. That's why I think it's important that we're following, you know, four generations, great grandma, grandma, yes. mother, daughter here, yes. uh, because it, they're all affected uh, by this. And it doesn't just, you know, it doesn't just stop, when, you know, no. when one person dies and it goes on to the next generation they're, they're carrying the weight and the burdens and you know all that history with them even if they don't know it so we see aisha sleeping under a tree um and she's actually on hassan's property on his farm she's kind of on the outskirts of his farm looks like she's trying to just kind of hide there and he we we see him poking her and waking her up and immediately she threatens him touch me and i'll break your leg and it's funny because she's trespassing on his property, you know, and and yeah. she's threatening him. He just comes up to like poker to see what she's doing. Be like, there's a person laying under your tree on your lawn, you know, like, touch me and I'll, I'll break your leg. And he's he laughs like I I got to say, I loved him and I loved them. The two of them. I thought they had a mm-hmm. really good chemistry. I thought they had a great energy together. Yeah. Um. Right off the bat, he laughs. He he like points to his leg. Because he has major leg in, uh, injuries and issues. I don't think they say exactly what has happened to him, but he walks with a cane and he can, it's very hard for him to get around. So he, mm-hmm. he laughs. He, he says, You mean this one? I don't lose, I don't use this leg any much. It's, uh, I don't use this uh, leg much anyway. It's okay. And he asks, What do you want? You know, you, I came over here to, to ask you to stop trampling on my roses, but from the looks of it, I think you, Need more help than I do Can I help you with anything She says no real quick She's been being standoffish You gotta kind of remember where she's coming from She's probably been alone for a while now Right on her own trying to hide She's got this bangle mm-hmm. She's not really sure if she's hiding from Is she hiding from the clandestines Is she hiding from the British soldiers Is she just <laughs> probably both. You know we don't yeah. we don't really know But we do know that she's You know she's not all that pleasant Initially but as Hassan yeah. starts to walk away, she softens up a little bit. She actually tells him, thank you. No, thank you. And then he offers her food and a place to rest if you if you need it. And she doesn't initially take the bait, but I think she just gets hungry later on, right? She has <laughs> she's got no like no real shelter. So it's right. it's late and she ends up taking him up on the offer. So we see her inside his home And Hassan gives her food um, He jokes because even when She gets in there she's like A little bit trepidatious About eating the food She uh, He says no human alive can resist The smell of fresh fried paranta And she starts to eat And he starts to ask her some questions But she doesn't really respond Do you have a name? Should I just call you hungry? Perhaps you can tell me where you're from I can say, oh, you're clearly not British and you're clearly not from this village. So what brings you to my doorstep? Said she likes roses. And then the the next moment when he speaks, she's like in love right off the bat. Yeah. He, she's just like staring at him longingly. And he just is like a really kind person. He just seems like yeah. very smart, 
genuine, well thought out, poetic. And, and he does. He uh, he quotes the Persian poet Rumi. He says, mm. you know, when I saw you out there, it reminded me of my favorite poem. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. What you seek is seeking you. There and she it is. Instantly, she instantly <laughs> says, Aisha, my name's Aisha. She's like in love with him. She wants to like be a part of it. And mm-hmm. we get the line. We get the, the quote from the poem. We know now why the inscription is on the bangle. And I I thought this was like a beautiful intro for these two. Like I, I really enjoy a lot of these two together. Yeah, well, like you said, they had great chemistry, and that's something that I felt with pretty much every actor they put on screen uh, for this series, with a few exceptions. I mean, honestly, episode four had them the most, but every actor and interaction has just had that spark to it. Uh, I think they just did a really great job in, in the casting rooms getting the right people uh, and fresh people, people that we haven't really seen in other projects, at least for, for me, these are all, you know, new faces for me. And uh, I, I love it. You know, I think that they, they found a lot of gems here. Just a uh, great work from these two as Hassan tells her that Aisha means she who lives a beautiful name. He introduces himself and we see these two falling in love. We see them together on the farm. Even, you know, having inside jokes, she got him a new cane. She said, I know you're pretty attached to that rotting tree branch, but I thought it might be nice to have a walking stick that actually helped you walk. He mm-hmm. jokes back to think when we first met, you threatened to break my leg. And she <laughs> joked, I changed my mind. And uh, then we see that she's pregnant and yeah. we see them on the farm and they just seem so happy. She says, thank you for making a home here for me. And we see baby Sana now growing up. Mm -hmm. Baby Sana in her crib as Aisha sings to her baby. And I'm sure you've probably done this too. I did too. uh, It seems kind of corny, but he just Mm -hmm. is sitting there watching her like play with the baby. And he's just like mesmerized by it, you know, and. It's like it just kind of feels real Like when you're a new dad mm-hmm. and you see that And you're like ah oh, that's my son And my daughter and my oh yeah. my god You know it's like you get these thoughts And like he I feel it when I'm watching him Just like just looking at her Um, It's, it's sad Because for just these 30 seconds to a minute Of screen time They seem so happy right. And it's like immediately followed By the partition And everything that happens next yeah. It's like Wow, they it for for a little time being they had a great life. Yeah, yeah, and it shows the disruption of colonialism there uh, very plainly. It shows you know people thriving and surviving, and you know having families growing, uh, and then the the interruption of you know uh, a col- colonial incursion. You could say um, this is an incursion on a a, a state level. Um, So I think that that's not accidental that they're exploring that theme along with, you know, these uh, supernatural themes of, you know, uh, universe incursions and realms and timelines and things like that. Uh, This is a a major shift in, in, you know, our timeline, so -hmm. to speak. uh, Yeah, the main timeline. So uh, it's a monumental thing that's happening and it's going to absolutely uproot and disrupt 
the lives of millions and millions of people. We hear uh, news broadcast um, as religious unrest sweeps across the country. The prime minister urges India's citizens to remain calm by saying our first and immediate objective must be to put an end to all internal strife and violence, which disfigure and degrade us and injure the cause of freedom. Yet uncertainty and fear have turned to bloodshed. And Hassan is he's kind of broken by what's happening here. He's he's trying and he's starting to really feel the effects of what's happening. He's basically being blackballed by the uh, by the community. He's there. No one's purchasing anything from him. His family Mm -hmm. is not able to make any money. They're they're really struggling. And and a next door neighbor or a, a, a neighbor actually comes over with some milk and some vegetables to help them out. And he. This felt very real too because you're the father You're the patriarch of a family You feel this responsibility for taking care of your family You feel like the weight is on you And you don't want charity or handouts from other people Right But I I actually loved what Rohan I believe was the the neighbor The man who came, uh, came over He said Hassan Remember what you have always told us We are one Do not play into the hands of the British Because this is what the British were trying to do is turn everybody against each other, right? They didn't right. want these people to rise up together, so they wanted to create enemies, make them all hate each other, fight, so that way they couldn't really organize. Hassan's still upset. Um, he said, no one has pushed you out of your home. I am the one who is stuck. No one's willing to buy flowers from me, nor will anyone sell milk to my wife. Why? Because I am Muslim. In Rohan the man understands Everyone's scared You know everyone's struggling But seeing Hassan A man who just a few moments ago Felt like he had it all together Felt like there was nothing that could get to him And now he's He's like he feels broken Yeah Yeah it's uh it, That's the the need for them to get up and, and, and go I mean this partition's happening And uh, they're being forced out of their lives It's a tragedy so as Aisha is saying goodbye to the neighbor, she actually notices something outside, but she doesn't want to bring much attention to it. In a few minutes later, she goes outside to investigate, and it's Najma. And Aisha walks up smiling to give Najma to, to greet Najma. And Najma is just looking scary. She's got a dark look yeah. on her face. She's got this scary vibe. But then yeah. she comes up and hugs Aisha. Um, she says, we've searched everywhere for years. Now that I found you, we can put our plan into action. And uh, Aisha kind of looks bothered, maybe a little upset. Yeah. Najma's she's confused. Cr- she's trying to keep a straight face, though. Yeah, I think right? She's trying she's... to poke her face it. Najma says, don't you want to go home? We can tell that Aisha does it. And Najma can understand, too. Najma knows that she was hiding from her. And... So there's this sort of weird dynamic and energy between the two of them, uh, but Aisha lies again. This is like this sounds like something you would have said to your parents, you know, when you're like 16. I, I mean, I, I hid the bangle for safekeeping. It's gonna take a, a few, right. it's gonna take a little time to get it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Najma is like, okay, cool. You have until tomorrow sundown, and then we all go home together. And this reminds me of like in a movie when somebody owes a bookie. And exactly. like, oh, yes. I got the money. I got the money. You're I just right. gotta get it from somebody. I gotta just. It's, in it's the account. same dynamic. Oh, you cool. got till so the just, end of the day. Oh, it's just at the, <laughs> it's just in the bank. Oh, cool. So just yeah, yeah. Get it. So go get it. Yeah. 
thing, right? So you didn't have time to stop at the bank. Go do it, you know, <laughs> right now. Um, that's a good point. As um, Aisha now knows that she needs to get out with her family. And for, it's it's twofold. She also needs to look around and see what's happening in the country. Her family is probably safer getting out of here. But she's also trying to get away from Najma and the clandestines. Not exactly sure what they will do trying to get the bangle back. And now Aisha has a family. She has a kid. She yeah. she wasn't in love with a kid the last time she was with the clandestines just trying to get back home. Now her whole world is different. She doesn't really home. This is home for her now. She has a home. And right. um, yeah, it's just the uh, everything for her has changed in, in just a little bit. So she packs up the family. Hassan doesn't want to leave. This is all I've ever known. My father built this house for us. What will I leave behind for my daughter? But Aisha, she she perks him up a little bit. She tries to make him feel better. She tries to comfort him. But at the same time, she's kind of lying because they need to get out of here for Najma yeah. and the clandestines too. It's not really all about this. There is a, a hidden meaning, at which Hassan, he's going to notice soon. I mean, we can all tell mm-hmm. when when it's your best friend or your partner or someone that you're really close with, someone in your family. You know when they're hiding something. And he can tell right yeah. off the bat that, that she's hiding something. Um, but he he's he's along for the ride. Like they're truly in love. They're truly like a team here because he he trusts her, even though he knows something is up. But Aisha does a great job. She yeah. tells him, No Muslims are safe, TK. You've seen what's happening. They're burning homes. People are dying. It's just too risky for us with Sana. We can take our memories. As long as we're together, we can build a home. And she tells him. What you seek is seeking you You taught me that So she prepares him She prepares Sana She actually looks at her daughter and says New adventures can be scary I need you to hold on to this for me This will keep you safe wherever you go So she gives her daughter the bangle And she readies the family Because they've got a They've got a long trek ahead yeah, So they're off I, I love um, that you pointed out That Hassan kind of suspects something because it also makes me think that he uh suspects not just that you know something is wrong like uh that najma is nefarious or something that aisha is running from something but does he suspect like her magic he says that in the earlier scene too um and obviously this has a double meaning but he says uh when he's watching uh her uh with her daughter he says uh she looks as you as though you are magic Yep. And that I, I truly feel that uh, that's a double meaning thing. And I wonder if even subconsciously Hassan uh, recognizes that magic in her as well. So they are on their way. We see Hassan, Aisha, Sana, and many others experiencing the partition, walking through darkness, torches to light the way, chaos all over the place. And as they get closer to Karachi Station, remember Hassan has. Has a hard time keeping up He uses a, a walking stick So yeah. he's not like someone who can jog And can quicken his pace He's at one slow pace And it's very yeah. difficult for him to move As Aisha's trying to hurry up He asks What are we actually running from? Who is the woman you were talking to last night? 
tell me the truth And she does She shows him the bangle Energy pulsating through it You always said I was magic You knew I was running from something But you never pushed And he said to her because I didn't care You chose us And that's what mattered Aisha's response is I'm still choosing you Whatever happens Make sure Sana gets on that train tonight Promise me Hassan And like you can feel That he adores her When he says Mm -hmm. that line to her Like I can feel his love For her And it's so sad Is Hassan reassures Aisha he kisses her hand And we see people climbing all over trains Absolute madness And she can sense yeah. now that she's being followed And she tells him You have to take Sana with you You have to trust me with this And she hands Aisha hands Sana to Hassan And she walks mm-hmm. off And that's it And they're gone They're separated That's the last they are together Yeah she, That's the point at which she sacrifices herself you know, Like separating herself at that point She knows that she needs that separation so that they don't get to Sana and they don't get to, to that bangle. Um, so at this point, she's you know fully aware that this is a, a self-sacrifice. Uh, you know, at least uh, most likely it's going to end end in that. We see Aisha now running off, and remember again, Hassan can't chase her. He can't. He can't walk. He, it's not like right. he can grab Sana and run after her. He can barely move. He has severe. Leg issues He's screaming for her Aisha Aisha and It's a sea of people too it, it, It's like it's it's so it's hard to even describe You know mm-hmm. because The like the I wonder what you know, the energy because these people Are all kind of fending for themselves But then at the same time yeah. these are like Your your people around You it's dark It's crazy there's people all Over on top of the trains trying to get On Imagine there's all sorts of crime and pickpocketing happening here And it's not like there's any policing of of anything whatsoever And poor baby Yeah yeah, Poor baby Sana What are we saying? She's like two here, you think? Yeah, I'd say so Two-ish years old? Like not not a baby baby, but too young to like really remember stuff Mm -hmm. uh, She can sort of speak, you know, and call out like little bits And she's crying And Hassan is trying to calm his daughter down And we see We're we're cutting back from Aisha To Sana and Hassan And Aisha runs into Najma who, dun, dun, dun. Yeah she's not Even <laughs> pretending to be smiley or happy This time nah. She tells Aisha that you turned your back on us Your family, your people Where is the bangle And as Aisha tries to explain Najma doesn't even give her a shot. She stabs her. Just mm. stabs her. And she Same looked, blade. Same blade that stabbed the bangle, I believe, in the previous yes, uh, episode. Yeah, and she looks evil. She mm-hmm. looks evil. Just the darkness around her face in her eyes. And it's these continued cuts from Aisha wounded after she was stabbed to Hassan and his daughter Sana. They're trying to make their way onto the train It becomes just very Chaotic and this whirlwind yeah. Of back and forth um, As Asan looks like he's finding a way Onto the train Poor Sana gets separated for him And now mm-hmm. this little baby girl Is alone 
standing, screaming, crying out, Ami, Ami. You can kind of hear her, but you can't see her because there's it's darkness. There's crowds all over. I thought they, I felt like anxious just watching it. Yeah. Because how it was done. And it was like, oh my, like you're, you're feeling it. You're definitely in there with her. Even, and it's one of those things where we know she's going to get saved. Like, right? Right, we know, right. We know the story of what's going to happen, but you do still feel like scared for this young, frightened little girl. Yeah, they really do a, a great job building the tension. And a lot of that's achieved with the editing. And, uh, and they, they did a great job with, you know, having a lot of extras and, or at least making it seem like that. Um, and really filling the frame with, with the people and making it feel claustrophobic and um, like, like you were going to be swallowed by this crowd almost. Now, Hassan is searching all over for young Sana in the bedlam. We hear the announcer say, all train compartments are full. Keep moving. And you just hear this crying child. Ami, Abu, Ami. As Aisha, wounded, bleeding from the, from the, the stomach, she's trying to stay alive. She pulls out a picture, and it's a picture of her. And her husband and her daughter And she grabs the bangle She says what you seek Is seeking you The bangle activates And we see Kamala She was able to summon Kamala And Kamala's kind of confused at the beginning She's like doesn't even know why she's there What is she doing how has she gone back in time Pushing through a crowd And Kamala Finds Aisha and when the two of them interact, I thought it was kind of interesting because Aisha's losing a lot of blood. She's about to die, right? Yeah. She's weakened. She's wounded. And she sees Kamala and she says to her, the bangle worked. Sana, it brought you back to me. Kamala interrupts her. I'm not Sana. But, I, you know, you read it back a few times. Mm-hmm. Aisha wasn't calling her Sana. No. It was like. She was telling her, go save Sauna. Right. Yeah. It was she yeah. couldn't get all of the words out. Like she is she this is what happens when you're tired. You can't even formulate full thoughts. She's dying. She can't even get these thoughts out, but she's trying to say it worked. Sauna, go save Sauna. You know, um, which yeah, it I, brought it, you back to me doesn't mean uh it brought you, you as in Sauna back to me, you as in Kamala back yes. in time to me. Yes. Exactly, yes. and it it's as if Aisha knows that Kamala is coming, and what is supposed yeah. to happen, right? It's it's this very it's like destiny. He who remains, yes, like like you know what's plotted out for you, and yeah, I I I loved it because Kamala's kind of confused, and and the first time you just sort of hear it or maybe read it, you might be confused too. But when you watch it a couple times, it becomes pretty apparent. Like, oh yeah, she's not. Saying this is Sana She's telling Kamala Like I needed you I called on you for help You're here you need to go save the day And uh, I, yeah I really liked it As Aisha lets her know They don't have much time Get Sana on the train And protect that bangle You have everything you need But Kamala's like No this isn't how it's supposed to go You, you have to save her you're supposed to save Nani. It's a story. Mm. We, this has been my family's story for generations. But no, that's it's not what's supposed to happen. And Aisha and Kamala embrace. 
And Aisha tells her it's okay She's okay Because you're here Which has multiple meanings Obviously right Kamala wouldn't be here If her grandma didn't make it to safety Right Right yeah (laughs) that's a good point Yeah it it has to work out because you know otherwise she would be like turning invisible like Marty McFly right now you know it, it, yeah I kept thinking the dun 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 yeah the picture yeah. the picture goes invisible uh, so Kamala she's scared she's sad and she's in tears but she knows that she has to search for her young sauna and she finds the young girl she picks up her grandmother the, the child version of her grandmother. And she carries sauna But she gets to a point Where she cannot continue through And Kamala Creates her hard The hard light platforms Using her powers for sauna To jump uh, to kind of Leap and get To her father get to Hassan One of these platforms Bursts open and so The light is like Sparkling and it looks Like these I'm shooting stars And it's almost at that that point Where young Sana seems to Kind of activate some of her own Noor powers Some of the Mm. own um, Light that she has inside of herself She's able to follow These stars and they kind of Lead her exactly like We have heard in the descriptions like a trail Right to her father And I love The view of Hassan Seeing this happen and knowing that this was Aisha, as you pointed out, he's yeah. sensed from the very beginning that there was something magical or unique, a little bit different about her. And now he sees that this has been passed down to his daughter or at least helped get his daughter to safety. So he's able to get her and those two embrace. There are things like this that I could see people have some gripes about, about how it all it seems like it happens very, very quickly. Like fast, it's all yes. kind of like a minute, 30 seconds I completely understand some of those Those criticisms It does seem like it mm-hmm. happens A lot of these things happen kind of quickly And unfortunately that, like we're saying That's kind of the pacing that you have to have When you have a, a show that you know is Kind of shoehorned into a six-part series Would it have been nicer to have them search for a little longer Maybe, maybe have it be heightened a bit But it, I mean, mm-hmm. it was like Kamala Finds Aisha Two seconds later she finds Sana Five seconds later Hassan finds the two of them We didn't really have a whole lot of Anxious moments at this point With with them ever being Worried if like Hassan was going to find her Or they were ever going to find each other Yeah and I I have to admit I took this scene Back immediately because I was like wait It already happened did I miss it Was that the trail of stars oh it was like not Literal stars it was the sparkle thing Got it okay Um, But I I think The pacing of it was a little bit jarring We we, I think we've come to expect For a story like that to unfold That would take a little bit longer I I don't know why I just think That's how it's been done maybe it Needed a little bit of room to breathe there But I also think it probably Was the economical choice to do It pretty uh, fast Economical not just in you know terms of Budget but in terms of Pacing uh, I think that The idea of this You know closed loop time travel thing Is something that uh, Could have been predicted I think we might have Talked about it briefly uh, that this was Could be an option I know it also breaks The the logic of the MCU so maybe People didn't see it, it coming 
but nevertheless, I, I do think that like if they spent too long on it, it would have felt like, okay, we get it already. So they're almost you. damned if you do damned if they don't, because it was, You're, yeah, it's I, don't, tricky. I don't know. It was a, it was a, it was a tough tightrope to, to walk and I don't know if they did it right, but yeah, and that's I, why I, I'm I not sure be- it was the worst way. That's why I don't want to be too hard on them for this particular point. But it is mm-hmm. – it's completely noticeable that it's all super quick in this yeah. this thing that's supposed to be this, like, really big story. It's all, like, boom, 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 boom. But you're absolutely right. On the flip side, I always try to look at it like, okay, but what what would have been a better way to do it? Yeah. And if you have a hard time getting there, then I try not to complain as much because I yeah, – maybe- <laughs> you know, if maybe this was closer to the best way. Uh, yeah, maybe there was a better way, but this was closer to the best way than yes. if they they made it too long. Yes, I agree. So, Sana Hassan embrace. He asks his daughter, "Where were you?" And as Kamala sees these two, she actually realizes that it was her all along. She even says, "It was me." Her family's <laughs> partition. It, it was me, you know, and uh, her family's partition story is really about her. She was, right. w- was you know, the, the reasoning. And Hassan, Sana, get away safely. And then Kamala's like, instantly transported back to modern times. It's like she, she, she fulfilled her purpose, and now she can go back home. And uh, she's yeah. back in the current era. And we see Najma. And Kareem there and all the clandestines and a portal opens lights all around energy all around. So the veil of Nora is opened. This was another thing that got some critiques. It's like, well, how did it open? Why did yeah. it open? And what did you think of sort of the look of this? Cause it's just kind of like <sighs> a bunch of lights flickering around. And yeah, I don't know how, how, <laughs> how great it looked cheap. Looked. I didn't like it. Super uh, cheap. As uh, it's, this whole it's scene, I had a problem. I didn't like this whole scene very much. This is another janky. one that felt jank quick, right? Like it was mm-hmm. it was almost the same sort of thing as what we were on the train, where it's like, okay, so the mm-hmm. portals opened in yeah. in like a a two minute stretch. We go from the portal opening to one of the clandestines trying to get into the portal. They instantly. Become stone. Yeah, it looks kind of like Terra Genesis. We can talk more about that in a second. From then, Agents of Shield. Yeah, yeah. And and then right after that, Najma tries to go in again, and she mm-hmm. has a like her baby face full circle character arc right. moment <laughs> all within like two minutes. It was like right, what? Less than that. Yeah. <laughs> You're again, right. I, I had to take it back because it just it all happened, and I'm like, how did we get here? It, it just it just seemed to unfold uh, in a way that like was kind of baffling and uh, indecipherable uh, to me, at least. Yeah. And it made me think that I, I am I not paying attention? Did I miss something? Here? I did the same exact. So I literally I, had to take it back twice, three times. I was like, "What did I miss?" Yeah. But no, we went straight from the veil opening. We cut to Muniba. She's she hasn't heard from Kamala, so we're seeing a scared mother here. Trying to find her daughter And <laughs> Grandma Sana walks in She says you know Magnum got lost once I had him microchipped And, <laughs> and Muniba says 
oh, Ami Magnum is a dog. Kamala is a girl. Okay, <laughs> trust me. If it was legal, I would do it. Yeah. I love her. I love Maneva. She comes off yeah, just she's like great. very real, um, very authentic. Yeah. And then and hey, again, you know that's what? the act. I think that's the actor there. Like uh, it is the the, acting, the, right? the writing's de- is decent for it, but the actor really sells it. Uh, she great. just she just feels like a mom, and she yeah she she's the little things where she kind of like. She saddens up in the middle of of some of the words that she says. You know, you can like hear yeah. the emotion in and in ju- some of her beats. And jumping uh, ahead a, a little please, bit, go ahead. When she has she has this great moment later when you know she finds out and they're reunited, and she finds out that Kamala has power, and there's this very subtle like level of excitement that she's mm-hmm. she's uh giving off that i yep. just thought was so great like she's got a lot of layers to her performances and that was a, a moment where i thought she really shined because I, I there's this her character is fascinating to dive into because she at at when finding out that her mom has been right all along telling her yeah. that there are some sort of powers in their family and and her daughter has this sort of starry-eyed look in her Two, I think there's this like she probably Muniba has a couple of emotions. One, like you said, excitement. Another, mm-hmm. like she probably feels a little guilty. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. So I, many layers. Like, oh my guilty. god, I waste all these years right. and moments and time with my mom, and then like you said, kind of like embarrassed. Oh, oh my gosh, but yeah. like my daughter has powers, you know. Like at the yeah. same time, like what does she do? It's it's all of these and, emotions. And relief that her mom is who she said she was. Not a crazy person. Not a crazy person that she's like, she probably wanted that to be true for so long, but was just yeah. like, you know, obviously it's not true. Well, we're not magic, mom. Like, you know, it's one of those things like she can never just reconcile that. And now, like, it's almost like her dreams have come true in, in a way. A line. Uh, and it, dreams that she didn't ever even came to reconcile with. Dreams that she yeah. never allowed herself to admit that she had. We'll get there in a, in a few, but she has the line yeah. that says, I, I could, I was not ready for what you needed. You know, I couldn't see what you wanted me to see, Mama. Right. And it was like, oh gosh, I, yeah, I really like it. And so now we know because we were wondering uh, in some of the first few episodes, does she know about the magic? Is she kind of hiding it to protect Kamala? No, we found out she didn't believe yeah. it. She was told right. about it. She just didn't believe it. She didn't want to embrace it. She knew her family told her, her mom told her, but she said, no, I'm not magic. Come on. I don't want to deal with any of this stuff. And, um, <laughs> she broke out the bangle once in a while. I, I know. know. I was going to say, <laughs> just let that thing, let that thing like, uh, emulate, uh, a little bit, you know, yeah. and sparkle and she'll, she'll, she'll actually see it. Um, yeah, but seeing is believing. At least the cousins <laughs> had a purpose here. Good old Oasis. Yes. <laughs> Good old Oasis. Told yeah. Muniba about uh about what how he can uh, how she might be able to find Kamala. Said if Kamala's phone is on your family plan, you can just log into your account and use the Find My Phone feature to see where she is. And she said, like spyware for parents. <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah. he says, uh, kind of. And uh, Muniba responds, Why am I only hearing about this right now? And she <laughs> loves she loves this. She can she can keep yeah. tabs on Kamala now. So a lot of people oh, like that line too. I I, I noticed uh, a lot of yeah. people pointed that out in their videos and things. Uh, and it it's a great um, detail too that later in the episode Kamala uses essentially the same phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's 
we we in a few minutes we're able to just kind of deduce quickly like oh yeah they they were tracking Kamala so that's why they found where she was they could just easily yeah. you know locate where she is and and go to her location yeah. the clandestines now think that with the veil open they can go home it's glowing golden and teal it looks like if i created some kind of a graphic on my phone you know like here with the, with that kind of a quality um and ria reaches up for the veil to enter it she turns to stone instantly they call it black crystalline statue and this mm. look is similar to terra genesis that you mentioned in agents of sea of shield she crumbles yeah. all over are they teasing us a little bit here with the Terra Genesis inhuman stuff, Agent of Steels? Is this kind of like a little Ralph Bonery thing where they just sort of <laughs> like want to give you a nod to possible stuff? I don't know, but this seemed like I, a process that we've we've seen before. Yeah, I suspect that this uh, the Jin magic, so to speak, the Nor powers are somehow adjacent. To uh, you know, teragenesis and the inhuman transformation. I think that they're somehow related in some I way, agree. and that's why that they visually connected them. Although uh, I, I should say that Marvel does get lazy sometimes with how they present powers. I mean, we just saw Doctor Strange where you had wizards battling, lining up to battle, and they were basically just shooting arrows at each other, uh, like energy arrows but still like it was it was not the most um creative original representation of like you know energy or power so sometimes they can repeat themselves and kind of fall on tropes and that might be what this is uh so it could be just a false positive here but kind of a I do safe, suspect, lazy way of doing it yeah maybe. but just because of kamala's you know terrigen uh roots or her inhuman roots so to speak like with uh uh, the comic side of things. I think that they're just tying together a deeper lore uh, that's going to still connect to Inhumans, uh, but that also will connect to the greater mythologies that they've also, you know, planted seeds for throughout the MCU. So now Kamala and Kareem, they're trying to clear out any bystanders. Um, she actually uses her hard light to shield them. She's trying to shoot bursts of hard light at the veil portal to kind of close it. But mm -hmm. nothing, nothing's really happening, and we see Najma get this sort of starry look in her eye. It's like uh, she's <laughs> she's walking towards it, like how they walk towards the uh, um, the the beams in Pennywise in the movie It, when uh -huh. like the, the kids yeah. get like transformed into the lights and they like walk at it. She's got this look, almost the same. She's walking at it and. Kamala's trying to tell her it's not going to work It's going to destroy everything Please help me close it Kamala's pleading with Najma Who thinks yeah. no, no, I can make it Kamala This is that Vader uh, moment At the end of uh, Return of the Jedi By the way This is yeah. For her character this is that moment where you know She redeems herself She's going to throw the Emperor you know, over the ledge And be good for two minutes Before she dies Like yeah. that, that's you know Story beat wise like that's what this is so as as soon as the name Cameron is mentioned, that seems like it mm. it starts to draw on some of the emotions from Najma. Kamala right. reminds her about Cameron. <laughs> I thought it was funny. She says, I don't have I left him behind. And Kamala says, Go back and get him. Like it was just, <laughs> um, that simple. Uh, she reminds her, all Aisha ever wanted was to be with her family, 
you took that from her. Please don't take that from Cameron too. And that makes Najma think. She says there is only one way I can close it. And as she goes towards the veil, she says the name Cameron and it basically sacrifices herself. She becomes stone and it transfers her powers and abilities over to her son as yeah. the veil closes. This is another thing that it just seems like there's a lot happening here. That and we, we don't, don't know how or why. Or like, why yeah, right? Yeah. Like, how does this happen? How do, why did the veil open? Why did it close? Did Najma yeah. know that by saying the name Cameron and transferring the powers over, she could close? They would close. I actually heard someone say they thought this is all a long con and that Najma mm. can work through Cameron now to try to open the veil back up or to try to do what they were trying to do all along because now mm. Cameron has powers because he is. Both a, a human, both a, a human and a clandestine, mm. he has powers now like Kamala that Najma didn't have, being only a clandestine. I don't know, but there, there's a lot here that mm-hmm. they seem to kind of brush through really quickly. Again, that was, it seemed like three different scenes of this episode all in a row. They were like, "Oh shit, we don't have much time. We gotta finish. We gotta get <laughs> right. out of here." You know, and it's like back to yeah. back to back, and then after that. They have this beautiful scene with like Kamala and her grandma and her mom that feels like it breathes a little bit. Right. right. It's, like, it's kind of strange. Yeah. It is. It is. Uh, I, I hope it's not architected that way or constructed that way, like just because of uh, budget. Like eh, we can afford to lock, lock off a camera inside of a, a room and have the two characters talk to each other. But these like special effects shots and stuff like that, we got to keep these very tight, and very short. Um I, I suspect that that probably does uh, affect it in, in, in a little bit. And uh, anytime you have, you know, constraints outside of like what you want the story to be, uh, generally that's not going to be something that that serves the end product. Uh, it, what you want to do is to serve the story always uh, as the main thing. So yep. if you're not starting there and then doing your best to to achieve that. Uh, and you, if you're working backwards from like a budget standpoint, sometimes that's just not going <laughs> to uh, come together very well. Uh, and I I worry that that's what's happening here. Now, we get a look at Cameron, his powers, uh, powers now kind of filling him up, energy running through him. Mm-hmm. And we cut back to Muniba and Sana. They find Kamala and they and as they walk up, Mu- Kamala's like using her powers. Muniba sees yeah. it. She says, What are you doing? And she's like, Are your hands hurt? Are you okay? I can't believe what's happening. Are you? And then she notices the boy right behind him, which is mm-hmm. so funny because right in the middle of all this, you just found out your daughter's like got powers. Your family has power. She's like a superhero. You're watching this. She maybe was dead. You couldn't find her. Who knows? You're. And then she, there's a boy back there, but that's what you you stopped to yeah. ask about. Who's that boy? Have you been spending time <laughs> with him? It just another thing that felt kind of kind yeah. of real, kind of cute, you know, just like on brand for her. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and Kareem says, uh, uh, "Salam alaikum, Auntie Nani." So he's like, "Hello." Yeah. And Muniba looks at her daughter and says, "So, y- you are that the light girl?" Mm-hmm. 
And when Kamala says, yeah, the look yeah, on Sana's face yeah. is so awesome. Yes. The, the yeah, look that the she has, she is just beaming. She says, our family is magical. Mooney, I told you so many times over the year. This is like this. I told you so. She yeah. is she is glowing. Honestly, it kind of gives me like goosebumps talking about it because it was that be- like sweet to see and that genuine. Like it makes me smile just thinking about the smile that Sana has, how happy she is. Like, yep, we've got powers. Told you, told you. Yeah. It's it's great. Yeah, it was honestly, it was a great, great moment. And again, just really buoyed by uh, fantastic and subtle human performances from all the the actors there. And I think um, you kind of touched on it, but when uh, when uh, Kamala's mom enters the room and she sees the the, uh, you know, Kamala using her powers, I think the, the shot is basically it holds on her. And we just hear her powers in the background and yep. see her reaction to it. I thought that was a great choice. And Kamala gives the picture to her grandmother, the one that she got from Aisha. It's a picture of young Sana with her mom, Aisha, and her dad, Hassan. And now she won't have to draw pictures from memory anymore. She has an actual picture. We heard the story in episode four that they lost everything. Remember what Hassan said? What will I be able to give to my daughter? We won't have anything to pass down to her. Now the memories. She has something. And watching Sana look at that picture, overcome with emotion, and and then Muniba, like all three of them at this this like little interact was one of my favorites of the whole series. It really was. And it, Muniba says the photograph, those lights. How did it happen? She's she's putting all these things together in her head. Like she's she just saw her daughter use the magic, but it's like no, that didn't happen. But no, right. no, she's like trying to make sense of it now, and it's like I it um it sort of like it sort of reminds me at the end of the movie the Santa Claus <laughs> um <laughs> when when they like just. The, they just come to terms with the fact that he is Santa Claus, you know, and a couple right. of and it's so funny. The one like um, the stepdad is like Judge Reinhold. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He's like, but he got in a sleigh. There's no way. You know, he's like talking to himself about it. He's actually Santa. You know, it's sort of like it's yeah. kind of like this moment here where um, I-, I loved it. I loved uh, all of all of this as Sauna says, I don't know what happened, but I'd like to think two people fell in love and created something, something much bigger than either of them could have ever created alone. Sorry, that was a little cheesy for me. It was super, <laughs> not, that line not, not a big fan of that line. Well, I don't know what, like, it doesn't, that line just doesn't do a whole lot for me. Like, <laughs> it just felt like a writer wrote that line. I know, <laughs> like, you were, like, we were fine right where we are, where we yeah. were, like, just... Two seconds before, you could have cut it yeah. right there. They hug. Shall we go home now? Kamala says one more thing. I, I, uh, I'll be right back. So she goes to say bye to Kareem, and she uh, says, "I'm sure a Pakistani goodbye is the opposite of an Irish one. Overstay your welcome, and then ask if you could take home food." Um, I like that. That's a good joke. <laughs> it was pretty good. It was good. And Kareem let her know, "Hey, I, I just wanted to give you some time with your family, and 
They basically have a, a little goodbye. He tells her he would be really proud of you, Waleed. And she says, thank you for everything. Kareem uh, lets her know that if she ever needs help, he's just a call away. Which can't be a coincidence, right? Like we said, there's got to be a season two. Yeah, We'll see him back and she has to ask him to come and help her with some problem that she has in New Jersey or in uh, in America. And, uh, like the actor was literally saying, like, yeah, call my agents. Okay, yeah. I said, need this job. Season two. This. You- <laughs> Although the U.S. government may or may not have yeah. several warrants out for my arrest. So um, right. he, uh, he does give a, a plug there. And then he gives... He gives her one of the red dagger scarves Said just in case for you So he's um, Kamala now What we're we're seeing We're actually seeing her Gaining pieces to put together Her costume Yep. Right and I mean Scarf. I'm sure That's a big people, one If you're watching this you've probably already gone there in your head But we've got some fabric From Waleed we got the de- We got the scarf here We've got the bangle and mask we know that the mask from Bruno, the necklace that her mom finds right after she, yeah. her on the ground, it's broken. And she says, oh, this now is now shaped like a lightning bolt. Necklace. And mm. we got to We got to have the moment where Kamala's mom makes her makes the costume. Yes. Before, right. And she Full puts circle. it on like she yeah. wouldn't do at the Venture Con. She's we got to have that moment. Got to have it. Yeah. As, uh, That'd be a great moment of catharsis and, you know, full circle coming, you know, to fruition for both Kamala and her mom, uh, yes. because, you know, uh, Muniba, she'll she'll come to terms with, you know, allowing her, her daughter to be her own person and mm-hmm. to, you know, do the things that she loves. You know, she was trying to restrict that her her Captain Marvel costume in the first episode was completely reasonable, you know, but she was she was over controlling about it. Yeah, there was nothing right. revealing or or you would have been able to wear that at school. You know, like nobody would have told right, you exactly. like you can't wear that. So it'll be a I nice really, conclusion of both their arcs, I, I feel. It'll put a pull a, a good bow on it for both of them. Yeah. As uh we head back home and it's another very real scene of like looking at childhood photos. Like you're at your grandma's house and you're looking at pictures of your mom when she was a kid. And I, I love how Muniba looks right smack out of the 80s. She's got the big hair. Yeah. She's got like sparkly, shiny stuff that she's wearing, like shimmery gold. And yeah. they tell like us a that Bon Jovi fan. <laughs> I mean, I my I've got pictures of my mom wearing the exact same kind of stuff that she's <laughs> that she's wearing here it, it's really funny and uh, sauna tells us that muniba was quite the rebel she ran away when she was 17 to follow that star um bruce springfield and <sighs> and now the energy is just shifted instead of there being this yeah. like kind of tension between muniba and sauna there's they're laughing they're joking you know yeah. they're feels like a finale yeah, it does. It does. She she says, no, mama, don't put those lies in my daughter's head. It was Bon Jovi. And she starts laughing, <laughs> you know, and Kamala's like, what? Why have I never heard any of this? Um, there it is. The line kind of call, call back to that other line that her yeah. mom said earlier. Yeah. And her mom says, because you never asked, but your father and I had a lot of adventures. But I will tell you, none of them have been as thrilling as being your mother. 
And recently, if I've been holding on really tight, it's because I'm not ready to let you go. She begins mm. to tear up a little bit. And yeah. it it leads her mom to feeling sad because Sana mm. says, I didn't hold on to you tight enough, Mooney. Oh. And then that, and then I actually think it's really sweet how Muniba calls her her mommy. She yeah. says it back to Sana. It's just like a small little thing, but she says, No, mommy, that's not true. I mm-hmm. couldn't see what you needed me to see. I'm sorry. Wow. That was yeah. like all of these years, all of the stuff that she had thought her mom was crazy. People telling her, your mom's insane. She's got all these stories. Who knows what happened? They shunned her. She was alone. She wasn't part of the community. And she, her mom was right all along. And now I, I, there's probably this guilt, but I think she's it's like a weight lifted off her shoulders almost for all of them. They feel yeah. like they're not carrying this weight anymore. True. Yeah. And it, it really does feel like this is like a post catharsis moment, like that this is an epilogue for a finale in this yes. scene. So it, it's strange that we still have another episode here. I know. But I guess I they know. do reset things a little bit with with uh, uh, Bruno and Kareem. Uh, and, with Cameron. Uh, yeah. And damage yeah. control. Or uh, yeah, sorry, with Cameron. Cameron and Kareem are very easy to uh, <laughs> confuse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're both the love interest of uh, Kamala. So I'll give you a mulligan on that one to uh, appreciate that. Appreciate that. TK. <laughs> As, uh, we uh, we then hear from Sauna. She says. Perhaps this was the journey I was intended to take, one that would bring me back to you. All three of the uh, generations hug, Sana, Muniba, and Kamala. So we have, like you said, that feels like their moments. Like, oh, okay, their story's done. But we we head back to New Jersey at the Circle Q liquor store. And Cameron shows up, and he asks Bruto for help. And it's like he he asks him like in the back of by the by the trash can. It's like all dark and super creepy. It's like somebody was gonna attack him. So Bruno, being the nice guy that he is, he lets Cameron come inside. Cameron's kind of nervous. One, he's alone without his mom and his family, like the people that are there. And two, he's being followed. And then. He makes a couple jokes about some of the posters and stuff in Bruno's room that are just like off. It's really funny. There's like a Tesla poster, mm. and he talks about being a fan of cars, you know. And he, there's a there's a poster of uh like yeah. a joke a, a joke about one of the um the elements, and it's like an argon joke. And he you know he cracks uh he cracks one. So we just we see that these are two guys that are different. They wouldn't have hung out yeah in high school in real life. Like they would not have been friends. Here, if they didn't have something bringing them together, but yeah, a little bit of a jock geek uh, dynamic here at play. But Cameron asks, he can feel the awkwardness. He says, "Hey, can we just restart? Because this is really weird. It's nice to meet you. I'm Cameron." And Bruno introduces himself. He says, "Bruno," and I think this is where like their relationship really starts now, right? Like yeah. now, he goes, "Oh my god, I genuinely thought your name was Brian this whole time." <laughs> Yeah. And I love Bruno's line goes like, "Oh no, I hadn't noticed the first four times." <laughs> so they're they're getting past this now. There is actually there isn't this hate between the two of these guys. There's a little jealousy from Bruno to Cameron, but there really isn't anything from Cameron directed towards Bruno. He he doesn't have any mm-hmm. hatred for him. He doesn't really have any reason not to like Bruno. 
Yeah, I think he's unaware that like Bruno was ever even like a threat to him in terms totally of like, agree. A, a romantic interest. I think he's just totally oblivious to that. He thinks he's awesome. Like he's got abs getting out of the pool. Uh-huh. You, you know, he's got superpower nor magic. Uh, and <laughs> I, I think he's just like, you know, one of those guys who just doesn't like question his own, um, you know, his, his own value at, at all. And was never even a little bit threatened by Bruno. No. And so it, it to, to him, he, he held no negative feelings towards Bruno, even though Bruno was like, immediately insanely jealous of him now bruno lets cameron know hey we'll be fine here and we can figure out where to go tomorrow cameron interrupts him no i need to stay here so my mom knows where to find me and bruno chimes back she left you to fend for yourself what makes you think she's coming back is cameron says she wouldn't leave me behind like some kind of orphan you don't get it but he does he says my parents aren't around anymore either So I, I thought this was You know we, we don't really know Bruno's setup He he mentions yeah. right afterward My uh, my Nona's out of town But we don't understand We don't you know know what happened to his parents Or what happened to his family And he This feels like something That he and Bruno can share Together now They can have a common bond Over you know being Young boys here who don't really have their parents to help them or their parents not being around. I could see this being something that, you know, bonds them now moving forward. Absolutely. That, that having that in common, I think, um, already as soon as they say it, I think it instantly bonds them to a a, Mm -hmm. a degree or at least shifts the dynamic of their relationship. Oh, I'm sorry. Like he, because he mentions, you know, it's, it's one of those things where he says, you don't get it. But I do get it. Oh, right. Okay, so I you do get it. You're you don't have parents. It's like yeah. oh, he he realizes instantly, and and as Bruno, as soon as Bruno mentions it, mentions damage control. So I'm not going to yeah. leave you to deal with damage control. We see a drone pop up. Yeah, it's Good like timing. when you're it's like when you're uh, <laughs> at home and you're like, God, I'm hungry. I could use some Taco Bell. And then you, <laughs> first thing you see is an ad for Taco Bell on Facebook right. or whatever, you know, on your phone. And it's like, that's yeah. kind of a coincidence. Um, <laughs> My so, ears are burning right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, but Bruno is so nice. He says, we'll just stay here. We'll figure it out. I don't know if you're hungry, but my Nona's out of town. She left some lasagna in the fridge. But Cameron sees the drone and he uses his powers to shoot at it. And so it like knocks his drone out of the air. There's a big explosion underneath and Bruno says, Whoa, you have powers too. So they hit the deck after this explosion. They've been followed by damage control. And we have one episode left. We had to get back to New Jersey. And the question we really ask here though, now is like, who are the bad guys in same, like yeah, it seems like damage, damage control, control at least for season bad, one. Yeah, you know, like are they the in the finale here? Are they the ones that we're escaping from? It mm-hmm. th- this episode wasn't perfect. It was no. some highs and some lows. Some of the lows we definitely Agreed. critique. They felt like there were three or four major scenes that they maybe like you know press that simulate button. I say yada 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 right through. <laughs> they just didn't. Give us enough Um, Some of the time travel stuff We can roll our eyes at 
But it feels like we keep pointing out and and both of us love a lot of the acting, the performances when it's yeah. when when this series is being like more low level, that's when I really like it. I think when yeah. it starts to try to like save the world where it gets a right. little like a little much for me, I'm okay with this being a 16-year-old girl dealing with like a, you know, her powers and and finding out about her family and it doesn't yeah. have to necessarily be like the entire world's going to end if this portal is opened, you know, type thing. That's where I got lost a little bit through these first five episodes. They bring me right yeah. back every time I have Kamala and Sana and Muniba, who I absolutely love. Sure. I think she's great, she's great, great character. And great she's actor. so like real. Yeah. Um, and then right, like the moment we get back to New Jersey with Bruno and Cameron, yeah. I'm like right back in again. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm invested again. There were just a few things that took me out. And I'm I'm very curious what they do in this last episode. Like you said, it felt like with Kamala and the family, their story kind of had a nice bow mm-hmm. to it. Does she just sort of come to help True. them? What exactly are they going to be doing in episode five? You know? Yeah, because you know they episode six, right? But they they've established that you know damage control is this threat. But I, I don't feel this sense of like at the end of that episode of like, oh shit, what's going to happen next? Yeah, because I, I honestly don't. I, 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 there's no immediate danger. like danger or threat that's been articulated uh, to us. Like I know damage control exists, and apparently they are. They're I don't know. They're they're a threat in some <laughs> sense, but like in what sense? I'm not sure what they're. Are they going to kill Kamala? Do they want to like subdue and just like put her lock her up? Do they want to you know cure? these you know powered individuals like i i don't i don't know what their end game is or what their goal is or like even just how bad they are all i sense from them is that they're you know a bureaucratic government uh institution that's probably a little bit you know fascistic or a little bit too on the side of like a police state uh and you know obviously we we would want to resist that for a number of reasons but as to how it specifically targets and affects, uh, you know, Kamala and her family and these characters, that's a little bit vague to me. I mean, we just saw the, the drone obviously following them, but like, what was that drone going to do? Was that drone going to kill them? Was that going to really going to be interrogated? Like, I just don't know what really is going yeah. on with that. I agree. What level are we dealing with here? Are is like, you know. And 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 maybe on multiple levels, is someone like Deaver a bad version of mm-hmm. the DO, the the damage control? Is the other agent maybe <clears throat> maybe someone who he has a job to do, but I could see Deaver being like the bad one, right? Going like the yeah. bad cop because the, if you think about it, like they have a legitimate job to do, right? Like it makes sense right. for there to be an organization called Damage Control to come in right. to try to keep some of this stuff. Out of the public to try to clean a lot of this stuff up So they're not like a bad They're, they're not like an evil organization from, Not necessarily no. from, from their, I mean from their origin Right, their purpose right. Doesn't feel like it would be evil But mm-hmm. D, there's The power though, Deaver. it could yeah, be corrupt With Deaver, she's always seemed like she was You know, oh, yeah. racist And she's yeah. never come off Positive whatsoever In any sense the other guy who's played sort of the good cop, bad cop in Spider-Man right. 2, I could see him sensitive. having 
Yeah, I could see him actually having like a he's a little bit hardened, but you right. could see him if 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 needed to make a decision between good and bad, I feel like he would probably go to the good decision, right? Be on the right side. Um I don't feel that way about some of the others there and so maybe it is damage control that's been infiltrated. Maybe there's more to them. Maybe it is maybe scrolls. Maybe Scrolls. Maybe one of those damage control agents is an undercover scroll, good or bad, uh, and there's some greater thing going on behind the behind the uh, the curtain here. I mean, we still have to kind of follow up on whatever the hell um, Nick Fury has been doing off planet, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that ties directly into you know Captain Marvel, which ties into Ms. Marvel. Obviously, are we going to get that Ms. or that Captain Marvel uh, cameo in Ms. Marvel? Could we maybe even see Nick Fury? Uh, because, like I said, he he's probably tied into, you know, the Marvels at some point. I mean, Nick Fury's tied into everything in the MCU, really. Um, he, and then what he about uh, in the, at the end of Iron Man one? So what about our be. boy Jon Snow, who uh, uh, Black right. Knight, right? He's Black got all Knight, these yeah. artifacts. Does the Bengal and or or the other Bengals or do they have do they share to do? history? Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe their origins are are from a similar technology, a similar alien technology, or like warring alien technologies that have had converged on Earth long ago. Uh, who knows? Uh, I I know that they've planted all these seeds, and they have a lot of options to to choose from, though. And I I suspect that some of those seeds have long uh, long been planned to tie together, you know, yeah. down the line, whether to be this seed. This series or to, you know, future movies and series. But, you know, there definitely is something in the works. So that's a greater uh, picture. And and I think that was why some of our critiques are valid is because we know they have these big plans. And when they do it right, it's so fantastic the way that everyone intertwines and like just thinking about like feats like in Infinity War and Invent and Endgame. You know, like yeah. having to accomplish that or Spider-Man, No Way Home with all of these different characters from different movies and eras and genres and and how they can make it work. That it's a little disappointing when, you know, they come through and, and like some yeah. time Kamala just shows back up in time and we don't really know why. After right. they explain this whole thing in Endgame and then they explained all about the TVA and Branches and Loki and we just had the multiverse of madness it, it's because right, of what yeah. you're saying like we know when they do it well they do it so damn well that it's hard yeah. not to notice when it feels like they haven't put that effort into everything or or some things yeah. to feel important i think with the just sheer size and scope of this the whole mcu that there's a lot of tangential you know stories filler things that are not going to weave as um neatly as we'd like them to uh, into yes. the overall fabric of the story. And I think we're going to see more and more. The more we add to this world, we're going to see contradictions galore. And I think that's just the nature of the game because it's it's so unwieldy for you know one studio, one producer to just manage all these different uh, you know projects. And uh, t- truth be told, he's not managing all those different projects. He's got managers that work on those projects and are in control of those stories and he's trying to shepherd them all together and make them fit and guide them and you know kind of put up roadblocks and barriers to keep them you know from from contradicting each other but still stuff's going to fall through the cracks Uh, that's an inevitability when you're working on on this scale and at this pace i Mm -hmm. think the pacing is the other thing because the scale 
is doable if you give yourself time. I mean, you're looking at James Cameron making Avatar 2. This has been a 10-year process. People have been shitting on him all along, saying, we don't care about Avatar anymore, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and then he breaks out footage from it, and all of a sudden the the tide starts to turn. People go, oh, yeah, this is going to be something. Like, that, yeah. that somebody put everything into this. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I need to watch this. And sometimes the MCU feels like that. But more and more recently, it feels like let's throw spaghetti against the wall and see which noodles stick. And that is the the downside and, of this, and this what's whole a, thing. So what's a bummer so a is that it's the beginning parts of all of these things that are the the best too, like right. the most well <laughs> yeah. done. Because then they they each time we're like, oh, awesome, like a real, and it's like the middle to the end that gets sped through, and yeah, um, landing. Yeah, and yeah. so we like I can understand, like you said, you understand why. Like, we're not stupid. These are all shows and movies that make a ton of money. You have timelines, actual real life timelines, right? This has to be done by this point in order to release yeah. here, or these Deadlines. actors yeah. only have this schedule, right? We these That's actors the big have, one. right to do this at this point, and then another movie there, and we have to do this now because we can't have them be older two years from now, right? They That's have to the biggest like constraint. This. You that know? is on. That's the biggest uh, constraint is to have the the same actors doing the same roles for so many years across so many projects, and the schedule of that, and then what they need to do in order to get them to 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 make that schedule work. Sometimes it's have the actors not even in the same room, and they're shooting on green screens, and all this stuff being stitched together. It just adds adds a lot of uh, adds a lot of seams that mm-hmm. you start to see. You start to see those themes. It's not a seamless experience, uh, the end result, uh, because of it, because it's so piecemealed. And so kind of a couple thoughts as we finish up. We we know that it's we can do that, right? As fans, mm-hmm. we should we should tell us we should tell ourselves that and understand and be a little bit forgiving, but just a little bit, right? I don't think we as fans sure. should just yeah. like completely Give the benefit of the doubt for everything And just go oh okay well there's so much going on We're gonna just be okay with it No we we still want I think the reaction And the responses and the fact That you and me do a show like this right And Mm -hmm. that's what Marvel wants That's what the MCU wants They don't want people not to care They don't want people not not caring about what's Going on and critiquing things (laughs) and so I do They hear this stuff and And I do think that they they will try moving forward and they will continue to try to not have the hiccups. They're going to be inevitable. But I love that, like yeah. Eric on New Rockstars is like calling them out. You know, Dude, and, like those are those are the people. That, and and those are what's great is like he gets the screeners from these people because they know. But he's telling them, hey, look, we're going to do this, but don't ask us to do mm-hmm. all the work for you here, right? Like you know, like it's, right. give, give us a little bit more. And I think, I think. They will notice that and see that And maybe just tr- Hopefully it'll just continue to remind them Throughout that Movies, TV, whatever the content yeah. is We gotta try to have like Everything doesn't have to be Action wall to wall right? It doesn't have to be right. Incredible fight scenes For six episodes of a, of a series They can tell yeah. story Like a lot of the stuff that they've told in this series, like I said, that, that was probably the easiest stuff for them to do was the stuff that hit home. Like just the actors yeah. acting, just like them yeah. being themselves. So 
Well, you can be gripped by a story with zero supernatural sci-fi or you know power elements. I love movies. You know what I'm and saying? And that's when like, they're the best. That's when the, I, I love when the all MCU kinds is of the best. When it's yes. not when it's about the regular people, and then the superpowers and the superhero stuff is is the is the icing on the cake. It's the frosting, right? You know, it, yeah. Every story, and I I, re- I repeat this over and over. Every story is about the characters, and that's sort of one of the problems that yeah. like for example like the Star Wars prequels have you know a lot mm-hmm. of people didn't like the characters there the writing sort of rigid it was more an instance mm-hmm. where it's like oh look we've got all this new technology we've got all these new toys like let's make it this like visually awesome and show you all these right. things whereas i want to see cool stuff i want to see visual awesome cgi but you have to yeah. care about it First, yeah, it's empty. Yeah. Otherwise, it's empty. I would, I would get a, a 10x experience. You know, just watching a gripping family drama or comedy or just a, something, whatever the 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 genre of it. But if it's if it's human and it makes me think and feel and takes me on a little bit of a journey and makes me reflect on my own experiences in my life and maybe even look at them a little bit differently, that that's more than I could ask for in, in, in a story. Now, if you give me that. Plus, you know, some some extra worldly things, some, you know, supernatural elements, something that I could never see in my real life. Uh, that becomes something a little bit more even transcendent. Uh, uh, but it's not necessary. It's like icing on the cake. You know, I could have just as good uh, of a rich experience and oftentimes do have a more rich experience watching, you know, a, 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 just a great film. Uh, over something that's like this genre piece of entertainment, uh, like yep. like the Marvel movies. I love these Marvel movies. I, I do, uh, but you it's it can't just be style over substance. Not that they're mo- mostly style, but I mean it can't be special effects for mm-hmm. the sake of special effects. No. Uh, no. And then recently, the special effects haven't been that good. That's A lot of the them problem. look dog if, shit. Yeah. So what are we? What do we have? If you're <laughs> leaning on that, and they're not the quality that they were. It's it's always right. easier to lean on the characters and the story that you're telling. And so every time they got back to Muniba, Kamala, Sana, when they got back to Bruno and Cameron, I like that. Yeah. And hell, yeah. I mean, we didn't get any check-ins at all with uh with Nakia still right. not talking with yeah. Kamala. So that's definitely gotta be something that she resolves in episode yeah. six. Maybe yeah, goes and definitely. gets some help from her. But I I feel I'm I'm curious, but I feel better now than I did last week. Right. Um coming strangely, out of this. Yeah. Strangely. I think, the, I think it set the bar so low last week that like that, any improvement felt really relieving. <laughs> yeah, it's and like a lot of the problems this week again were like technical stuff, not yeah. as much about the story and the people. And yeah. I look forward to putting a nice bow on it with you, TK. Yeah. Like we've got a lot. As I said, uh, coming up, we've got Thor next uh, gonna, next week. Finishing up this weekend, it's Marvel. Yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm going to go see Thor. So we'll we'll talk Thor in a few weeks. We'll uh, we'll give ourselves mm-hmm. an opportunity to watch that a couple times and uh, and get all of our our thoughts together. And then following that, we go right into She Hulk, which is yeah. I think just like a month away, like six weeks, not even six weeks away. So yeah, we'll have one more Miss Marvel. We'll have a Thor, and then we'll be right on into uh, to She Hulk. Not long after that. So much going on in the uh, yeah. the MCU in the world of Marvel. We just hope that they can continue to keep it churning at a high level, yeah. as yeah. Uh, you know, some ups, some downs, 
but some major positives for Miss Marvel. I like the character. I Absolutely. like the story that they're telling, and I'll be excited Great to see representation. Her. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be excited to see her pop up in uh, in future stuff. Uh, any final thoughts before Same. we get out of here, buddy? Uh, I'm just uh, I'm just happy that uh, it's it's better than last week. That's uh, that's what I'll say. I can hear, I was gonna say, to I could hear it episode. in your voice last week. I was almost yeah. scared to text you the other day. <laughs> to be like, are we okay? I hear you. I hear you. Weekend? Are we on? <laughs> I can hear it in your voice. Uh, I'm glad that we uh, I'm glad that we both felt like there the it just felt like last week the positives weren't quite as high notes, right? This, this, yeah. At, like the high notes felt very high. I loved a lot of the early stuff. Aisha Hassan, their chemistry. I loved the stuff between the the Kamala and the women in her family with with Muniba, with Sana. Um, I can I can get through Lavelle not looking great, or maybe the end of the Trail of Stars. Them getting through that a little quickly, because like we said, let's counter it. What would the flip side be? Um, so let's mm-hmm. let's revisit uh, New Jersey. We'll see if Kamala yeah. can help Bruno and Cameron. If Kamala can get things all figured out with Nokia, and uh, looks like Kamala and Muniba are there. I wonder if. Do you think Muniba does anything? Do you think Muniba has any powers? Yes. Do we ever see her yes. get involved and like do something to help Kamala? Because I'm starting to think so now too. Give her a bangle, right? Give, Give her a bangle. She's got to be there to save the day at some point. Yeah. Throw another bangle yeah. in there for Muniba. Um, we are going to put a, our finishing touches on Miss mm-hmm. Marvel next week. We'll talk about the season one finale because it feels like we're going to get a season two. We know that this character will be showing up all over the place uh, in the future. Kamala and uh, Kamala now heading back to New Jersey. TK, my friend. Thank you so much. It's always Thank a pleasure. You. Love uh, getting through episode five with you. And now we'll finish up Miss Marvel next week. Don't go anywhere, folks. We've got a lot more to come on this episode. That's what G said. Make sure to give Tim a follow at Tim is not funny on Twitter and on Instagram. Ice Cream Fire is the music project. Check them out. Download them anywhere you get your music. Buddy, uh, enjoy Thor uh, and uh, text me. Let me know some of your early thoughts about it. I'll do the same when I get the chance to uh, to check it out in the next few days. Will do. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, uh, Tim Kelly. We're so lucky to have Tim here. One of the uh, the the heart and souls of that's what G <laughs> said podcast. TK helping us out talking Marvel and MCU each and every week. Thank you. Hey, a lot more positive after episode five from me and TK. We're excited. We're ready to rock for the finale of season one, Miss Marvel. So we'll get you the deep dive on that one next. Uh, And then we'll also have some Thor coming up for you in the next few weeks. We'll take a a look at Thor Love and Thunder. We're going to finish up this episode with the old wrestling rewatch. Andrew Champagne, Darren Zocali, join me for a deep dive into WWF Over the Edge 1998. The Attitude Era hadn't really quite found its footing. There's a lot of future stars on this show, but the undercard is not great. The main event is fantastic. It's awesome. It is so much fun. The crowd is involved. They're into it from the get-go. It's Stone Cold Steve Austin at just about the height of his powers. It was great fun to rewatch WWF Over the Edge 1998 with Andrew and Darren. Oh, yeah. Oh, wrestling rewatch. 
with Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali. <laughs> the old wrestling rewatch is back. You can hear the uh, the cops are looking for me. They're out. They're trying to find me. There's a helicopter overhead. It's not Chainsaw Charlie, Terry Funk, as uh, Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali are back, and we're going to talk about a very interesting show in the middle of 1998. Is DZ? This is a a really kind of crazy time when you think about it. A year before, the entire company was really built around Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. And these were the two guys that you figured in the middle of 1997, they're signing Brett to a 20-year deal. Uh, Shawn Michaels looks like it's going to be him and Brett for years to come. All of a sudden, after WrestleMania in 1998, Shawn Michaels is gone. Brett Hart had just left in November of 97, and things completely change. So we're not quite to the real, real... Boom period for WWF They're not there yet You could see the these guys were about a year or so away Austin was over for sure But The Rock wasn't quite there yet And the next tier of stars They hadn't really raised themselves up to the level So I think we had an awesome main event This is one of my favorite matches personally It's so much fun There's a lot of stuff going on The rest of the show isn't very good But the crowd is really nuts for a lot of it yeah, I you know, going back, my my one question was, did we really have to watch the first two hours and eighteen minutes of this show? Mine because, too, mine too. Because it <laughs> no, it is it is it is tough, tough to watch. Uh, I mean, the highlight well, is literally Sonny standing on the apron before the start of the first match. Um, and what's know, funny? It, not joking. The second best match on this card is Kai and Ty versus JB. Uh, Versus Bradshaw and Taka That was, I had like the most fun in that match Because I wasn't really expecting anything from it And some of those guys could fly around Other yeah. than that, it, it's just a little disappointing With, I mean, there's just nothing even on paper That you look at and we're that excited for And a couple things were more angles yep. With all of that being said Damn, this crowd was still invested In a lot of the crap they were throwing at the wall here Yeah, well, my my second question was how in the world was WWF at this point turning the tables on the ratings war with WCW when this is the undercard to, to a pay-per-view? And the answer is, of course, literally because of Stone Cold and Mr. McMahon and everything that, you know, all the fallout after the Montreal Screwjob and the creation of the Mr. McMahon character. But, man, Andrew, when you go through what else is going on in this company at the time, it is it is tough to look back at this and go, wow, okay, I could see why they were struggling. And it's it's incredible that one angle literally brought them back from the dark side. The more things change, the more they stay the same. How many things earlier this year were forgiven when we heard the glass breaking at WrestleMania and Steve Austin headline night one? A lot. 24 years earlier, pretty much the same stuff happened because Steve Austin was that over. Crowds were waiting to see him from the moment they got in the arena and they were willing to put up with a lot of nonsense just as long as they saw their guy hit a couple of stunners, drink a couple of beers, and then everybody goes home happy. It's a I, really I will, simple formula. 
I will add one thing though. In the defense of WrestleMania, Night One was pretty freaking awesome. Oh, Night One was <laughs> yeah. one of the best shows I have ever seen. I'm just yeah. saying it's one of those things where they could have put out four hours of horrible product, horrible wrestling, whatever. Austin comes out and they do that match with Owens. Does anyone remember anything about the first four hours? No. It's just the way that it is, and that's how much of a legend Steve Austin is. Now, Vince McMahon is the reason this went from good to great, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we keep going. There are a lot of aspects of this show that do not age well. You get Sonny right off the top. You get some stuff with the Rocket Farouk that does not necessarily age well with the head and neck injury thing. You get certain stuff with unprotected share shots to the head pretty much all night. But there's some stuff that's a lot better than I thought. You guys mentioned the Kai and Tai match. I genuinely enjoyed that. And you knew I was going to get here. There is a segment honoring two Milwaukee wrestling legends that I thought stole the show. And I'm going to have a lot of fun. And I mean a lot of fun talking about that one. So let's get into May the 31st, where 1998, WWF Over the Edge in your house. We're in the Wisconsin Center Arena in Milwaukee. Now, keep in mind, this is the first WWF pay-per-view to have a TV-14 rating. It's kind of funny. There really wasn't anything on the show that I thought, maybe some blood. But it wasn't like this was anything crazier than stuff that you'd have seen the, the few months prior. But the, uh, the ratings were TV-14 for every show up until 2008. And then it went back to the TV PG rating. And we have an incredible opening video package, even when the shows aren't always the best. The video package is fantastic. The It was called Mr. McMahon's Utopia. And it, clips of the buildup cut with footage of all these different authoritarian leaders throughout history and all this war and chaos in history it was so well done and put together it looked like some sort of like a an incredible like pro it was project or or something and wow i i was very impressed by it and we get into the show and the the next few things aren't going to be quite as impressive as the uh, the video package was but we got a big impressive pyro display right off the bat jr asks if austin will be able to retain the title despite insurmountable odds now keep in mind we're not even a month away from king of the ring the hell in a cell with Foley and Taker that is like just at just like weeks after this. So there there is a, a ton of stuff that's like moving pieces here. Kane's not involved here, but he's going to end up winning the title if you know, not not long after this. So they're still working things out. But the one thing that's for sure, Stone Cold Steve Austin is a star. And even when they're on their final legs, you still get a big pop for LOD. You still get a big pop for them as they come out first. It's the LOD 2000 Hawk and Animal withdraws and Sonny and DZ. It's been very sad with Sonny uh, in the news recently. She obviously has uh, has some problems and needs a lot of help. You could, when you look at the sort of the arc of Sonny on TV, you could see it in her eyes already here. Just that she looks different than she did three or four years ago. You know, in 96 when she's coming out and it there's just like a look in her eyes that's different. Yeah, uh, I mean, look, the road, you know, can do things to you for sure. 
Um, you know, she had gone through some drama, um, you know, I, I, between Chris Candido and a lot of other backstage rumors and things of, of that nature. Um, so you could see that maybe the, the lifestyle is starting to already begin to wear on her at this point. Uh, it's tough to look at Hawk. He's like 40 pounds heavier than he was uh, at his prime here, you know, wearing the face paint and stuff. Um, you know, and it's it's difficult to watch LOD in, in a match like this, knowing, you know, what they were doing earlier in their career in the late 80s and even the early 90s work in WWF. Um, you know, so it's difficult. While it's always good to hear their music and hear their pop, um, you know, this is obviously a, a far cry from the peak of LOD. And seeing them in a in a match like this, you know, to kick off a, a pay-per-view of an in-your-house, um, you know, against the the disciples of the apocalypse, you know, it, for me, it was actually a little bit sad, to be honest. Yeah, sad's a good word. I mean, they have to pull out a lot of bells and whistles in order to make this match even remotely close to watchable. We've talked about Sonny. She looks fantastic until you see that look in her eyes and you just know she's gone. There's something there that sure as hell looks like a demon there. It's not, it, there were a lot of things going on at that point. And obviously there's still a lot going on with her. The less said about that stuff, the better, but we did need to bring that up. There was one thing in this match that shocked the hell out of me though, guys. Animal, yes, Road Warrior Animal does a dragon screw leg whip. Yes, the yeah. move from Japan, popularized by the great Muda and stolen by pretty much every great Japanese worker since then, done by Road Warrior Animal, and it's not terrible. Like, you can tell he's trying to do new stuff, and it's admirable, but he's just not quite coordinated enough to pull it off seamlessly, but you admire the effort, and then right after that, it just slows down really quick. And you can tell because yeah. they're actively inserting not just Sonny, but Draws and Shanes, who I believe is Brian Lee, into the match at every opportunity. And look, the Road Warriors wind up winning and getting the pop, and that's fine and dandy. But how we got there and the fact that it took 10 minutes to get there, they really could have picked a better opener. And, and honestly, the, the, the funny thing is, I was trying to look. I don't know what you would have picked. Maybe you get the DX pop. Right off the bat, and that's what you they got the road warrior pop what they wanted, but gosh, it it's slow, you know, it especially if it, it hits it's okay, okay for about the first five minutes, and then it slows yep. down. And the problem at this point of the LOD's career too was I was never a fan of like when LOD was in these matches where they were going long and having to sell. If you want to have them come out and pop the crowd. Have them go in a five-minute squash, like elongated squash, where they get their big power moves in. Nobody cares about the Disciples of Apocalypse here anyways. JR made a comment that the winner would be the number one contender for the tag title. And the crowd, at a, you know, about the, the eight-minute mark, they're chanting L-O-D, L-O-D. They're, they're into it. It's just it's unfortunate. Sad was the word that, that Darren hit, and it's hard not to keep coming back to that word because it's just like you see a great— Athlete at the end And this is the type of thing That for all of his faults Paul Heyman and he's got plenty Of them in how he booked his wrestling company But he would have protected These guys better than this They wouldn't be out there for 10 minutes like this 
They'd be out no. there quick. It'd be, you know what I mean? They'd come out, they'd get a five minute squash. They'd still look better than they did here because we don't want to see them at, at, like this. And Vince honestly didn't really care because I guess I don't think to him the Road Warriors were really what they were maybe to the NWA and to WCW because in a lot of their matches in WWF, even earlier, they were selling a lot and they're just the type of team that should be squashing. And we squash this opener. And move along it, it went about 10 minutes When honestly half of that would have been Fine we would have done, would have done The exact same thing Didn't like the finish either with a quick power slam That you don't even see the move basically Because they're shooting it from, from a I low know. spot You know you don't get You don't get any of the LOD uh, You know finishing stuff obviously I don't even know if they were still doing the doomsday device At this point um, But yeah it was just I, I thought it, like like you guys said it slowed down and, you know, it's funny because when they win, you know, the crowd pops. But, uh, yeah, you didn't you didn't even get the big LOD finish to try to put the cap on it either. So what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, the tag the tag division at this point was really in shambles in WWF as well. And also, let's not forget. I mean, you knew they saw something with Darren Drostoff and obviously terrible stuff happened to him. But he just seemed totally shoehorned into this and it never I seemed know. like a fit. You Not knew that they were you knew that they were hedging their bets in the event that Hawk had a relapse or had something bad mm-hmm. happen to him. And it was so transparent and it none of this feels good more than two decades later. None of it. So The Rock comes out and uh he's the Intercontinental Champ here. And he this is you know, in remember nineteen ninety seven, The Rock was The Rock debuted and he's a baby face and he's supposed to be this or was 96, right? He debuted at Survivor Series. He's a baby face initially. He's supposed to be the, you know, the the next third generation superstar, the 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 star, you know, from this great lineage. And he was shoved, sort of shoved down people's throats and he turned and became Rocky sucks. And he's really finding his footing here now as the IC champ as a heel. He's not put it all together quite yet, but Comes out and when when he walks out to cut a promo, Jr. says, "Incredible athlete, but not very popular in Milwaukee. Better yet, anywhere we go." Which <laughs> just kind of made me laugh thinking about The Rock now. And um, Rock comes out and says, "If The Rock grew up here and he had to pick one of these female pigs to call his own, The Rock would be sucking down beers like a baby sucks down a pacifier. If you smell what The Rock is cooking, <laughs> it just was like, oh my gosh!" So. You know, the early early rock was definitely not afraid to say some some things like that. He had no shame. And <laughs> the nation members were Owen, D'Lo, Mark Henry, and Kama. Farouk ends up coming out with a chair. Rock kind of kicks it out of his hands, and then when Rock swings the chair, it hits the ropes, kind of bounces back and hits him right in the face. Then Rock, uh, then Farouk gives him a pile driver that they stay is on the chair. It wasn't actually. I think Lawler says, no, I wasn't on the chair, which I, I love that he actually corrected it. But I, you laugh a little bit, but I think, Andrew, this might have been one of the things where you're saying, like, it's sort of cringy when he just comes out and starts calling out women. It just doesn't really stand up nowadays uh, when you look back at it, you know? Yeah, it's the stereotypical cheap heat promo that has been done by every promotion since the beginning of wrestling and will be done until the end of either wrestling or time itself. But you you see who did it, and 
would this have aged better if your stereotypical upper mid card heel had said this? Like if say heel triple H from not long after this, if he cut that promo, it probably ages better, but because it's the rock and because he went on to become the rock in big capitalized, bold letters, it just, it ages (laughs) weird. And then they butchered the pile driver, which was supposed to be on a chair And you can see it's not like they even do the pile driver and miss the chair. Farouk actively kicks the chair away. That's what gets me here. Farouk kicks the chair away. And we're supposed to believe that The Rock has a career-threatening neck injury from that. Oh, boy. DZ, this wasn't a match. He's going to, they're going to have their match later, which honestly is not even much of a match. So this is kind of all part of the angle. Um, The Rock is getting heel heat He's definitely, you know They made the right decision in turning him He hasn't quite put it all together yet The one thing that no matter what Even when his material isn't the greatest The delivery is so fantastic You know, you you like Definitely want to listen to what he says And it's like, oh, okay But he's he's got the it They're just fine-tuning it Yeah, you know The other thing about it that's weird and I, I really, I'll be honest with you. I mean, you're, you're talking about now about 24 years ago. So I, I don't remember, but having a guy come out to the ring to cut a promo. It, it, a I compl- it's just clunky. It's right? it's like, it's a weird produ- production choice. Yeah. When he has and, a match later, it's usually in the back. Very rarely is it like this. Yeah. And, and I get that the, the cutting out, coming out to cut the promo is not the, the point. The point is to have this attack and the injury and everything, but you could have done that backstage. Um, you know, which is where these promos usually absolutely occur. So, yeah, the whole thing was just was just very strange for me. Uh, and to be honest with you, this made it feel like a Monday Night Raw. It did. You're right. This is a that's a Monday Night Raw segment. Yep. And we uh, we then got an interview with Stone Cold. He calls Cole Michael Cole a silly bastard. <laughs> just made me laugh. And he Austin says it doesn't matter who's out there. He's going to be the champ when the match is over. And he wasn't sure if anyone was going to watch his back or not. And that Vince Mc, at the end, he says, Vince McMahon's ass will always belong to Steve Austin. Which is <laughs> just one of those funny things that you say after. And it's like, somebody's got a, a nice little soundbite of that. And so the story was going, that was going on was, you know, McMahon stacking the deck against Austin and will Undertaker come out, kind of be that, that, you know, locker room leader, make sure everything is on the up and up and make sure that Vince isn't trying to screw Stone Cold. We'll we'll mention them both again a bunch, but one of the real highlights of this show to me were the Stooges. Patterson and Briscoe were so fantastic in that main event. And I'll, I'll point out a few of the things there. And so it, all the bells and whistles in the main event is why I like this show and why I picked it. The The matches leading up to it, is why it took me so long to pick this show because despite <laughs> the main event, it's so great. A lot of getting there, like we said, it's just it's not that fun, especially when we have Jeff Jarrett coming. Well, up hang next. on, really quick. There's one thing I do want to mention about Please. this promo, and Please. there's a sign in the crowd that also bears this out. They go out of their way to point out that Milwaukee is technically the birthplace of Austin 316. And I wish WWE would do this more. 
recognizing the things that happen in the cities that they run consistently and with moments that sincerely matter. I, I mean, I agree. You come to say a city in California four times a year and something incredibly major happened a couple of years prior to that. Like even just a small little head nod to that, it makes fans feel appreciated. And it's a nod to the history of your own company. I don't see how that's a bad thing in any way, shape or form. And obviously this was something they couldn't ignore because of the magnitude of that moment and how that signaled Steve Austin was going to be a guy they were going to want to build around for a while. And I will give them a lot of credit for this. AEW does that very well. They do yeah, hometown they're, they're stuff. hometown stuff. Their their people they actually win when they go there. They do. And they, they, that's the one thing, sometimes to their own fault, is they do treat the fans a little smarter. So, sometimes, honestly, for even for someone like me who watches a lot of stuff, like too smart, they kind of expect you to maybe know everything. But they do treat you, um, you know, like if you're paying attention, you'll get little Easter eggs and nods a lot more. Excalibur, who does the commentary for them, he does a really good job of trying to point things like that out too. And I do, I like it. It makes it, it's just easy for WWF and WWE now with as much content and as much, the, everything they've got filmed, they've got footage of everything. They can so easily just p- pull something out. And we've got Jeff Jarrett. I, I was trying to, I'm glad that you gave me a, little, a few extra seconds because. I'm just never a really big fan of Jeff Jarrett. He's gotten better and more tolerable later in life. He kind of has is okay with making fun of himself and maybe doesn't take himself quite as seriously, but you know, he just never ever did it for me. He was a total middle of the card, bottom of the middle of the card guy even. Fink introduces Tennessee Lee, who then introduces the world's greatest singer, the world's greatest entertainer, and without a doubt, the world's greatest wrestler, J-E-F-F-J-A-R-R-E-T-T. Ain't he great? No, <laughs> I would say no. He's okay. Um, it's Jeff Jarrett versus Steve Blackman. Uh, good heel heat for Double J, though, as he plays to the crowd. Blackman goes right after Double J outside the ring, missile drop kick, a little back and forth. Blackman chases after Tennessee Lee, so that gives Jarrett the advantage for a little bit. So Al Snow's just sitting at the Spanish announce table with head, and they're dressed in sombreros. And security takes them away, and Lawler says, anyone that has to wear something stupid on their head to attract attention, I've got no excuse for them. Which is good stuff, as both him and JR sit there with the crown and their, their cowboy hats. Um, bicycle kick from Blackman. Um, Tennessee Lee got up there to distract him, and there was uh, the referee doesn't see. So Blackman ends up hitting Jarrett with one of the karate sticks. It was a two count. Then Tennessee Lee ends up hitting Blackman with one of the sticks while he was on the top rope. Ref didn't see that one. We get the cover at about ten minutes, and I didn't go through a lot more because it just wasn't a whole lot. Like little back and forth here. It wasn't by any means the worst match you're ever going to see, but it wasn't. It's just not really that interesting, and you know, didn't didn't do a whole lot for me. DZ Double J was he ever someone that uh, that tickled your fancy? No, no, he uh, he he never. I don't know what it was about him as as a young kid. I just I couldn't stand. Maybe it was his like pompous nature or. Um, you know, I couldn't stand the fact that he did like the, a, a terrible version of the Ric Flair strut 
you know, in the ring. Like, it, I, I it wasn't, you know, it's different than a heel. It's more the go away heat, too. Yes. Right. Like, it yeah. wasn't like, oh, man, I want to see this guy get punched. Or like, you're like, ooh, when he says stuff, you're kind of like, he's frustrating you. You're just kind of like, oh, it's it's this guy again. Like, yeah. Oh, no, there there are know. guys. Yeah. There, there are guys that are great heels that, you know, you don't like them, but you enjoy watching them. There was something about Jarrett that I just couldn't stand. Um, and I, and I never really could pinpoint exactly what it was. I probably just didn't like the character, to be honest with you. I thought it was cheesy. I couldn't he's, stand, he's I couldn't fine. Stand yeah. You know, he's he fine checks in the ring. Yeah. Little boxes. He can cut an okay promo. He's fine in the ring. You know, Andrew, it's, you know, but what's the famous line that Graham used to say, Andrew? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I got to tee it up for you because I know yep. you love to say it. <laughs> Broke a thousand guitars and never drew a dime. And Honestly, that's the problem with Jarrett. If Jarrett is a mid-card heel act, he's fine. He's not offensive. I think we remember Jarrett in this particular light because when Vince Russo was looking for someone, anyone, anyone to push in the latter days of WCW after WWF had turned the tide in the ratings war, He turned to Jeff Jarrett and Scott Steiner, two guys that as singles acts were not draws. Now, for everything we're saying about Jarrett's drawing ability, I thought he was a very good worker. If you have not seen his Intercontinental title match with Shawn Michaels from one of the In Your House shows in 1995, go see it. He's got a couple with Razor that are pretty good, too. Yeah, that match with Shawn is a legit five-star match. Even Ric Flair in his autobiography, despite saying Jarrett could not draw, put him over as a really good worker and a really good guy. And for as much as we're saying negative about him, he started something that's lasted more than two decades, kicking and screaming in professional wrestling in the form of impact. I mean, like it or not, he's going to be remembered. Now, this particular match, no great shakes, but honestly... Nothing that went out of its way to offend me either. The uh, one thing it's I kind of like a TV is, match, though. Again, though, right? Like this did yeah, sort of well, feel exactly, very yeah. raw. Like with yeah, the first I, I, segments and matches, Dar- Darren kind of yeah. hit that. Yeah, yeah. I had it at two and a quarter. It was fine. The one thing that I will say is, after seeing the movie Elvis this past weekend, it is very, very hard not to see Tennessee Lee as a ripoff of Colonel Parker, Elvis's manager. By the way, if you are out there and you have not seen this movie yet, it is a fantastic two-hour movie that they lengthened to two hours and 50 minutes for no good reason. Wow. I was going to... I'm a huge... A few things on what he just said. Number one, I am a huge, huge Elvis guy. Like, there are home videos of me doing the Elvis Aloha from Hawaii when I'm like five years old, all the way... All the way down to the point of I'm sitting on the couch playing the drum along with 2001: A Space Odyssey. Um, so yeah, you'll you'll you can get a real kick out of watching me as a kid uh, doing a lot of Elvis stuff, including singing. Um, I forgot which which song it was, but at, at my father's junior high school, he was the principal of that. Every year there was a a, a dance group, a dance talent group that did a, a dance show, and and in the middle of it. Uh, at the age of four, they had me on stage singing, <laughs> singing along to an Elvis song. That's correct. Microphone with the leg shake and the guitar and everything. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm interested. I, I I watched the trailer of it and and it's funny because I said to myself, 
this is either going to be really, really good or really, really awful. And I couldn't. I'm not it saying is. it's bad. And there are yeah, a it's lot just of too really long. good yeah. parts to it. Yeah. Like, yeah. really, we're getting to an era in movies where the way they make them anything longer than two hours, either it, it needs to be perfect. Otherwise, it's just yeah. gratuitous. And we well, got to gratuitous there, though. I will I say gotcha. Austin Butler did a hell of a job. Good. Good to know. I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to go see it first chance I get, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, but obviously the funny thing you said, Tennessee Lee being a ripoff of, of, of Colonel Parker. I mean, Tennessee Lee and WCW was, was Colonel, Colonel Robert Parker. It was Colonel yeah. Robert Parker. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping was for one of you to pick up the Literally ripped yeah. right off. He, uh, you, yeah, you guys teed me up for the Mike Graham line. I teed you up for that yeah, one. You're we're welcome. even on the scoreboard Thanks. right now. There we go. We're, we're, we're tied at one. But And he managed some big guys. He managed Austin. He managed, uh, I think, what, Sid Vicious? Harlem Heat, yeah, he he managed some big guys. I think I think he was literally in WWF for like a cup of coffee in '98, if I remember correctly. Yep, but, sounds right. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, when he when you know, this is like one of those things when he walked out with Jarrett. I'm like, hey, Colonel Parker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we have a video that plays uh, to set up the Mark Mero Sable angle. That I'll say more than a match of so. Miro and Sable agree to a match If she can find a wrestler to beat Miro He will free her of her personal services Contract to him If Miro wins she's got to leave WWF Forever <laughs> Sable um, Sable Sable can't find Or chooses not to find anyone So she wants to do it herself JR thinks that it might be The Undertaker initially He said he thought it was going to be Taker She comes out and Little did we know it would be Brock Lesnar. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> F5 here. As she says she's gonna, she got herself into it. She's going to get herself out of it. She doesn't need any man fighting her battles. If anyone will win her freedom, it's going to be her. And JR says, I don't know if we're ready for that intergender stuff here, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. And uh, Mero gets serious for a second. And he says, look, this, this business ruined our relationship. You're willing to risk your body, so I'm going to do something I should have done a long time ago. I'm going to give you your freedom. Art imitating life, imitating art, imitating life. Yeah. <laughs> it's this right? big paradox. Yeah, this is uh, <laughs> right. It's deeply you, weird. It is. And I will say this is so bad. It did make me laugh a little bit, though. I will. I will say it sort of pops you a little when he's because he does do. Go- and you think for a minute, you know, OK, you know what? Like he's actually. And then he just Sable gets down to pin him and he just turns her around and rolls her up for the one, two, three. It's not even the pin. It's sort of how he celebrates right after the pin, which always I hated then. It sort of it just kind of made me chuckle because it was so over the top. And knowing that Sable's gonna be back in a few in a few weeks, but DZ, we can't even really call this a match. He he laid down like he was gonna let her pin him. He rolls her up in an inside cradle for the one, two, three. He's He's jumping and going crazy afterwards. He grabs the mic and starts singing, na, 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 hey, hey. He tells her to get the hell out. And and then uh, JR calls him. She says, what a jackass. Just, you know, in that great JR way of saying it. And uh, King is loving this, though. That was the only thing I thought was funny. It's like, King, you don't want to see the puppies anymore in Sable? You don't want, like, you, you're loving this? Really? Come on, King. You're, that's out of character for you. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely is out of character for him based on uh, how excited he used to get at those things. But yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, it's I don't know. I mean, it, it's kind of it's kind of weird watching this, knowing like what eventually happens with these two. And, you know, yeah. at the, at the time, not really knowing, you know, because I don't remember exactly what year what year they split. Um, you know, it was Lesnar, a couple of years later than this. Yeah, Lesnar Lesnar's not around yet in WWF, so it's um, so there's still some time before all that goes on and Sable leaves and then comes back and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it's just kind of weird how this is like a bit of foreshadowing. Um, but Mero, I thought was always, he was always a weird guy. Like, I don't know what it was about him when he was Johnny B bad, where it was kind of like a, you know, little Richard versus I don't wrestling character. And then when he was Mark Marrow, I, I there was just something about his look for me that was weird. I, I, he wasn't terrible in the ring. He could have a match. He had some boxing background so he could sell you on some stuff. Um, and I wonder what the two of them thought, you know, being in this kind of weird dynamic together when they were married. Um, and I, 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 to be honest with you, I imagine that, you know, Mero uh, at this time was already probably starting to have some, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, I guess you would say, uh, you know, masculinity issues with the fact that his wife was a much bigger star than he was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's got to be a hard pill to swallow. It's probably a hard pill to swallow in 2022 when it's, you know, a little bit much different world. Uh, in 1998, it probably was an ex very bitter pill to swallow. And I'm I'm sure that played a great deal to their unraveling as a as a couple off the screen. I'm just going to summarize this in four words, and it encompasses everything I feel about this storyline. This whole thing sucked. <laughs> I got nothing here. I mean, yeah. who does this help at, at, in any way, shape, or form, especially considering Sable at this point, despite not being anywhere close to a trained wrestler, was one of the three or four most popular people on the wwe roster who does this help i and this whole thing baffled me and we're supposed to like be seeing jerry lawler revel in the fact that the object of his lust is gone this none of this made any sense at all whatsoever it was a total throwaway thing this sucked and wasn't marrow one of the really big signings a few years earlier didn't they pay like ever a guaranteed contract, like a huge contract there. You, you're telling me you couldn't find anything better for this guy. Cause like we're saying, he's fine in the ring. He's fine in the ring. You, you can't, you can't get him in a tag team with another competent wrestler right now in a tag team division. That's severely lacking. I just, yeah, this was, it was a, a bummer because it was, it was nothing. It's, it's again, more of an angle. So we're going through the first, Three matches plus a promo angle all just feel like an episode of Monday Night Raw. Yep. Honestly, it, you wouldn't even have realized that had you not seen the start of the pay-per-view video package that this was any different as we get to the backstage area with The Rock in the locker room with the other nation members, Owen Hart wearing sunglasses, D'Lo, Mark Henry, and Kama. Doc Hendricks was there, and he told him that Commissioner Slaughter said if the Rock has to defend his title tonight or he will be stripped. Rock is in a neck brace, selling the neck injury from the pile driver that didn't hit the chair a little earlier. So, yeah, nothing 
fantastic or groundbreaking here as we get set up for the bonus handicap match. I'm glad we got this. This was my second favorite match on the card, honestly. I, I actually, and I think because I was expecting so little from it, I actually enjoyed it. And at this point, I was a big fan of Taka. I really liked Taka at this. I was 10 years old. I I liked the whole light heavyweight division when he came in. He felt like he was pretty over, and so I liked what they were doing with Taka a lot of the the point. And this match ends up going almost 10 minutes, and I I really enjoyed a lot of it. We have just, uh, the baby. You just like the Mikanochu driver. I do. No, I do. It's a good, <laughs> it's a good move, and we were actually seeing competent wrestling in this match where we didn't see it in much of. The matches earlier And we saw in You know in the main event But this was what they were WWF was trying to counter with the the cruiserweights And they never quite did it well But I will say this particular match I I, I enjoyed good stuff with Taka and, uh, and Dick Togo Early on We Lawler hated Taka Because of uh, Taka's rivalry with Brian Christopher R.I.P uh, That's uh, very very sad And so the Kayantai guys are much smaller And they were trying to avoid Bradshaw So they would kind of run away from him We saw a pretty cool Tornado DDT Then Bradshaw using his power on uh, Teo, on Funaki It was a good dynamic with him as the big And then some of the other smalls You had Dick Togo with a really cool power slam That was tight I love when cruiserweights do like power moves, like power bombs, power slams, because they're really quick and tight. Snap suplexes and stuff like that. They're just, they're so precise when they can hit them correctly. We got a, a Swanton bomb from Togo, who was flying around. Um, we had the heels keep cheating. There was a camel clutch into a drop kick, which was a pretty cool spot. And you've got uh, Taka with a spin kick. Bradshaw gets the hot tag. Big punches, big body slam, power bomb. Then Togo hits a low blow and a drop kick. Uh, another big kick from Bradshaw. He had a big power clothesline. Then a release tiger suplex. We got a missile drop kick from Taka, Michinoku driver for two, and then a choke slam to Who Taka. Kicks out of the Mikinochu driver. I could. I know. I was. I kind of. I think. I wonder if it was like the timing that sp- that just wasn't the finishing spot. But it was weird because you you see that and you're like, really? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, he's kicking out of that. And it wasn't like it, they had a whole nother major big sequence planned. Um, but the key was the heels were supposed to get the job done. We get a Bradshaw who's caught up with Teo and Funaki. And then Togo hits the Santon on Taka for the win. And Kayantai can go. I thought the story was fun with Bradshaw and the smaller guys. And more than anything, it's a match where you're just not expecting a whole lot. Um, Teo hit this double underhook suplex that was cool. And I thought everybody in this match was pretty impressive and and played their part very well, DZ. But again, it's not as if this feels like a pay-per-view main event. This was a match that could have been a good Raw match for 10 minutes. Yeah, it, it's a it, it's a good match. Um, it, it's... It probably looks better than it is because of what we've been watching. No, you're right. It. Um, it does, but it's not. It's it, it's fine. It's enjoyable. Uh, it's. I think it's clearly the second best match on the card. Um, yeah, you know, one thing that I wonder about Taka, he kind of had 
So so Taka has been around for forever. He, if I remember, if I, I believe he's still involved in New Japan. Yeah. Um, he was in All Japan. He's in New Japan. Um, it, it does it just feel like? I, I, it's hard to explain that he always like he was never in the right spot at the right time. Yeah. Like, like generationally, like yes. he just sort of missed it. He, like he missed the time. He yeah, was maybe like, a little too early or like 10 years too late or what, yeah. I don't, whatever, you know, yeah, I, it, it's hard. It's hard to explain, but he's just, he's, he's a guy that, it, that you say to yourself, Oh man, could you imagine if he was in WWE in like 2007? And then you're like, but, he was in New Japan in like 2007. So why wasn't he like, you know, a big star? Was he over the top then? Like, did he miss his peak, you know, when he should have been in WWE? Um, he's just, he's a highly talented guy that I always liked. Yeah. That it just feels like it just, the stars never aligned properly for him. Um, I, I, and I mean, he took a couple of crazy bumps here. I thought that, that uh, butterfly suplex where he got thrown, I thought was a really cool spot. Um, you know, he was doing some stuff that you didn't see a whole lot of the spinning DDT off the top was not something you saw every day in WWF at the time. Um, it, it's a, it's a cool match. You know, the Bradshaw element into it makes it interesting kind of tossing guys around with those big moves. You talk about the, the nice snap quick moves that you used to get from those light heavyweights at the time. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really cool match, but, uh, yeah, it's one of those things, Andrew, that I look back to and it, it just, for some reason, Mikino, Ataka always just like escape me in terms of why he wasn't bigger than he, than he, than he actually was. Yeah. The wrong place, wrong time thing is definitely valid with him because while he's doing his stuff in WWF and doing it reasonably well, look at what WCW was doing with Ray Mysterio, Dean Malenko, Juventud Guerrero, Chris Jericho, Psychosis. If you want to lump Voldemort into that, I'm not going to stop you from doing that. It's just a case where he would have fit in with those guys, but WWF didn't really have anybody to put against him so as to rival that cruiserweight division, and he suffered for that. Now, when I saw what this match looked like, I'm going... What the hell is Bradshaw doing here? But it becomes readily apparent what's going on because Kayantai needs a big guy to bump for. Mm-hmm. And there are some really cool spots in this particular match. Uh, Bradshaw running around after them is pretty funny. Taka's high energy stuff is still stuff people 24 years later are doing. It holds up really well. Add in that Kayantai knows their role. They are there to be heels and get beaten up. And they bump like crazy for a guy that probably, let's just say, gave them a lot of encouragement to do so with how stiff Bradshaw's reputation is in the ring. Uh, Bradshaw leveling all three guys and then Taka getting the missile dropkick and the Mishinoku driver was cool. You get Togo getting the senton splash for a pin that doesn't really end things and keeps things moving forward. Guys, I enjoyed this way more than I thought I would. I think this was a legitimate three-star match. Yeah, I I, I agree. As uh, we have a couple others that aren't, you know, this next thing isn't even really a match as much as it is an angle. The the tag match towards the end is fine, and then the main event is awesome. This was sort of a, a cool surprise in in at a point in the show when I I was even like, oh no, like it was starting to really get bad. This was kind of like a cool little ten minute pick me up. 
that that got you ready to rock because you know once you hit the main event it's going to be really cool yeah there's one thing that i missed that i need to point out Please. because look we've all worked in television we're all production nerds and we notice when on the rare occasion vince mcmahon's crew doesn't do something correctly the announcers pump the heck out of the hotline during this match they talk about how sable is quote unquote giving her last interview ever they don't say the number they don't show the number on the screen they just basically blurt out oh sable's on the hotline but they don't give any information as to how to access said hotline like it's somebody's fired that jumped out at me and i don't know if there were legal proceedings and they could or couldn't advertise the hotline in certain ways that's probably the only explanation i've got but it's definitely worth saying because they did it a couple other times during the show we actually show sable walking out of the building with her suitcase something in her hand and and she's in her ring gear lawler laughs at her as she walks off and that just didn't make sense to me yeah, I thought he he would be the type that was screaming, no, Sable, don't go, please, Sable. So, but I guess the heel is going to stick with the heel. As we got one of these really cool WWF Attitude commercials, they were awesome. The uh, Try Lace in My Boots commercial with all sorts of different cuts of superstars talking about how tough their job is. And we got the setup for the IC title match, The Rock versus Farouk. The Fink introduces The Rock twice. Nobody comes out. Then Sergeant Slaughter does uh, Sergeant Slaughter looking like he's about to audition for Miami Vice With his light blue t-shirt with the suit jacket here He was uh, very bright He told the Rock that if he does not come out He's going to strip him of the title So he orders him to come out 10 second countdown The Rock's music finally hits And Rock slowly comes out Selling the injury He's got the neck brace And R.I.P. Tim White Indeed. Who just recently passed away. He was the referee here. Tim White was uh, someone who we got to know a little bit better after Andre the Giant passed away. And he told some stories about how he was one of the guys who was sort of assigned to take care of Andre in uh, Andre's later years. So he traveled a lot with him and they became very good friends. He he was really, really emotional in that Andre documentary about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he they were yeah. I mean, best friends think about it when you travel with someone like that. And he was, he became the guy that Andre would kind of pick on, but then want to talk to you at the end of the day. They were best buddies and drink with him and this and that. And that's yeah, that was a uh, quite a, uh, you know, we we just saw him as a referee forever, and then they had the weird Tim White skits, and then you find out this really like human side of him and all of his you know connections with Andre, which was really cool to to find out. So, sad stuff for Tim White, but we will uh, we'll always see him and when we do these rewatches and we'll uh we'll see him uh, throughout some of the really infamous big moments in WWE history. Tim White and The Rock come out together and Farouk hits The Rock with the neck brace. We get, you know, some clotheslines back and forth. The Rock goes out to the floor. He's doing the heel stalling tactics. He finally gets an elbow and then the body slam. He actually hits the people's elbow, but it it's not called it yet. And it just it didn't flow all that well. There was a a spine buster that just didn't look very clean. Uh, Rock hits a DDT, and what ends up happening? The spine buster hits, and then Rock they got to move a little bit closer to set up 
so Rock could put his foot on the ropes. It honestly kind of looked like Farouk was worried he botched it and hurt the Rock because they paused for what seemed like an eternity I know. after that move. And I, it, you could sort of tell Farouk was blown up, and that's one thing, but it legitimately looked like somebody got hurt there. It was just clunky for two guys who you think of as you know being pros. Ron Simmons was always like a good hand in the ring, but this is towards the tail end of his career, and The Rock wasn't quite there yet. He, you know, he'd been wrestling for about about a year and a half at this point, so it just didn't flow all that well. It felt like it was more like a an angle than it was even a match. The referee counts to three, but then realizes Rock's foot was on the rope. Then Rock, with a takedown, he ends up pinning Farouk. He puts his feet on the ropes, and the ref doesn't see it. So they try to do the, you know, the, oh, the heel doesn't get caught, but the baby face did. And Andrew, it just didn't do a whole lot for me. Again, it just felt like another angle. This entire show felt like it really had one pay-per-view quality match. That's a damn good match, but a lot of this stuff is just, like, this wasn't even, this wasn't well executed. Right, it's not even that it was supposed to be a, a great match or anything. But if it's if you're going to have an angle, you have to make sure the execution is really well done. And this was very sloppy. And honestly, the the one thing that I will add to this, because otherwise, I think you nailed it. Knowing what we know now about injuries to the head and neck, this angle never gets greenlit today, does it? No. That got me because you can see first of all. For as many bad things as we're going to say about this, The Rock does an excellent job selling the injury. He looks like he just got hit by a bus. Okay, he always like he's he doing everything oh, he yeah. can to try to get this over. And Farouk is in a weird place because he gets kicked out of the Nation of Domination, which was his group, because The Rock was just this gigantic star that nobody was going to be able to keep down for too long. He would go on later in the year, start teaming with Bradshaw as not the APA, but the Acolytes, the Undertaker's minions with the weird symbols on their chest. The and Ministry whatnot. of Darkness, right? Yes, but this was where he was sort of adrift, which begs the question, why not just put Farouk and Mark Miro together as a team and see what happens? Like, just for <laughs> a little while, like, that's that's a natural fit. But, probably probably would have happened today. They do that stuff all the time now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and those, those matches would have been really good because Miro could sell and get the crap kicked out of him, give the hot tag to Farouk and have Farouk just run amok. That'd be a really cool mid-card tag team. That's let's exactly the type machine. of thing Let's go back in time and let's book earlier. this thing. But yeah. as far as this goes, it's just not the best use of any of the guys involved. Rock winds up escaping by the skin of his teeth. There's a big brawl at the end between the nation and DX. DX gets a monster pop, which baffles me a little bit because this was not long after Shawn Michaels left and Hunter hadn't really taken off yet. No, like he had the shtick and they were a fine mid card, upper mid card act. But at the same time, it just sort of felt like when the AWA had all of their big guys poached by the WWF and they told you to instead cheer the other guys at this point, DX was the other guys. Like, yeah, it was weird. The crowd loved it though. And they did. honestly, this is one of those times where I think the crowd saved the show. 
I completely agree because if you're watching this without the volume on, there's so much of it that's a bummer. If you're watching it with the volume on, there's a lot of stuff that you might give the benefit of the doubt because if the point is to get the crowd happy, a lot of this stuff did that, at least got them hot. And I, I had my big note right here. Wow, is the crowd crowd hot for the DX save? And they were as we get set for Kane versus Vader. DZ, do you have anything to add there, Rock, Farouk, this angle slash match? No, I, the whole angle at this point was kind of tired for me. I, I, I didn't really get how the angle fit into what... Like it's almost like a baby face kind of angle or a forced baby face kind of angle. I don't remember at the time if they were still trying to like make Rock into a sympathetic figure, but he kind of like forced out Farouk. So it, I don't know. I, to me, it just like everything that they did with the Rock at this point was kind of clashing, which is probably why he wasn't well received. Yeah. Um. You know, it, are they forcing him down our throat? Is he supposed to be a heel? He's doing heel like things, but then he comes out with the neck brace on, you know, in order to fight to be a champion. But then he gets the heel like pin with his feet on the ropes. Like, you don't know if you're coming or going with him, which is probably why everybody was kind of so hot and cold and turned off by him. Um, and to be honest with you, I mean, when you go back and you watch some of this stuff for this time, they came dangerously close for like to like, you know, really screwing him up. Like they really screwed Roman up for like four years. It's close. It's very yeah. close to happening when you watch and we move along to a couple big men, Kane, Vader, Kane with Paul Bear. So Kane had just come off of losing to the Undertaker at WrestleMania. And so this was an opportunity for Kane to get a win back to kind of build him back up. This was billed as a mask versus mask match. It's kind of interesting because we see Vader's mask come off all the time. We don't see Kane's mask come off. And first out, we had... Kane with Paul Bear, then Vader, who Jr. said we're gonna find out um, if we're gonna find out if 21 past the hour is Vader time. Also thought that was cool. You could tell Jr. would always get excited to call Vader because this was someone who he called early on in his career and someone who he was a big fan of. Jr. also talks about the Undertaker and what's next for him as we get started. Uh, Lawler also says that Kane uh, that. Vader used to wear a big elephant mask to the ring, which uh, was true. And we get these kind of awkward exchanges early on. Um, you know, a couple bot running kind of body splashes from Vader. Kane overpowers him early. They each kind of take turns knocking each other down with clotheslines, but it's just not a fast pace at all. For guys that can move at a little bit quicker pace, Vader was sort of towards the tail end of what he could do. We We get the... Top rope clothesline from Kane My note Flip side of what my note was Just five minutes before In the middle part of this The crowd is just dead Nothing They don't really know who they're supposed to root for Because Vader <laughs> isn't really like a baby A great baby face They kind of tried to do the baby face thing with Vader And it just It didn't connect And these two guys didn't mesh all that well There was a point where they just kind of knocked They ran into each other and sort of Knocked each other down Then like a weak weak Looking chin Like a chin rest hold Where Kane doesn't even look like he's putting Vader was going to sleep (laughs) Doesn't look like he literally looked like When you go to a chiropractor and they're like cracking your neck A little for you he was like holding it perfectly Into place and just gonna like tweak it It was it just didn't 
didn't connect. This is still early Kane, and he wasn't he was not nearly the worker he would be in three years or so. We did the awful rubber wrench connect with you? Oh my gosh. Oh <laughs> my gosh. A, is that not the worst prop you've ever seen? <laughs> so brutal. So he gets a wrench, Vader does from under the ring. He hits Kane in the ribs and in the back with this rubber wrench. They head back in the ring, clothesline. Then the crowd, I will give them credit, the last minute or two started to pick back up for about five minutes of this match. They were absolutely dead. Vader goes up to the top, moonsault, but he misses. Kane moves, and then Kane picks up Vader for a tombstone pile driver as JR goes crazy. Tombstone! 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 As uh, Kane gets the win. After the match, uh, Vader takes his, you know, Kane takes the mask off, and Paul Bear puts Vader's mask on and starts, you know, running around saying, It's time. It's Paul Bear time, which I thought was disgusting because that mask probably smells and is so oh. sweaty from Vader. Like, that thing is just gross. I would have never wanted to put that thing right on my head after Vader had just been wearing that in a, Seven minute match Then Vader cuts the promo DZ at the end I, I re- actually remember this promo Where he sort of sad And Michael Cole interviews him he Says I got my butt whipped he Said maybe Vader time is over I ain't nothing but a piece of shit A big fat piece of shit Look at me I'm so big And then he walked off oh, Terrible Like I mean I, I Again what are you trying to accomplish here what is he supposed to be? Are What's you just leading like, to? Yeah, like, are you trying to make him a baby face? And if so, you basically just neutered the guy on television. Like, right. th- he's supposed to be this big monster, and he looks like he's about to cry and calls himself a fat piece of shit. <laughs> like, like, what are you trying to do? I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Who's writing he... this stuff, Andrew? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. Now. One needs to go back a little ways. Vader gets brought in in 1996, and he is supposed to be the big monster heel. This is the guy that ran roughshod over New Japan, over WCW, and still had some of the best matches in those promotions' histories during that time. This was the prototypical big guy who can move. Everybody drink! Chug, chug, um, chug. This is slow. Now, I, I, the only notes I have for this match are the finish, because that's the only thing that really happened during the course of the match. Vader misses the moonsault, gets tombstone, gets in. That's pretty much it. Now, WWE history would have you believe this was the end of Vader. Vader was not done. And he was not done having matches that were quite good. He went back to Japan a couple of months after this and had really good runs in All Japan Pro Wrestling and in Pro Wrestling Noah. He wound up working with guys like Kenta Kabashi, Mitsuharu Misawa, some of the best Japanese workers of that time period, and more than held his own. Which begs the question, how in the hell did WWF not have something proper to do with him in the two years that they had him under contract? His biggest contribution 
to the company and the wrestling world at large during this time period were his guest spots on Boy Meets World. I know. You're right. It's, God, it's a bummer. He's he does the flag match. He's got that with the Patriot. You remember? He's just like so so poorly used. Vader walks off as. Uh, oh God! Now yeah. we get to this. God. Now we get oh, to Andrew's this is favorite part. This is flat fun right so here, guys. We get the wrestling legends here. Michael Cole introduces the Crusher, Mad Dog Vashon. He has a prosthetic leg. They were called uh, Milwaukee Wrestling Legends, and Vashon. Got a plaque, wanted to thank his wife Said he loved his niece Luna He thanked Vince McMahon for putting wrestling On the bigger stage Then we got the Crusher He cut a little bit the of a pro The Crusher post. looked great here by the he way He did look good, Consider I will say he looked. the guy's about 60 years old He looked like a guy in his mid-40s That could still kick your ass And then Lawler goes to the rate Lawler's just crapping all over This segment from the commentary And it makes so much sense If you know Lawler's history with the AWA which we'll get to So I will say I laughed at that part It just felt sort of like it was a little much And it went on like a a bit long I didn't really have a problem with it Because it you know what the point was Get these guys out there they'll get a big pop Lawler will you know you know, get his comeuppance here. He, but he, he tries to kick Luna. Uh, he tries to kick Mad Dog Vashon's leg. Then he ends up first. He makes fun of it. Then he tries to kick it. The Crusher punches him, hits him with the plaque, and the fans are popping. They're chanting for Crusher. Lawler ends up leaving the ring. He comes back. He takes off the prosthetic leg. He throws it at Crusher. He uh, he then tried to hit him, but Crusher ends up. Hitting Lawler with the prosthetic leg A bit wonky But I think Andrew you liked it And it it got the job done With the, with what they wanted right? It wasn't clean But this is fine I don't mind segments like this in the local spots And it didn't go on for 20 minutes So I didn't have too much of a problem with it But it was uh, Yeah it, it was some some spots in this Where you're just going like when Lawler has those moments where he he does things where it's like it's the segment in Family Guy with Peter and the chicken, where yep. it's like, is this still going? Is he still <laughs> doing this? Really, Lawler is he's been going on for three minutes. Other than that, like there are there are always, but that's what he's he does as a heel. He just keeps going. <laughs> Tell us some of the reasons why you like this thing, AC. So the biggest pop of the night was for Steve Austin. The second biggest pop of the night was for LOD. The third biggest pop was for either Sable or the Crusher. It is very tough to gauge just how big a regional star the Crusher was. He main evented on the Milwaukee circuit in Minnesota, in the Midwest, for close to 20 years. The guy was, in some ways, the prototype of a Steve Austin character. One of his big promos talked about how he was named Mr. Saloon for seven consecutive years, talking about drinking beer and winning bar fights and doing the polka and all of that. And he was just, he was believable. He was rugged and it worked. Again, if we've said it once on this show, we have said it a thousand times. Wrestling is at its best when it is simple. And there was nothing complicated about the crusher. Now, in this particular segment, Mad Dog looks awful, and you can tell he looks awful. And honestly, 
if they had just done this segment like in the ramp as opposed to in the ring and then Lawler goes in the ring to berate everybody, Crusher walks in, goes into the ring, confronts Lawler, beats the heck out of him. It's a much better, smoother segment, I think. But for what we got as an AWA history nerd, I am thoroughly okay with this. Jerry Lawler was crowned the AWA world champion. He had a terrific match with Kerry Von Erich at Super Clash 3 that was mired in controversy because it was one of those multi-promotional things where the endings weren't clear and everybody got to claim their guy won and whatnot. Well, Lawler wound up winning the AWA world title, got a list of dates that he was supposed to show up, but never got paid for the show so he wound up skipping out on all of those dates. It's a big, messy situation, and I have no doubt that Lawler and the Crusher backstage had a really good laugh over all of it. DZ, what'd you think of the uh, the legends, the Milwaukee wrestling legends? Yeah, I mean, I look, I appreciate the historical element to it with AWA, and, and you know, being somebody who has an understanding of the things that went on with Lawler there, um, and being a bit of a wrestling historian, you know, I could certainly appreciate that. How many people in, in the crowd appreciated that part? I don't know. Uh, oh, I think they, it was a lot of them because there yeah. were crusher, there were crusher signs in the crowd and that's how, you know, you're over the thing. The thing that I really, uh, respected was the fact that the, the crusher went through the whole thing and never lost his cigar. I thought that was impressive. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, look, the mad dog part of it is, is difficult because he's obviously struggling, uh, you know, Lawler for, uh, all of his, you know, often misgivings at times and things that he does plays the heel perfectly. Um, yeah, it, it, look, it's a fun little segment. Um, I guess it fits this show. Well, given some of the other segments we had, it was, it was clearly the best segment of the, of the night compared to some of the other things that went on. Um, you know, I just. I felt bad for I felt I had to wonder what Mad Dog Vashon was thinking as he standing there and Lawler's pulling his leg just off and they throw like and they're throwing his oh leg around. Crusher's God. hitting him with the leg and they're just I I'm, know. Think, I'm I'm thinking of the uh, I'm thinking of the episode of Friends when you know oh, Joey, Joey accidentally throws the girl's, the girl's leg, on leg the into fire. the fire and leaves. <laughs> the best is right before is that Rachel says, "Oh no, Joey, you didn't throw the dog on the fire, did you?" He oh, goes, "I wish, wish, I wish." <laughs> <laughs> As uh, we move along to DX, big pop for DX. As Andrew mentioned earlier, they're over here, and they come out and they give their whole spiel. The uh, Triple H does the are you ready And let's get ready to suck it Road Dog does the intro Billy Gunn he's got two words For the nation of domination The crowd just loving them And Triple H was the European champion At this time The New Age Outlaws Road Dog and Billy Gunn Are the tag team champs And it's going to be a four on four here With the nation D'Lo Brown comma Owen Hart, or excuse me, a three-on-three But each team has uh, One in the corner And uh, it's Billy Gunn, Road Dogg And Triple H with X-Pac and China So we've got Owen Sucks chance right off the bat to start Owen was doing some good work here as a heel He could sort of sense early on that the crowd Was into him and he was playing To them when he was standing on on, On the ring, on the apron for you know, waiting to be tagged, he'd turn around and just kind of point and say stupid. They just talk trash to people in the front. It was, I, I was sort of keeping an eye on him 
when I saw him doing it early on. And if you watch him throughout a lot of this match, you'll just kind of smile and be like, ah, wow, good stuff, Owen. Good stuff. He could just sense that he was getting great heat. Uh, we had D, uh, D'Lo and Road Dog to start. Back and forth shoulder tackles. Every time Owen tagged in, the crowd would go nuts. Him and Billy Gunn went at it for a little while. A uh, big press slam. Then a spinning heel kick by uh, Owen. Back body drop. Uh, Tilt-a-whirl. Triple H comes in with the big jumping knee. And oh yeah, I, my note again, just Owen really having like I kept making notes about him. He was one that really stood out in this match to me. Is uh, he seemed like he was having a great time. He hits a low blow on Triple H. The ref doesn't see it. And this was a point where Jr. says that the guys in the back room call Kama the Godfather, hmm. which I thought was kind of interesting because yeah. he would become the Godfather uh, not that long. Billy I'm, I'm not sure that character was entirely removed from reality. No, I was going to say. I, think <laughs> I mean, that... he mentions that in the dark side of the ring about the brawl for all, about how, make no mistake, he wasn't a pimp, but he bounced its joints and would knock pimps out at the bar. So uh, there was a lot of inspiration for that character. Where we, uh, D'Lo and uh, Billy Gunn kind of going back and forth. Then Triple H, uh, Road Dog, and Billy Gunn all get in on D'Lo. Uh, another knee drop, and just some some good basic tag stuff here. Owen, I thought this was kind of it. Just made me cringe a little bit. He hit a pile driver. Seeing him hit the pile driver on Road Dog, and the heels work on the baby faces for a little bit. Lots of double teams here for a few minutes, so we get that part of the match where you know you're gonna get the. The selling spots from the baby face Lawler asks How big is China's back And JR says He doesn't know how big her back Or her front is <laughs> And they start talking about how This is one of those things too Where it's like oh, She's probably not a great cook Just like Oh that was just one of those weird things That you probably don't want to Bring up and like And just like force onto someone So some of those cringy things That maybe when you watch you know, 25 years later, just don't hold up quite as well. We, I didn't have any problem with a lot of this match though. Oh, uh, Owen tried for a sharpshooter and Kama goes for a big splash, but Road Dog moves. Kama hits a clothesline. D'Lo with the big backbreaker. Then they miss a Vader bomb. Triple H makes the save. Uh, Road Dog with an elbow drop. And we end up going not quite 20 minutes, about 18 and a half minutes. And the last couple minutes, I thought things started to build up a little bit. Another line that Jr. says, "Mark Henry just jerked China off the apron," and, and Lawler goes, "What?" <laughs> and, and, and it just—I laughed so hard. This is one of those things. You're on live TV. You can't help it. You're gonna just say things in weird order sometimes. But I just—I laughed over and over hearing that. It, it did drag in the middle. There was about five minutes. I think this thing goes eighteen thirty. If it was 13.30, I think it would have been a better match. And it's yeah. not like it was bad. I think you just, you know, you just sort of kind of did doing some of the same stuff over and over again, DZ. You got a lot of D'Lo in the middle that I think dragged it out a bit. Um, yeah, I totally agree with your your uh, analysis of Owen. I mean, obviously, he's, the, you know, he's the best worker in there, and, and it's not close. Uh, and you could say that for most times that Owen is in the ring, regardless of who he's in the ring with. Um, just a couple of notes I made. 
with with Billy Gunn, uh, now fifty eight years old, wrestling at uh, at AEW. You know, the other night, what what the hell is he on? How well, how whatever, whatever it was, he popped for it with WWE, and that's why he's not there anymore. Yeah, but it's like, I mean, if you take a look at B- Billy Gunn right now, pretty much looks like. A, a juiced up Mickey Rourke from the wrestler. That's pretty much what Billy Gunn looks like at 58 yeah. years old. Um, another thing that I, that I noted, um, this is probably for my money, the best physique of triple H's career. Yeah. Um, he's not blown up bloated yet. He doesn't look all bloated because he's probably pumped full of a combination of creatine and God knows what else that has him retaining all these fluids that, you know, give you that that bulky muscular muscular look. Uh, He's he's clearly bigger than he was, you know, a year or two before, but he's not you know, jacked out of his mind where it got to the point where it looked ridiculous. It's probably, and to be honest with you, watching his ring work, I thought he was, he was really good in this match. He had a really good tilt to world backbreaker in there. His, uh, his, uh, you know, kind of knee to the, the, to the face kind of, you know, head breaker or whatever that move was called. Um, I thought he looked really good in there. I, I agree with your sentiment that it dragged a little bit in the middle. Owen would eventually come back in and it would pick up again. When he got some of the Owen and triple H stuff, it picked up Steve. He hit a pedigree. Hit a pedigree, he did. Yeah, he did. Uh, I but for my money, and, and it's no knock against against Dilo because I actually thought Dilo was a pretty decent worker. For me, a lot of his stuff was what kind of dragged in here a little bit. It picked yeah. up when he hit uh when he hit Road Dog with like that kind of quasi pop-up power bomb thing towards the end of the match. But uh it was fine, you know. It didn't it didn't bother me. Uh I would have put it behind, you know, the main event and the light heavyweight match in terms of where it fit on the on the pay-per-view from, uh, a, I guess, just uh, my enjoyment standpoint. But uh, it was fine. I, you know, kind of like a two-and-a-half star type of match. And, Andrew, it's, it's it's not as if this is a WrestleMania main event, but it sort of – it felt a little bit more like a match that, should, that was on a pay-per-view. Like a, a little bit – like this is something that you could have seen as a Raw main event, but it, it more so than the other matches, the quality was a little bit better. The crowd was pretty into it. You had some of the more over – Players on the roster at the moment Here too so yeah this was This was pretty fine for me And Owen and the nation end up getting The win here Owen gets the pin And Owen was kind of in the middle of a a Feud with Triple H here Owen joining the Nation of domination made No sense even as it was happening And it makes no sense more than Two decades later The black heart heart. That's what it was that's why Somehow some way by the grace of human will and the fact that he was a world-class worker, he made it work. Now, my favorite part of this match that we haven't mentioned yet was the match starts, the crowd begins this deafening chant of, oh, win sucks, oh, win sucks. D'Lo Brown covers Owen's ears. I just thought that was hysterical. I thought that was a great little moment that you could tell Everybody was enjoying that was involved in it. And look, this match wasn't bad. It still hit me as a little house showy. They didn't sure. really get out a second gear. And I think a lot of that had to do with the length. I agree with you guys. If this is a 12 minute match as opposed to an 18 minute match, it goes from two and a half stars to three, three and a quarter ish. And it's got a chance to be genuinely good. It's not bad. 
And it's certainly much better than a lot of the other stuff that we see on this show, but you're not going to actively seek this one out either. Triple H isn't there yet. The new age outlaws are just sort of there. Owens in a weird place for a lot of different reasons. You get comma as comma and not the Godfather. You get D'Lo Brown, who was sort of the bump guy at that point. It's okay. It's nothing special. It's a decent semi-main event with a finish that didn't get replicated a lot uh, moving forward in the 24 years prior to that. After that, I should say. But for what it was, it was fine. And D'Lo and Billy were the legal men. And Owen ends up covering Triple H. It doesn't matter (laughs) when it's all all said and done. Let's just end this, guys. Time to go on. The Attitude Era in a nutshell. We are then ready for the main event. And we get a really good video to set up the story. Uh, This was... I'm not going to say this as if Dude Love and Mick Foley weren't great. But this was the Austin McMahon stuff. That Mick was the guy to to be the proxy for McMahon. So this was a lot of the McMahon-Austin buildup. And the video package to start ends up beginning with 45 minutes left to go in the show. And this match goes 22 and a half minutes. So all the bells and the whistles and everything, they do take a while. And I'm normally and – if, and if any of you – We'll knock this match a little bit because it feels like there's too much going on. I can completely understand because normally I'm in that department, but this is one of the ones that just I think most of it worked really well. A lot of the things that they did and the performers in particular are all just fantastic. Austin, McMahon, Mick, Taker, and Patterson and Briscoe. I just kept get like. Going back to them and some of the things they were doing in here So we get a video, then the promo from Vince Then we get intros by Fink, Pat Patterson, and The Undertaker comes out So there's a lot happening Um, Vince McMahon announces Gerald Briscoe as the timekeeper Pat Patterson as the bell ringer And Vince is a special guest ref And Undertaker comes out, confronts Vince or they they talked about how Undertaker had done that before. He had he had come out and confronted him before. So <laughs> we're set up for a a demolition derby, a train wreck. So the the key to this match, Darren, was the by my hand only. Leading into this, when we watched video packages, we got the setup, we got everything. Vince McMahon kept coming back to the point that I'm the special guest referee. The only way this match can end is by my hand only. If I give the timekeeper the bell or if I count one, two, three. So that was obviously going to play in. And what do you think about before we get into everything? Do you think overall this was too much with all the the things going on or did you have fun with it? A little bit of both. Um, you know, like 14 minutes build up with different stuff going on before the match at an over the edge pay-per-view is is quite a bit. Um yeah. but to be honest with you, they kind of booked themselves into that situation with all of what they had been doing in the storyline leading up to it, uh, between Taker and Vince and between what Vince is trying to do and dude love and Mick being a proxy for him and having, you know, Pat and Briscoe involved. So you kind of needed to represent the fact 
that the odds are really stacked against Austin. So I understand why this goes on as long as it does. It does drag a little bit and you eventually you go, you know, okay, enough already. Let's get on with the match. But it was fun. You know, it was fun watching these guys. I mean, you know, this is, this is at this point in time, the biggest storyline in wrestling. And it's the storyline that brought WWF back WWE back uh, in the ratings war against WCW. So you have to appreciate it for what it was. This was also one of the first times and we'd seen it somewhat before, but this is one of the first times we've seen Vince McMahon not in a suit. And this is one of the first times where you look at the television and you go, oh my God, that what the hell is jacked. what the hell is he on? What is he on? <laughs> it was like, whoa, whoa. Good to see it, he's still got Dr. Zahorian on retainer. <laughs> so some of the stuff I was mentioning before was was in the video package. We got that little promo backstage where Michael Hayes interviews Vince and the Stooges. Yes, sir, Mr. McMahon. And then we get the intro from Fink, who the funny intro was first for the uh, for the guest ring announcer, Pat Patterson, the legend who held over 20 titles, the first ever IC champ by uh, by surviving a grueling tournament in Rio. Which, uh, <laughs> and then they compare him to Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky, which was was pretty funny. Um, then Patterson introduces Gerald Briscoe. He says, inside this man beats the heart of a champion. He's a loving father, a devoted husband, and the reincarnation of Jim Thorpe. And you can go to the Briscoe Brothers body shop, and he plugs the phone number and where you can go. And then he introduces Vince McMahon. We've laughed with him. We've cried with him. He's an American icon and a man that makes all of our lives worth living. Please stand in honor of our special guest referee and the owner of the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> it was pretty funny. And Pat did a good job here. And King sits. Uh, King stands up to give like a like a, a standing ovation. And Jr. tells him to sit down because Vince can't see him. He said, he said, he already saw you stand up. You can sit down now, man. You don't have to keep doing this. And, um, I, I laughed. I watched this back a couple different times because it was pretty funny. Is, uh, he calls him the cat that makes the kittens purr. <laughs> it was, uh, that, was the, that, that was the dude love line as, as he introduces dude next. So Patterson, he was uh, a, a, doing a great job with these intros. He intros Briscoe, Vince, and then he sets it up for dude, the rags to riches story. And Dude Love, he's got the blazer on with the Dude Love gear, which is sort of funny. As Foley does the hands on the knees, little jive move. And Vince raises his arm before he even starts. And as Patterson intros Stone Cold, he calls him <laughs> a beer-swilling fool, a foul-mouthed punk, and a disgrace to every human being alive today. Long-winded, but a lot of fun. And then Patterson just stops. He says, you know what? I'm not going to introduce a bum. And he just stops. And JR says, it doesn't matter. He doesn't need any introduction. This was massive, man. He is just so over. Huge pop. For Stone Cold Steve Austin. And then right as we're about to get the match started. The lights go out. Another few minutes. Here comes the Undertaker. So Vince is scared. Undertaker's out there. Just to make sure everything goes to plan. And that uh, 
Vince which doesn't is, try to, which is really, really odd at times because he's just there. Like, and then Vince he's got, like gone. They, yeah. Then there are times where it's like, why isn't he involved right now? Where, yeah. where is he? What's he doing? Like he's literally just standing around doing nothing for twenty minutes. It's very strange. At one point, he like is he's following Vince yep, up and like down the aisleway. It's like stand. It's like when you're you're like auditing someone. He was like standing right behind him, like watching every movement he did as a referee. And yeah, it was it was a little bit weird. And we were finally able to get things started as. The crowd is just nuts for this. Austin gives Vince the finger right off the bat. And then dude loves new teeth get kicked out. Yeah. JR says no more GQ covers for dude. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then Jerry says that dude lost his smile. <laughs> and they take a shot at Shawn Michaels right here, which I thought was pretty yeah. funny. Um, they're outside the ring and Vince is just berating Austin, just yelling at him. And dude loves. Foley is flying around. He tosses Austin into the ring steps. He whips him into the the steel steps, and then we get a side rush and leg sweep, hard into the corner, knees to the ribs. Keeps uh, getting two count covers. Then Austin gets up. We get a neck breaker, and the crowd just so into this thing. Austin doing some of his stomps, and then Mankind Mick Foley comes back with the mandible claw. Austin just kind of tosses Dude Love, and he gets stuck up in the ropes. It's that spot that Mick always would do. When the, the one that sliced his ear off. Where he gets caught up in between. And it looks so brutal. But he's able to clear. And they go outside. And he ta- uh, Dude Love tosses Austin onto the, the announce table. <laughs> then all of a sudden Patterson grabs the mic. And he says this is a no DQ match. And the crowd is furious. JR and- is too. JR JR helped sell this match quite a bit You're right He's going He's really getting upset At at things that are happening Every time they they change the match Or change the rules I'm not kidding This was probably my favorite part of the match What happens next So Austin throws Dude Love Into Gerald Briscoe And Briscoe just goes ass over tea kettle and, And Dude Love's sitting on the guardrail And then Austin nails him off of the guardrail and Foley takes a bump out into the crowd. He lands on this on his side. This is when Undertaker starts like really one of the recaps I was reading said stalking Vince, and that's absolutely true. It's Me a, that's like, and yeah. my shadow. <laughs> He's just right on his hip. And I kept writing down the word intensity. Austin and Foley, though, so intense. With all of their movements The punches look real like they hurt The kicks, the jabs, everything Is It's not like the cane chin lock We were looking at earlier This stuff feels legit And then The show stealer, Gerald Briscoe He raises himself up He's recovered And they show him on the camera He holds his hand up And he's got the the little hammer that he uses to ring the ring bell and he's holding it up. Like he just won the world title. It was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> he's looks so disheveled. His hair is all messed up. Cause he just went head like totally flipped. And he's sitting there holding his up with his arm. Like he just withstood this like 60 minute match. I, I kept laughing. It, 
it was so funny to see over and over. And and these guys, you could tell, were having so much fun playing this role because Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe, they were serious wrestlers in their career. They didn't really get a chance to have fun like this, and they they got a kick out of doing it. They really did. Um, all of a sudden, Vince rushes over and tells Pat Patterson something, and now this is a false count anywhere match. Jr. again. Since when? That's not right. Jr.'s just furious. Um, now they're up in the aisle, and there there's a bunch of cars there as part of the props. Now they start fighting on the cars. One of the windshield breaks. They're on the front of one car. Austin goes for a stunner, but Foley tosses him, and then he does a sunset flip off of the hood of a car onto the onto the floor, and he gets a lead pipe, and then Austin gets busted open. He's bleeding all over the place. These guys are working their asses off here. Foley climbs up to the on top of one of the cars, and he actually wrote about this spot in in one of his books. He said he chickened out a little bit, and you can tell when you watch the jump. He's sort of it's like he knows it's how someone would jump, knowing that they're not going to land. He doesn't go all for it, and. I'm not going to hold it against you, Mick. You've you've done enough for us through the years. You've put your body on the line enough, so don't worry about it. Uh, just really good stuff, man. Taker continues to stand right over Vince, intimidating him. Now we get to the final, you know, five minutes or so of the match. There's a they're back in the ring. Mick Foley had took the turnbuckle pad off. He tosses Austin into the exposed turnbuckle, and then Patterson hands him a chair. And he drills Austin with a chair. I'm glad there wasn't too much chair in this match because this was the era where they started really doing the the unprotected but chair shot. When there was, there, there were two were or three of them. Of them. Yeah. yeah, there there were a few that were bad, but it wasn't like 20 shots that we would see in, in some of these matches a few yep. months later. Um, <laughs> I actually feel less bad when Vince is the one that gets it. You know what I mean? I don't know why. It's like uh, I guess if Vince is the one. Well, that's especially get... given everything that's come out in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Recently right so Yeah uh, brutal Chair shot from Austin to dude And then he goes For a pin Vince won't count it And that's when McFoley grabs the chair Back we see some arguing going On <laughs> And McFoley winds up To nail Austin with the chair He gets out of the way and he just crushes Vince just crushes Vince here Austin hits a stunner But Mike Kyoto runs out the count And then Patterson just pulls him Out of the ring and just decks him It's, it's so funny to watch Patterson just Yoink him out Cold by, cocks by, by the way my one problem Here if the Undertaker is Eventually going where to is he involved, right now Why does he standing there why does He allow right Patterson now? to That's pull exactly him out what So there actually There actually is a little Bit of a reason for this it's not like he and Austin were buddies or pals. I don't think he so much wanted Austin to beat dude love as much as he's like, okay, whatever happens here, I want both of these guys to like suffer. And that would explain a lot of what happens in mid to late 98 and early 99 too. Now, remember, the only way this match could actually be official is by the, the hand of Vince McMahon. As McFoley puts on the mandible claw and <laughs> Patterson slides in the ring. He's he's gonna be the ref, but Undertaker pulls him out. He chokeslams Pat Patterson, and the crowd is really 
really molten, building it. Molten. Just, just so, so, so pumped for this. Every taker, then he goes after Briscoe, and uh, Briscoe gets pulled out of the ring, choke slam through the Spanish announce table. Austin, kick to the gut, stunner to Foley. He crawls over and grabs Vince, and Vince is just laying there out, and he grabs Vince's arm, and he counts the one, the two, and the three. 22 and a half minutes, DZ. A hell of a lot of stuff going on, but it's fun. It's fun. And and all of these guys performed really well. Vince was awesome in here. Foley was awesome. Austin, you know, for a guy who had the injuries before, the, the neck injury not long ago, you could see, man, he still had it here. Like, he could still go 20 minutes at a really fast pace, super intense. He wasn't going to be doing incredible technical stuff anymore, but just from a, a pace standpoint, this was a Stone Cold Steve Austin type of match, and we get main events kind of like this for the next few years. Yeah, re- I mean, it's a really enjoyable match. I mean, you you hit on everything. Um, you know, the, the one thing I'll talk about with the ending is that uh, if you ever need to know how much you depend upon the person getting choke slammed to make it a good looking choke slam, watch Gerald Briscoe. <laughs> he, so... he can't even get off the ground. No, like Patterson. It's like a push. Is... Yeah, it's like a pushback. <laughs> it's like a pushback through the table. You can't even get off the ground for Taker. Um, I mean, look. That, listen for all the things. It, and this is kind of what makes you like go nuts with WWF sometimes is that so much of this is so freaking good. And the ending is so well done. And they know it. They know this is going to be good. Like we know they, they can, they can do this kind of stuff a little more often. It doesn't have to be just like this, but they can put on a big match. They mo very, it's not often when they don't deliver on the big stage. It's just, the, the in between the big stages that frustrate us and th- this was yeah this was cool oh yeah oh yeah I, I listen i i thoroughly enjoyed it it i could have done without the two hours and six minutes leading up to it to get to this point but yeah this and this is a fantastic match and by the way we're four weeks out from uh the hell in a cell of of taker and, and mankind at uh, at king in the ring uh and then uh subsequently when uh austin would lose the title to kane uh, in the main event that you nobody wanted to main event after Mick Foley got thrown off the cage. So, uh, you know, for a perspective of timeline, that's where we are right now uh, in WWE history. And of course, you know, from that point on, it's pretty much all she wrote for the ratings war of WWF versus WCW. Um, and the product over the next couple of years could, fills out, gets better. But you could really see that at the top line, They've got a ton of power uh, and and a ton of ability here to do some really fun and entertaining things. And this main event really, you know, speaks to that point. So fun little thing to carry off of what Darren just said. I don't know when any of you all out there in podcast land are listening to this. We are recording this on June 28th, 2022, June 28th, 1998. Is mm-hmm. the exact day Mick Foley took his journey from the top of the cell down to the arena floor. So happy 24th anniversary to that. That's cool. One more, yeah, one more year, and Mick Foley's journey from there will be able to rent a car without having to pay a young renter fee. <laughs> um, but 
yeah, just in case y'all needed to feel really old about that one. But, guys, I watched this match. I had a blast. I tried to make it four and a half stars or four and three quarters. I can't. It's a five-star match. Just listen to the reaction. Listen to the pop that gets worked up to and the storytelling that goes into it and the fact that both of these guys worked so hard for a half hour. The thing that got me, and there were a couple of really big, nasty-looking bumps in this match, Mick Foley does a sunset flip that was... off the top of a car. Onto unprotected floor. Uh, like, yeah. No like, mat, no oh night. Oh, my just... God. The human body is not supposed to do that, let alone somebody that's 6'2", 6'3", 280, 290 pounds. It's just not supposed to happen. And then you get all of the auxiliary stuff. And look, was it overwhelming? Were there a lot of moving parts? Yeah. But you're going to get that with any WWF show from the late 90s and early 2000s. That was just the nature of the product. And it was that kind of sensory overload where they would throw all of this stuff at you just to see what stuck. And it didn't matter what they threw at you as long as Steve Austin at the end of the night hit the stunner, got his hand raised, drank a whole bunch of beers and sent everybody home happy. That's what we got here. Mick Foley has had better matches. Steve Austin has had better matches. Vince McMahon elevates this match from about four stars to five for me. I <laughs> thought this was fantastic, and it forgave a lot of the stuff we had to sit through in order to get here. Yeah. Okay, so I, Andrew, I hold on, DZ, hold that thought for one second. I'm going to let Andrew, I just want you, since Darren is going to be going on vacation next week, so I think it'll just How be you and me. How dare he? Andrew, How dare he? <laughs> I know. I won't allow it. So you, Andrew, go ahead and look for a show for you and me to talk about. I'll get over to Darren for some final thoughts. And then when we come back to you in a minute for some of your final thoughts, tell us which show we're going to talk about. So Darren, uh, take your time because I got to come up with a doozy. Yeah. Oh, there we go. It's, yeah. oh, I'm no. going to get I'm going to get paid back for uh, for some of my comments a few weeks ago at Andrew in the in the chat. So uh, DZ, what what I did take away from this, too, and what I really like in in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, a guy who I really, really had more of respect for and grown to love. And I think a most wrestling fans have is Mick Foley. Oh, the yeah. guy is, is a good dude. He cares, genuinely cares about the fans. He did everything he possibly could with the hand that he was dealt. He wasn't an athlete. He wasn't some big, strong, good-looking dude. But he, watching him in this main event and knowing the journey that he went on and in Japan, and he wanted to be in WWE for so long in those years, and then they didn't want him, and finally JR brought him over, and and how it, it took him to this point, but... Just thinking about him in this main event match against Stone Cold Steve Austin in the biggest match of his life. He had matches with Sting and Vader and, you know, title matches. He had a match with Sean a couple years before at the pay-per-view. But this was different. This was a main event. You're in the major storyline. He got to do a childhood angle that he made up himself as dude love and and, yeah. and have that played out in front of millions of people in WWE. It does kind of warm my heart seeing Foley get this kind of a moment and knowing that he would still have a good 
kind of couple years, you know, after this, where we saw him around for a while, and he's a good dude, man. I I love Foley now. He's just he's like your the, the lovable old uncle or, or grandpa now. He's Santa Claus. Not not only have the the character make it to WWE, but um, have the character main event with the biggest star on the planet and one of the top three uh, wrestling names in the history of 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 the industry. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, you take a look at some of the take. I mean, for my money. I would say the three biggest I mean it's hard to say he had so he had so many good matches in WCW but it's hard to put them on the level with WWE just from an exposure standpoint um the three biggest matches for me that he had in WWE was this he was going to have another one 4 weeks later against Taker the Hell in a Cell which is obviously the match that everybody talks about uh 24 years later and I'm sure it's you know I would say 70% out of the time, if not more, the first thing that Foley gets asked about when he meets somebody. Uh, and the third one was that was that crazy title match uh, with The Rock on Monday Night Raw. Um, you know, and you think about it, what I just mentioned, title match with Austin, title match with Rock, Hell in a Cell match with Taker. Three of the biggest names in the history of the sport, uh, of the industry, I should say. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just speaks to the fact that Look, was he a great ring worker? No. Was he an athlete? No. Uh, but he, he kind of showed that if you were willing to push your body to some very difficult places for something that you love to do, uh, and you gave it everything you had and were able to tell a story, you could be successful in this business. And there have been many people that have come since McFoley who were much more athletic, who were much more talented, and you couldn't remember their name if your life depended on it. And that speaks to what Mick was uh, was able to do. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, I'll end on a light note. Um, did either of you look at the um, the poster for the pay-per-view? It's Ken Shamrock. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's not even mentioned him. <laughs> None yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> nope. Just it's, it's, so... it's, it's it is an enraged Ken Shamrock with a backdrop <laughs> of Ken Shamrock putting an ankle lock on Billy Gunn. There is no Ken Shamrock anywhere, nowhere, nowhere. It is. Oh my goodness. Um, Andrew, he to me is one of those those teammates that. He's better even with better players because he makes the guys around him better because he he'll sell for them. He'll make you look like a million bucks and you put him in the ring with with he's a guy that, you know, Ric Flair and people used to make comments about his style. And all, all he is is a gimmick guy who's a hardcore guy. You watch him. Mick Foley knows how to tell a story. Mick Foley so, knows wrestling. Yeah. And the story that stands out to me. It's not Flair calling him a glorified stuntman. It's not those two going back and forth like crabby old folks people. Just the thing that gets me was Bret Hart in his book before he met McFoley thought, oh, all this guy does is bump around and use all this stuff that I have no interest in doing. Da, 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 da. He had one conversation and one match with McFoley and his opinion 
turned around in an instant. And he recognized that this guy was, for all intents and purposes, a wrestling genius. This was a guy that, look, we remember some of the things Mick Foley did. And yes, at the time, they were insanely risky and insanely stupid. But you look at what guys are doing now. Bumps with light tubes. Thumbtacks. They happen and you don't remember them five minutes later. We remember the things that Mick Foley did. And that's what makes so much of what he does so special. Mick, you were a star here. Austin, you were a star here. Vince, you were definitely a star in this show. And uh, yeah, shout out to the Stooges, Briscoe and Patterson. They made me pop quite a bit. The rest of the show was a little disappointing. There were two matches that were, I'd say, above average or, you know, that were fine. Everything else just, eh. And... We at least finish on a high note It's not like some of those matches Some of those shows that we watch Where you finish and the last thing that you watch Leaves a really bad taste in your mouth At least this one we did build up to a main event And yeah, a match that I just, I love This was this was a good one So Andrew, I'm afraid to ask had, have, you, have you found a show for you and me To talk about next week? You're not going to be afraid of this one um, I wanted something that was an easy watch Something that we could get through Something that had relevance in some way, shape, or form to what's going on now. And I found a show that I'm 99% sure we haven't done yet. If we have done this, correct me offline and I will find something else that we can do. But there's a show that had five matches on it. All of them are great. And you can make the argument that the winners of all five of these matches, three years later, are substantially worse off than they were when they won these insanely so, good matches. So this has to be an NXT show. I am referring to NXT TakeOver New York 2019. Listen to this match lineup in case you've forgotten how good this show was. For the NXT tag titles, we have the War Raiders against Aleister Black and Ricochet. For the North American title, we have Velveteen Dream and Matt Riddle. For the NXT UK title, we have Pete Dunn versus Valter. All caps, Valter. We need to scream his name every time if it's in all caps. Valter. <laughs> For the NXT women's title, we have a four-way between Shayna Baszler, Kyrie Sane, Io Shirai, and a very young Bianca Belair. And our main event, a two out of three falls match, between Johnny Gargano and Adam Cole, baby. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode of That's What G Said. Where else are you going to get racing, NFL previews, Miss Marvel deep dives, and the old wrestling rewatch all on one episode, all on one show? Nowhere else, folks. Thank you so much for hanging out and listening to That's What G Said podcast. Thanks, Eric, for helping out with the NFL previews, TK, Tim Kelly always helping us out with the Miss Marvel deep dives, and Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali on the old wrestling rewatch. We'll be back later in the week for plenty more with summer racing ahead. Saratoga, Del Mar, we keep getting into the NFL, finishing up with Miss Marvel, Thor, Love and Thunder to come. We'll dive into baseball and uh, talk anything going on in the world of NBA free agency with big news, big movement. If there's something happening in the world of sports and pop culture, we've got you covered here on That's What G Said. So you want your team.
fell, you 